first edit, Gust. Jonathan Harnish, Gust. The Alibi Notebook, a work in progress Alibiography.com Introduction It is astounding how individuals who are brilliant go unnoticed due to certain features of their internal and external selves. This is exactly the case with the author Jonathan Harnish in his book, Jonathan Harnish, an Alibiography. In the simplest terms, I would compare the book to an infinite merry-go-round due to the sporadic nature and continuous delusions that made me question my own sanity. Jonathan is diagnosed with a whole spectrum of disorders, but one that stands out the most in the book is his diagnosis with schizoaffective disorder. Throughout the book, the author relived his moments of delusions, hallucinations, and despair to give an illustration of what the mind of an individual with schizoaffective disorder is like. The illustration resembled a foggy early morning in spring when walking outside and can't see your hand in front of you. You may not be able to see your hand but you know that it is there. This is the case with the book. Ben knew he was there but couldn't find himself due to the chaos that his own mind created. The main character, Ben, has an alter ego named Georgie Gust who he explores during his therapy sessions with Dr. C. Ben first began to express Georgie Gust when he robbed a bank using only a cell phone. Instead of going to jail he received court-ordered therapy because of his wealthy father. Georgie reflects Ben in certain characteristics like having a trust fund and unstable relationship with his own father. Ben and Georgie are both hypnotized by the character Claudia Nesbitt. This character is not known to be a real person or not, but becomes an obsession of Georgie's. In the fantasies of Ben, Claudia is a recurring person, who is his torturer in sexual and emotional ways. In his delusions, she is always the woman that he is chasing after. Throughout the book, there is a main delusional point, which Ben explains, in great detail. The main delusion that I'll explain is the Wakefield Academy, because each one is repeated but with different settings and character names. Georgie is brought to the Academy by his parents and is introverted until he meets two people, Claudia and Heidi. Claudia, like in many of his other delusions, is the woman that he is infatuated with. Georgie and Claudia build a strong relationship together, and attractions begin to form. However, their relationship is innocent compared to his other delusional scenarios. During this one they are only on a small kiss and hand holding basis. Claudia is the opposite of Georgie in the sense that she is well liked and popular among her peers, but gravitates toward Georgie due to his intelligence. Heidi is Georgie's philosophy teacher, who notices his brilliance and has a special interest in him. Both Claudia and Heidi have a sour past, including the death of Claudia's father and Heidi's sister. Heidi is the mentor for Georgie, who helps him develop his talents and starts to help him put his life together. The ending is both dramatic and heartwarming at the same time. Claudia kills herself by jumping off the cliff that Georgie showed her because of the depression she experienced from her father's death. On the contrary, George wins the Wakefield Academy Memorial Scholarship, which Heidi helped him receive and which will pay for his college. This delusion shows key elements in the disorder that Ben experiences. He longs for a meaningful relationship with people and creates these delusions to help fulfill those needs. In the delusion, 
he was able to overcome the negative odds, which can be related to his desire to be able to manage his schizoaffective disorder. Throughout the book, Ben writes of the adventures that Georgie experiences, which are ultimately delusions. This is a key factor in the diagnosing of schizoaffective disorder. According to the Mayo Clinic, schizoaffective disorder is a condition in which a person experiences a combination of schizophrenia symptoms, such as hallucinations or delusions, and mood disorder symptoms, such as mania or depression. This definition can be applied to the book in many different aspects, referring to the hallucinations and delusions. The idea of Claudia supports the definition. She is placed in numerous scenarios that are all created by Ben's own mind and are fueled with his alter ego Georgie. In one delusion she is a student at a private high school and in another she is the daughter of a wealthy man that lives in New York. Ben also experiences hallucinations and an example that he uses, the landline rings all the time, often, quite a few times and they tell me to pick up. So I do, Harnish, 2014, referring to the voices that he hears, which influence him in different ways. Schizoaffective disorder symptoms vary from person to person. However, the symptoms that Ben expresses throughout the book are, delusions, hallucinations, major depressed mood episodes, mania, problems with cleanliness and physical appearance, and paranoid thoughts and ideas. Each of these symptoms appears throughout the book at different intervals. There are many examples of major depressive mood episodes throughout the book, but one that stands out is when he stated, he slaps the snooze button. Half hit. Half miss. It's all gross. He's sweaty and ashamed. He can't even get up. Another fucking horrible day in the life of me. Georgie Gust, Harnish, 2014. This is a prime example of a depressive episode, his inability to function at a basic level. He couldn't even leave his own bed. With the inability to leave his bed, he wasn't able to keep himself clean or his own home clean. In the context of mania, when Ben robbed the bank with a cell phone he was in a state of pure ecstasy and believed that nothing would go wrong. He stated that he was only doing it for the fun of it which could have been because of his crack cocaine use at the time. Lastly, the symptoms of paranoid thoughts and ideas can be related to the book when Georgie states that, superficially nobody notices Georgie, the neighbors are really watching everything that happens at Georgie's place, Harnish, 2014. Georgie believes that the neighbors try and act like he's not actually there when he tries to greet them, however he believes that they watch his every movement, this highlights the definition of paranoia because he has the suspicion and the mistrust of his neighbor's actions, even though he has no evidence or justification to do so. Throughout the entire book, the author gave a vivid description of what life is like with mental illness. He explained his own life while living with schizoaffective disorder and how difficult the disorder actually is. He described his alter ego, Georgie, and his obsessions with Claudia, even though in reality they all were delusions. Each delusion had a similar structure to each other. The author constructed the book so that people who have never suffered from mental illness could feel the effects that they cause. He gave me an idea of what living with schizoaffective disorder is like. 
I not only gained an understanding of schizoaffective disorder but also an understanding of my own self through his words of wisdom. He gave me the clear understanding of how valuable this life actually is and how we all, as human beings, have our own ups and downs. We all have our faults, but we have to continue to drive past them to become better individuals. Ben pushes to become a functional individual and understands that some days will be bad and some will be good. The main point that I learned about schizoaffective disorder is it is like an infinite merry-go-round. The disorder will continue to spin and spin and distort an individual's perception, but the speed of the spinning can be slowed to give moments of clarity. William Thompson Living with mental illness? Better doesn't mean cured sometimes, I feel that I don't know what's going on or that I don't care about anything. I am confused by my feelings, because I'm not able to explain how I feel, except for the emptiness, and I feel that no one is really there for me, even if they are, or that nobody understands me anymore. It feels like I have nothing to look forward to. I'm a compulsive liar, but I don't understand why I do it. I create intriguing stories about myself, to the point that I can't even tell who I really am anymore. I lie to feel better about myself. Maybe, once I realize I'm a spectacular person just the way I am, I will stick with the truth. I also try to respect people, including myself, who maybe don't deserve it. This does not reflect the other person's character but reflects mine, and I miss the mark, sometimes, out of frustration, questioning why it's always me who tries to be right. I feel that other people are wrong at times, but at the end of the day, respect is better than lowering myself, even the tiniest bit. I'm better than that. I just woke up from another nap, and I write down my scattered thoughts about emotional pain, while in a state of complete confusion because of the disorder currently in my life. Of all the things I've lost, I miss my mind the most, though it might, just might, return even if only for a second. I believe I have lost the battle with my own mind, but I still carry on feeling completely alone in the enterprise, which is where I want to be. I want to be alone. It is the closest thing I can think of to pressing the pause button on life, especially in the relationships I have with other people. I am a bad person to my wife. My biggest fear has always been that eventually she will see me the way I see myself. I can't stop thinking that I'm saying goodbye to my own sanity. I believe I have lost this war, perhaps a long time ago. My mind has always been a dark place and somewhere I would not want my worst enemy to be, but despite all of these feelings, I still battle depression and man, am I tired? I want to feel like me again because, for a long time now, I have felt like someone else. The old me disappears as I fall deeper and deeper into oblivion. I need to be alone without any more external drama or chaos. I do not know how to deal with this feeling, except through anger, disdain, or withdrawing completely. When I can, I try to keep up with my art because it has saved me. For my own good and the good of others around me, I believe I need to be alone but not to be lonely, only to find some enjoyment or interest in my free time that let me be myself. Otherwise, 
I serve no purpose and certainly no positive purpose. I don't think I was ever meant to be or have ever served any purpose, except to communicate through my art, mainly my writing, to share these feelings for those who cannot. I have nothing else to lose. Sometimes, I feel the stress of everything in the world trying to claw into my mind, all at once and constantly, and I need something to help push me through life. Something like writing, or maybe music, or at times, just sleeping and not participating. I have miserable feelings inside me that I can't seem to control, though sometimes it feels like I can. Continuously, I fail and I hurt people, causing others anguish, wretchedness, hatred, and more. I feel that I cause the same in myself, and so I stand back. I no longer interact with people due to this bizarre conflict I do not know how to handle. I continue to fight for my wife and stepchildren and my many pets, but not for myself, because in reality, giving up is just not an option. It never has been. So far, though, I have lost this fight. I walk away from day-to-day -day life because I want peace, but day-to-day -day life, and my past, keeps following me. I try not to argue with the people in my life, and I still hope for something. I just don't know what I'm hoping for, maybe peace of mind and no more distress or conflict. If I do pull through the chaos, it will be because I had to be my own hero, once again. It has to be that way because no one else can destroy me, when I destroy myself, or rather the schizophrenia destroys me. Please just save me. Fix me. I have fought this battle more than once, and I have still not won. It creeps up on me and terrifies me to pieces. That's enough for now. I am being as honest as I can possibly be. Love me, hate me, hurt me, or kill me. I will still keep going. I'm still here, but entirely confused about how to relate to other, real people. I am a mental health problem, not a person. I am schizophrenia. I am no longer a person, not anymore. I sit back and watch the world go on around me, and I am a failure. The only place where my dreams become impossibilities is in my own mind. I can't see what is actually possible, even when that something is better than the hand of cards I have been dealt. The war against my own mind exists on a continuous loop and that is why I keep fighting, even if nobody is aware of it. I have been absent from the external world and lost within my broken mind. This is called depression, schizophrenia, or so many other names. I call it war. I will leave it at that for now because I know this will barely make sense to other people, though I could be wrong. I can't give up, and I won't give up. Considering I've been diagnosed with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, PTSD, borderline personality disorder, Tourette syndrome, diabetes, anxiety and depression, a rare blood disease, dyslexia, and cancer, I am doing okay. I'm fine, but I'm just not happy, and I'd rather be honest than impressive. This morning I wrote on a post-it note, Dear life, you suck. I am feeling a little bit better and stronger now. Still, I am not fine. I am sad, sick, hurt, angry, mad, and disappointed. Still, do you know what? 
I don't think people understand how stressful it is to explain what's going on in your head when you don't even understand it yourself. I am not sure if I am feeling better or if I'm just used to being sick. I did go on a spending spree last night, spending a little over $10,000. My inheritance was stolen due to family conflict and inheritance, medical, and other power of attorney rights, but I'll put on a smile and move on. It will hurt, but I will survive. Sometimes, I don't feel like living. I don't want to kill myself, I just want it all to stop or go away. I want to be calm. I want to be happy. I feel tired, the kind of tired that sleep can't fix. Every so often, I hope I fall asleep and never wake up. I'm scared. I'm scared of people. I'm scared of doctors. I'm scared of disease. I'm scared of life. I'm scared of death. But most of all, I'm scared of me. All I really need is the right medication, with side effects that won't kill me or make me worse, and doctors who listen and care. I need family members who won't judge me and are willing to help me with my journey, friends who try to understand. I need my bed, comfy pillows, a heating pad, blankets, a good night's rest, and above all, a fucking cure. Things change, but it doesn't mean they get better. Jonathan Harnish You can also find Jonathan on Google+, Facebook, and Twitter, which is his preferred social media site. Author Jonathan Harnish has written a semi-fictional and semi-autobiographical best-selling novel, Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, which is available on Amazon and through most major booksellers. He is also a noted, and sometimes controversial, mental health advocate, a fine artist, blogger, podcast host, patent holder, hedge fund manager, musician, and film and TV writer and producer. Google him for more information. People with depression cannot snap out of it. People with depression cannot snap out of it. My moods change frequently, and I am currently depressed. There is nothing more depressing than suffering from depression and still feeling sad. So, what's the point? Will it pass? No doubt. I forget what it's like to smile, and I mean for more than a couple hours now. I'm talking about now, not later. I forget what it's like to be a lovely or loving person, or if I ever was such a person at all. One of love, of goodness, of graciousness. I forget how it feels to truly live, much less how to live life to the fullest. I just exist. Right now, I simply exist, with my pulse and my breath and maybe some tears, if I am even able to let them roll a river down my face and flood the seas and the world with them, to get them out. I try to get myself out of this mood. This life. This episode of depression. Sure, I'll return to normal. Sure. Still, I have temporarily lost the point of living a life, pretending to smile or laugh, or getting a joke every darn hour when there are people around me who only want to see me happy. Well, I am not happy, and overall I have not been happy for most of my life. If anything, I glamorize the past, and even the present, sometimes. It'll pass, but that's not the point. The point is how I feel now. The point is right now. Yes, 
I know it will pass. I know people love me, but I do not currently know what that should feel like. I just can't remember. I feel so lost. Gone. Yet I continue, and therefore I inspire, I'm often told, but I am still depressed. I am still in this chair, writing out this rubbish, because it gets so overbearing I can't tell you. I'm not alone. I know that, too, but that feels and sounds so contrived and lackluster, uninspiring to me right now. I pretend to be so damn nice and funny and charming for others, just for them, so I don't lose a Facebook friend or whatnot. Nevertheless, I have zero real-life friends. I'm not sure if I ever have had any. Well, maybe, sort of, but they probably felt sorry for me. Who cares? I don't know. I am not even my own friend. This has been true for most of my life. I got into a good school, which I didn't even belong in. I live my former Hollywood life, which never did anything for me worthwhile. I exaggerate about how cool the time in my life was, way back, back in the day. Now, I can barely move. I can barely see. I've been here many times, so don't worry about me. Just send a hug, as if I'd ever feel any real hug. Virtual hugs are probably better because there is no effort involved. No feeling, and I can just barely feel. This is why I write this kind of stuff. Just keep writing, says that little voice in my head. Get it all out, all that you can. Do it now. 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 Get me out of right now. Remind me of some clever quote or cliché, reminding me how they are just reminders over and over again of how hard it actually is, in this case for anyone, to do, let go, move on, it'll pass, it'll pass, and so forth. I pretend to live, pretending to be myself, as if that would ring true. Oh, that's just your mental illness speaking, some say. Well, then I guess I am just one full bag of happiness, and I am over it. Did I snap out of it? Of course. And again, I will get out of this depressed state, just not now, and I will do it only to see it return. I am incapable of getting but one positive thought out, so I am sorry for not pretending right now, even for just a minute. Maybe I still am pretending. I am sick, twisted, and wrong. I don't belong. Other people have it worse. I suppose I don't deserve or have the right to be depressed. I need to think about them. Poor them. Hate me. Sometimes I pretend to love the life I live. What's the point? As Faulkner said, basically, the reason to live is to get ready to stay dead a long time. Okay, thanks, Mr. Faulkner. Seriously, what is the point? Tell me about it, about how we are all just here winging it, trying to get by. I am not getting by. I watch the clock and wait, and wait, and wait for tomorrow. Oh, how sad and pitiful. Get rid of this guy, this guy Jonathan. Hell, I can't even walk two feet without being right here with myself, as myself. There is no escape. I just know hope. It's that same hope that gets me and brings me back here, for now. Tell me the point and I'll tell you why I am so damn me, but it doesn't mean I'm really proud of this. 
make me understand you as I tried to do the same. People with depression cannot snap out of it. Until my next episode, and otherwise until next time. Jonathan Harnish, my big-headed autophobia Jonathan Harnish, an elite biography Ben Schreiber has Tourette syndrome, which causes him to display uncontrollable tics and hops, and to stutter and swear inappropriately. Bullied through his school years, he can never form strong friendships, especially with women. In his late 20s, he plunges into a downward spiral of drug and alcohol abuse, which culminates in an attempted bank robbery. After he is arrested, his psychiatrist, Dr. C, quickly sees Ben's affliction as much more than Tourette's. Inside Ben's head lives Georgie Gust, Ben's alter ego. Georgie is obsessed with his manipulative but extremely sexual next-door neighbor, Claudia Nesbitt. Ben is desperately searching for the unconditional love he never received as a boy. He finds it easier to retreat into his mind to share Georgie's sick obsession with cruel and abusive Claudia than to deal with his real issues. It is up to Dr. C to help Ben face the buried terrors of his childhood so that he can finally let go of Georgie and reduce him to the literary character that writer Ben wants him to be. Amazon.com Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography was a confusing, perplexing, interesting, complex, and compelling book. It is in the mainstream fiction category, but how much is fiction and how much is true biography? I found myself feeling frustrated and at the same time fascinated by Harnish's story of his life dealing with schizophrenia. His alter egos are not always apparent at first, and isn't that sort of the point? He had and has a hard time distinguishing reality from fantasy. The writing seemed to be in a spiral and I found that many pages, segments, appeared over again in the later sections. This certainly gave the feeling of being inside the mind of a schizophrenic, but it makes for difficult reading and understanding. The other characters in his life, Georgie, Claudia, Heidi, Mr. Clean, Kelly, were constantly changing and morphing and it was hard to get a handle on them. Again, this can give a sense of what it is really like in his head, but makes it hard on the reader. I would have this in my library, but I think it might need some discussion to go along with it. Judge, Second Annual Writer's Digest Self-Published eBook Awards. Genius. I love this book. As an undergrad, I was required emphasis on required, to read Jean Jeanette's Our Lady of the Flowers, a very early example of transgressive fiction, and although I could appreciate the literary value of the book, it was almost impossible to read because of Jeanette's approach to his characters. He didn't seem to like any of them, and his prose seemed more to ridicule than explore their foibles. As a result of reading Jeanette's work so many years ago, I have never thought I liked transgressive fiction, never thought I'd read it again, and then along came Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography. Wow! What a difference! Harnish's Georgie Gust is such a beautifully written, tragic character, which the reader can't help but cheer on. You want Georgie to be happy. What an accomplishment! Harnish waits into a genre in which disconnected, ugly sexual encounters predominate, and yet you just want Georgie to get it together, be happy, and see the world as his friend.
Harnish's sense of the inner machinations of human experience spring to life through his text. An almost ritualized sojourn, much like the classic hero's journey, takes place before the reader's eyes and leads to insights both sanguine and disturbing. I confess tears fell in some spots, as Ben comes to know what happened to him as a child. True to the form of modern literature, Harnish uses all tools available to catch the reader in a spider's web of story while exposing humanity's own false prophets. Harnish has chosen the perfect way to express what a mentally ill mind actually feels like. For example, the repetition of Georgie's morning routine, with new variants every time, his first dates with Claudia, over and over again, all give a disturbing and very uncomfortable edge to the book that left my brain spinning by the end. It's brilliant. Truly a great read. Anonymous Sex, Drugs, and Schizophrenia The collected writings of Jonathan Harnish mark a magnificent contribution to the public understanding of mental illness through a masterpiece of transgressive fiction with a heart. The general reader is finally able to see mainstream literary author Jonathan Harnish at his best. Sex, Drugs, and Schizophrenia contains the works of 2014, Jonathan Harnish, an elite biography and second alibi, The Banality of Life, in one complete streaming narrative. The monumental scale of Harnish's achievement through adversity flourishes and can now be appreciated in this diverse, invaluable, and thought-provoking collection of fragmented fiction which will make your brain spin as Harnish's sense of the inner machinations within the human experience bring into life through the written word. It forces one to question reality and step into another world wanting the protagonist and his alter ego to get it together and be okay. The author reveals himself through a series of alibis in the day-to-day -day meetings of multiple personalities, a corner of psychiatry that is hardly understood, and shedding light on the experiences of schizophrenia in a language that the non-sufferer can understand, albeit from the author who suffers himself. Not for the faint of heart, this fictionalized account of a disparate mind triumphs. Amazon.com Sex, Drugs, and Schizophrenia is a novel that investigates the fractured mind of a schizophrenic. The narrative uses diverse literary mechanisms mixing elements such as journal entries, a screenplay, a straightforward melodrama involving a Tourette sufferer at a private school, occasional celebrity name-dropping and a dapper figure who, when asked his opinion of a party, responds, I'd scarcely be a good judge of that. My life is taken up with writing. Making sense of it isn't really the point. A repetitive, explicit, fractured, lengthy, and honest overall effect that mimics the confusion of its title. Kierka's Reviews Ali Biography Inauguration Prefatory Note I open my eyes, and the room is on fire. Completely unconcerned, I, Ben, watch the fire grow larger and larger, then shrink and die out, revealing Georgie Gust, my alter ego, sitting on a matching mound of dirty clothes. I light a cigarette. I thought you quit, says Georgie. My nurse and doctor watch me, shaking their heads in disapproval. Kelly doesn't know about my obsession with Claudia Nesbitt, or, rather, Georgie's obsession with her. I haven't told her much about the spells that haunt me, either. I haven't mentioned a lot of things to her. 
I haven't mentioned how much I struggle to write anything original that comes from the heart, or that all I hear is the chaos of the devil and the angels, and the voice of Georgie dictating my every word and action. That I'm nothing but a trust fund baby with an addiction problem, a constellation of lurid sexual fetishes that shrink into petrified silence in the presence of any actual women, and a half-dozen psychiatric diagnoses ranging from Tourette syndrome to schizoaffective disorder. Intermission in brief in his groundbreaking 805-page Turner Ali biography, author Jonathan Harnish's struggle with his condition is interlinked with the incomprehension of non-sufferers, and this provokes him to explain his reality. He has explored a range of media, including film, music, and now the written word, to help the general public understand exactly what it feels like to suffer from schizophrenia. By fictionalizing the day-to-day -day meetings of multiple personalities, he is illuminating a corner of psychiatry that few understand. As an author with schizophrenia, Harnish is ideally placed to share the unusual perception commonly defined as mental illness. In Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, Available on Amazon, Harnish is not dealing with an altered reality but a double reality, and his main characters, Ben and Georgie, perfectly illustrate how two lives can share the same body. I'd call it a pastiche of many different genres into one, so here's a hesitant preview into the little sandbox of my world, my literary playground. Hope you enjoyed and write a review, or not. If not, then, this three-pound book still looks terrific on my bookshelf, I must say. So, I'm cool with it. I have quite a few copies. If you'd like a signed one to keep or simply to resell, if not read, at cost, write me, you'll find a way. And I'll send one out. Busier than shite these days, but loving, clever pun, Dr. C? My fans and foes, and Claudia's toes, you'll see what I mean. So read on. Right on. Onward bound, and always be on fire by default. Jonathan Harnish News August 16, 2014 Abel Nab's author interview with Harnish Jonathan Harnish is a legend in the world of mental health education and advocacy and a Twitter phenomenon with over 100,000 or so followers. Ian Abel explains at Queensland Mental Health. He is someone I have gotten to know really well in the Twitter sphere. When I found out he was launching a new book, I had to get in touch and find out more about it. Nabil is a prominent mental health advocate in Australia. His eagerness to grill Harnish, a fellow advocate for schizoaffective disorder sufferers, is palpable. Harnish's completion of his first novel has caused chatter on the Bush Telegraph, but Nabil was the first from down under to nab an interview with the author. Nabil's involvement with the issues surrounding mental illness began when his wife was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. Harnish has personal experience with the condition, and as an author with schizophrenia, he is ideally suited to produce an illuminating study of the disorder. When people face situations that are difficult, challenging, or frightening, it is said that they put on a brave face to get through them. Ben Schreiber, Harnish's protagonist, went one step further when faced with obstacles in his life and put on a whole other person. Georgie Gus was Ben's braver champion. However, 
As always happens in cases of schizophrenia, this alter ego put more effort into asserting his identity than to fighting in Ben's corner. Georgie is an invisible friend who never went away, eventually asserting himself as an independent being, albeit one who occupies Ben's body. It has to be noted that, although Ben has a tendency to hide, he too asserts his right to his identity. He did not fade away and assume the name and attitude of George Gust. This resulted in these two separate men living parallel lives in the same physical existence. Although the novel is a work of fiction, Harnish admits that much of the book stands as a written account of his own experiences. Written as transgressive fiction, this story is now shedding light on the experiences of schizophrenics in a language that the non-sufferer can understand. The novel's entertaining and accessible style makes it a must-read for anyone interested in psychiatric thrillers and for those Australians who would like to learn more about dissociative disorders. Harnish is a sufferer of a comorbid schizoaffective spectrum condition, and this was the inspiration for the novel's plot. He has explored the insights brought to him by his condition to become an accomplished mental health advocate, film and TV producer, musician, and visual artist. Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, an interview with the author Hi, Jonathan, Ian Nabble from Queensland Mental Health, at ULDMH on Twitter here. How are you? Jonathan Harnish, crazy busy, as usual, promoting my book, Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, ULDMH. I have a few questions for you. J.H., sure, go ahead, shoot away. QLDMH, we have been communicating and chatting on Twitter for a while now. However, for those who don't know who Jonathan Harnish is, can you provide some background about yourself? J.H., who am I? Ah, the big question. I have no idea. I'm a complete hermit. I hear from most that I'm too intense. And yet, when I fight the agoraphobia, in public I turn into a social butterfly. Charming and funny, often with a warped sense of humor. I consider myself just one down-to-earth guy, just a person like anyone else. Maybe a little different, that's all. I'm a hopeless romantic with a dirty mind. I laugh. I laugh because I can't think of anyone I've ever known who hasn't told me that I am the most interesting person they have ever met. Then the Dasikri spokesman snagged that spot, so, just for laughs, I finally bought a t-shirt that says, the second most interesting man in the world. I'm a prankster who admits he can dish it but not take it. And I'm often very childlike, good with kids and animals, temple grand in style with our horses for example, and I speak baby talk, as I call it, when with children. I get along with animals and children the best. People frighten me. Real people do, for that matter, and I detail a great deal of this in my story. I often dissociate to rid myself of bad memories and delusional thinking, and yet I test high for metacognition. So, I am often very aware of my illness and symptoms, the main character in Ali biography, Georgie Gust, is actually based on my own alter ego, as I call him, though his real name is not Georgie. His real name I keep private. I feel like an open book. 
sometimes to a fault, so I took the liberty and gratification of fictionalizing my story, and with good reason. My mind often frightens me, too. It's all a balancing act. I always keep busy with a project, usually artistic, and my moods, interests, and states of mind change at the drop of a hat. I rapid cycle around 30 times a day, and I'm an insomniac. But it fuels my writing a great deal. Hueldmh, you have a really interesting and challenging history, and your schizophrenia is something you have learned to manage and continue to live with every day. What inspired you? What motivated you to write a book? And what were you hoping to achieve out of it? J.H. I've been writing all my life. In 2006, I had an erotic short story published in an anthology called Saxius Souls, Erotic Stories About Feet and Shoes. Writing erotica was easy and fun, and short. A great deal of my schizophrenic experiences, I find, are sexual by nature. I have several friends who have the same illness as me who have said the same about their schizoaffective disorder manifesting itself with sexually based thinking and delusions. I know everybody is different, but I find the subject of sex fascinating. I've even studied the subject a great deal. In literature, it allows me to strip down the characters naked, literally, and dive right down into their core. I think that's where my talent might take a bow in my book. After the pedicure story, my therapist suggested I should keep writing, so having written another short story of the same genre, and straight away it was published, I felt I was onto something. So, I kept writing such stories along with my diary, memo notes, screenplays, and many other artistic works, but I kept a great deal of them for myself, realizing, at that point, that I could write a book. And so I put a great deal of my stories together, rooted from that first story, easy steps to a perfect pedicure, and I kept going, as jarring as everything read at the time. I kept putting pieces together until I had several thousand pages of writing in prose, compiled them, and added a through line or two. Everything else I was writing professionally I felt was stolen from me by Hollywood. It's a brutal industry, which I soon left. Then, in 2006, I met my wife, who was actually one of my editors based in New Mexico while I was in Los Angeles. I relocated to New Mexico and got married in 2008. Here in New Mexico, I made a couple movies for TV as writer and producer. On the bus and wax, both of the storylines in these particular films I was able to incorporate into my Ali biography. I filmed a few smaller pieces short films, and a few documentaries. One, in particular, was a documentation of my break with reality from 2009 to 2010, called, I Am Jonathan. It took me about a year to recover from my psychosis with proper treatment, therapy, and medication. The year 2012 simply flew by, and in 2013, I decided to head back to the book. I had narrowed my writing down to six separate but eerily similar books intended for a series of six separate but similar pieces. I later decided to publish them all together as one significant novel. I invented my own way, a style to creatively craft the parallels and connections between the original six stories in order to follow my desire to write one long epic, 
a true psychiatric thriller, my masterpiece, and perhaps my legacy. And it worked as a whole, in one masterpiece, as I saw it myself. I sigh, grin, and say it with a wink because I am proud. I allow myself to be proud of my work. The final product is entitled, Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography. It was then, in 2013, that I put all the pieces together, wrote the book, and sent it out to several editors. I was a note chaser, correcting everyone's notes until it became overwhelming. I even went as far as incorporating editors' notes within the prose, and it worked, truly breaking the conventional rules of writing. And again, it seemed to really work. So, if this makes sense chronologically, I wrote the majority of the material that I gathered for the 2014 release of Ali Biography in 2006 but really dug into putting the 800-some-odd pages together in 2013, removing what I could. And I was done. It was done. And I didn't look back, too much. Onward bound. I put the word out without any unrealistic expectations. Hueldmh. I'm pretty sure that very few of my readers have ever started, let alone finished, writing a book. I know from people I speak to in my own bucket list, which includes writing a book, that many people want to or dream of writing one but think it will be too difficult. So, for those people, what were the biggest challenges you faced while you were writing it? And how did you overcome these challenges? J.H. Putting the scraps and scribbles of wordplay together to make a coherent story, a Lee biography, from all the written material that was otherwise scattered, jarring, and out of place, I put a real puzzle together, and I think I did well. I finally just put it out with excellent help from Etika Press in the UK, where a great deal of my audience is. And I had what I wanted, my masterpiece off of my bucket list, and now it is. Hueldmh. How would you describe the writing process and then the never-ending editing? J.H. I wrote only when symptomatic and sleep-deprived. Call it crazy. I do. And I love every minute of it. Hueldmh. After all the hard work, and the enormous amount of time and energy it takes to write a book, how do you feel about the finished product? J.H. I have tremendous difficulty reading. In the 6th grade, I was at a 12th grade reading level. By 12th grade, 6th form, I was at a 6th grade reading level. So, I haven't read back my book. I just wrote it and write. I often don't read back what I write or watch my own movies or TV shows. For example, I just do them and am done with them. Onward bound always. Hueldmh. Who have you written the book for? Who is your perfect reader and why? J.H. Formally, its target audience is adult readers who enjoy the transgressive style that best depicts the intricacies of a mentally ill mind. I had thought about adult readers who enjoy transgressive fiction like Fight Club and other works, until many who had read my book prior to publishing suggested that its audience was much larger, medical people included. Hueldmh. I notice the incredible buzz on Twitter and Facebook about your book. Is that an accident, or did you come up with a pre and post release media campaign? How did you manage to create the buzz around the book launch? JH. 
I have quite a following on Twitter, and I love it. It helps me narrow my thoughts down to 140 characters. I actually began thinking in tweets, though I feel pressure to speak or even write. For that matter, I, too much and inconsistently, change from subject to subject at the drop of a hat. Writing and rewriting helps me put that part of me under control given my flighty ideas, which are symptomatic of my illness of schizoaffective disorder, and I tend to talk too much. Basically, my executive order thinking is in deficit, and one way I have coped with this has been writing screenplays because I'm trained in screenwriting and it is very structured. I did actually write a great deal of the initial drafts of Ali biography in screenplay format. It kept everything in place. And rule number one for me is threefold. No outline, no censor, and writers write, so just keep writing. If I don't, I feel like I might die. It's kind of like that. My definition of an artist, thoughts trail off. I laugh. One day, I took an hour and put up a press release in the US to fight fears of possible success. It was just for fun, as with everything I do. Originally, in one month, I reached 5,000 people, whom I allowed to download Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography off the internet because I believed I wasn't writing Harry Potter but more of a book for a limited audience. I was proved wrong when I received a great deal of feedback in the month I had published online for free, and so a month later, I went ahead and released it in association with the publisher on Amazon and elsewhere, taking others' advice, which is rare. To sell it. Every now and then, I tend to repost the novel as a free download online without notice. I talk about my values in my independent film online, called, Being a Mentally Ill Artist, and I believe art should be free. They're my thoughts, so I allowed for both. The free version online every now and then and the paid version, I have a hard time making up my mind, truth be told, with any decision I might make, for that matter. A lot of people with schizophrenia, for example, have financial difficulty, and so I'm still thinking about it all. But I plan to see how I fare as a professional writer at last. I find less stress is better. Most things cause me stress. Even this interview. But I am fueled by stress, mostly in my art. Pretty strange if you ask me. Everything's a paradox, a dichotomy and a metaphor in my little world, my literary playground. QLDMH, so, in summary, looking back at what it has taken for you to write the book, would you do it again? Why? JH, sure. Why not? I may decide to publish another one, at least traditionally. It might be a book I've already written but is still incomplete, or it will likely be brand new. We'll see. I never know what comes next. I'm rolling with the flow. It's rather zen, and it works. I have a guest house of file cabinets and hard drives in storage with writings from every single day since age 5, and 34 books of the Ali biography story, or series, in the vault. I will get to them, but I'll work on whatever I feel is right at the time. I'm pretty free-ended. I just finally allowed myself to be assertive and proactive about creative control. And once that was done, I released Jonathan Harnish, 
and Ali biography and kept writing, preparing for my next novel. I noticed I could do a great deal more than I ever thought I could just with this one book. It was indeed a long and tedious project. I learned a great deal, so sure, I'll do it again. I'll just be upfront about it, so prepare. The second one is often no match for the first, but I always keep in mind a negative review is perfectly fine. I am okay with anything, otherwise, I will deal with it. If I figured out how to survive after my last psychotic break, I believe I am capable of much more. Things get clear overall. Writing and publishing this novel was like boot camp. I feel prepared for more, always keeping busy. As long as I own it, it's mine. It can't be stolen like when my condition was much worse. I was prone to be taken advantage of, and I surely was. I lost everything and every penny. And somehow, I made it back all right. Life itself is such a learning experience and a wild ride. Many days are difficult, but I always seem to bounce back. I think that goes for anyone. Schizophrenia, or, more precisely, schizoaffective disorder, takes my experiences to a different degree. Everything seems askew, and that fascinates me. It feels like a perpetual LSD trip, and that is what I draw upon in the transgressive style in which I write. It's bigger than life and I think that makes for great storytelling. QLDMH. And to finish off, if you had one takeaway that the people reading your book could have, what would it be? JH. One word, hope. Plain and simple. Have hope, even if you do not know what you are hoping for or want or in whatever place you are. For me, it's easy, like a mantra, just hope. It's always my answer for anything I do or feel or say. Keep the hope and faith alive and everything will be okay, even if whatever it is comes back again. Things change. I like change. Embrace the moment. It's all we have. QLDMH. Thanks for taking the time to respond. I'm sure that, between us, we can come up with a super-focused and targeted blog post that will be successful in driving traffic for you. www.queenslandmentalhealth.com At Jwarnish Jonathan Harnish, author of Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, second alibi, The Banality of Life, and Sex, Drugs, and Schizophrenia June 25, 2014 Personal Experience Illuminate Schizophrenia Harnish's sense of the inner machinations of human experience spring into life through the text, writes one reviewer. An almost ritualized sojourn, much like the classic hero's journey, takes place before the reader's eyes and leads to insights both sanguine and sometimes disturbing. True to the modern form of literature, Harnish uses all tools available to catch the reader in a spider's web of story while exposing humanity's own false prophets. Truly a great read. Dissociative disorders have become well-known themes in literature since the release of Sybil in 1973. The public has become familiar with the syndrome of alternative personalities and the issues that arise when some alters choose to overcome their situation by handing over their being to another person. Jonathan Harnish introduces the reader to Georgie Gust, the friend, contact, and alter ego of Ben Schreiber. Georgie is real, 
and Ben can see him. However, this is but one string in Harnish's bow. The average reader may know that the hosts of multiple altars are unaware of their existence, although the various altars know intimately of the host's life and often speak disparagingly of the original identity's existence. This is not the case with Georgie. Two personalities sharing the same body usually succumb to jealousy and conflict. The introduction of a romantic interest into the two men's lives could be expected to result in a schism. Although the alluring Claudia attracts both men, Ben is content to thrill in the experiences that Georgie enjoys from his sexual contact with Claudia. Practitioners and students of psychiatry will find this exploration of schizoaffective disorder a fascinating insight into the mental conflicts and defense mechanisms of sufferers of the condition and the lay reader will enjoy the plot twists of this psychiatric thriller. The premise of the novel gives rise to a transgressive style, which is most familiarly expressed in the works of Jean Genet. However, readers that find Genet difficult to follow will find a more palatable example of this genre in Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography. The novel is an inspirational and brilliant tearjerker arising from the genius of an intricate, mentally ill mind. Jonathan Harnish suffers from schizoaffective disorder and associated comorbidities, which serve as the inspiration for his novel. Harnish has exploited the insights brought to him by his condition to become an accomplished mental health advocate, film, and TV producer, musician, and visual artist. PR Web July 1, 2014 Schizophrenic author Harnish breaks ground in Ali biography, People Frighten Me. Real people do, for that matter, and I detail a great deal of this in my story. I often dissociate to rid myself of bad memories and delusional thinking, and yet, I test high for metacognition, declared Harnish in a recent interview. My mind often frightens me, too. It's all a balancing act. He explains. In a few sentences, Harnish illustrates, with his personal experience, the fascinating irony of dissociative disorders like schizophrenia. He wants to hide but ends up hiding behind himself. The average person on the street may wonder what Harnish is talking about in this quote and another statements he makes about his book. He is talking about his own experiences with schizoaffective disorder. Harnish's struggle with his condition is interlinked with the incomprehension of non-sufferers, and this provokes him to explain his reality. He has explored a range of media, including film, music, and now the written word, to help the general public understand exactly what it feels like to suffer from schizophrenia. By fictionalizing the day-to-day -day meetings of multiple personalities, he is illuminating a corner of psychiatry that few understand. As an author with schizophrenia, Harnish is ideally placed to share the unusual perception commonly defined as mental illness. Harnish is not dealing with an altered reality but a double reality, and his main characters, Ben and Georgie, perfectly illustrate how two lives can share the same body. Both Ben and Georgie are real people, but Ben is the only one of the two who has a birth certificate. It could be said, however, that Georgie is the only one who has a life. Ben exists on paper but would rather hide away. Georgie exists on the streets and in bars. He is the outspoken one, and Ben watches his successes from the shadows, 
Both men find themselves attracted to Claudia, Ben's luring neighbor, but only Georgie has the confidence to approach her. The third wheel angst of Ben in this relationship forms the main plot of the novel. Harnish formed this groundbreaking novel as transgressive fiction. This is a genre that is probably most commonly encountered in the works of Jean Genet. However, you do not need a degree in literature to understand the plot because Harnish sheds light on it in order to reach out to the general public. The novel is not, therefore, a difficult read. The entertaining and accessible style of the novel has created a buzz around Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography. Jonathan Harnish is a sufferer of cummerbit schizoaffective spectrum condition, and this is the inspiration for the plot of his novel. Harnish has exploited the insights brought to him by his condition to become an accomplished mental health advocate, film, and TV producer, musician, and visual artist. PR Web UK. Back to the book, prefatory note I open my eyes, and the room is on fire. Completely unconcerned, I, Ben, watch the fire grow larger and larger, then shrink and die out, revealing Georgie Gust, my alter ego, sitting on a matching mound of dirty clothes. I light a cigarette. I thought you quit, says Georgie. My nurse and doctor watch me, shaking their heads in disapproval. Kelly doesn't know about my obsession with Claudia Nesbitt, or, rather, Georgie's obsession with her. I haven't told her much about the spells that haunt me, either. I haven't mentioned a lot of things to her. I haven't mentioned how much I struggle to write anything original that comes from the heart. Or that all I hear is the chaos of the devil and the angels and the voice of Georgie dictating my every word and action. That I'm nothing but a trust fund baby with an addiction problem, a constellation of lurid sexual fetishes that shrink into a petrified silence in the presence of any actual women, and a half dozen psychiatric diagnoses ranging from Tourette syndrome to schizoaffective disorder. Kelly doesn't know that I was taken into police custody for trying to rob a bank with nothing but a threateningly brandished cell phone and a reference to 9-11. That my father pulled some strings that landed me in rehab rather than prison. However, as part of one of the conditions of my release, that I must begin therapy with a court-appointed psychologist, Dr. C. I haven't really talked much about it. As I began to work in therapy, the issue that came into focus was that of Georgie, my alter ego, whom I had conceived as living a parallel life to mine that mirrors and channels my own self-aware, yet foreign, emotional highs and lows. With Dr. C's help and encouragement in my own intelligence and determination, well, some determination and some pure laziness, I might peel away the layers of Georgie's existence, so that I might find the determination to hand over to Kelly all that I've kept inside, so she won't leave me, so that I can self-actualize and get over Claudia, and be honest with that bitch, with Kelly, and with myself to meander out of some of the confusion. After all, sobriety has not cleared up all the fogginess, it seems to have added to it, seems to have created fucking stockpiles of it. And as the pieces of my existence have begun to emerge, they've done so with an extremely uncomfortable, agitating, transgressive, and self-loathing clarity. The clarity is what's frightening me more than anything. In fact, 
I'm scared to fucking death of all this clarity. I want out of the labels. I don't want my whole life crammed into a single word. A story. I want to find something else, unknowable, some place to be that's not on the map. A real adventure. A sphinx. A mystery. A blank. Unknown. Undefined. Chuck Palahniuk. Dr. C's introduction, Dear Ben, what if you had such severe schizophrenia that your life was just one hallucination after another? And what if people kept trying to drag you back out of those hallucinations to prove that you weren't living in reality and that reality was nothing more than a psych hospital? Would you go? Would you make that leap back into reality, leave such a vivid life for ceramic walls and metal gurneys? Dr. C. Dear Diary, not everything has to be interpreted literally, often, a metaphorical interpretation is far more relevant and insightful, even if it's just some fictional nonsense. Introductory Clause, Subject, Perthesia and Parenthetical Pet Peeves. I sense a tingling, a fucking burning, and a prickling of Claudia's character defects, prickling my skin, by reason of her particular parenthetical pet peeves. This continuous tingling and numbness in my face and the back of my head, is what I feel. Therefore, it must not be unreal, nor is there any other reason so remarkable as to elicit disbelief. Claudia's parenthetical pet peeves are real and, therefore, worthy of a name. Claudia Nesbitt, no less than what is stated, as insubstantial as her being, but my dream and inside my dream. Example. Claudia especially hates when people add an E to a name ending in Y. Also, contrived spellings of common names. Dear Diary, history repeats itself. So does the present. Obsession is a state of mind, so make it good. The night is quiet and still now, and at the end, once I encountered all these people, Claudia, Heidi, Kelly, Georgie, myself, the fantasies of everybody, every place, and everything, and myself, they continued on. They became tragic obsessions. Let's get the facts straight up front, to avoid any confusion later. Georgie is an alter ego. I have several of them. It's a means of leaving some room in my experience to avoid growing entirely sick of myself. I sit in this room, in this house, because I've lost myself. I used to be alright. Back when I had a concrete hold on my place in this world or, at least, on the people who used to make up my life. I've gone downhill, rolling down with the light, feathery tumbleweed in our backyard. It's disgusting in here, as mist and smoke linger throughout this claustrophobic bachelor pad. They say Ben's 30 now and that he's a split personality. Better put, a double personality. Lacking true identity, lacking any sense of self. I don't agree. I am Ben. They say a lot. The voices and hallucinations. They say Ben's skinny because he smokes crack. He's alone. He's me. He's in this living room. The landline rings all the time, often quite a few times, and they tell me to pick up, so I do. Dear Diary, undoubtedly, 
We are all capable of doing something for 24 hours that would otherwise overwhelm us if we had to keep it up for a lifetime. We know this because we can breathe, can we not? Smoke break. To the reader, looking back looking back on it now, now that the words that come later can drain away most of the sentiment, there's a nostalgia that still lingers at the top of the Eiffel Tower, when those kids, three girls and two boys, defined who I was, without the slightest hint of bias or negativity. It was the first time in my life, the first time of my life. I was on a school trip in Paris with the same kids who would taunt me and bully me back in New York. And although I had forgiven them, even loved them to an extent, there was so much going on at home, and in my head, and in my body, that I couldn't tell the difference between what was good and what was bad, what was appropriate and what was not. Kids can be brutal. They say that those in the losers clubs in school will usually show up at the reunions, years later, as glittering icons, while the popular kids turn to waste. I never went to any of the reunions. I took a left turn by not going with my class. I got permission from the French teacher who was in charge of us to hang out with another group of kids from another junior high school. They were also in Paris from Nassau County, and, although I was away from my own crowd of popular kids, that particular crowd of waste, my new group of friends and I took off by metro that night after dinner. We climbed most of the Eiffel Tower, as it was still open to tourists, even at that late hour. As we gazed over the city lights, the brisk wind blowing hard, one of the kids, Wesley, who couldn't have been over 12, all wrapped up in his ski jacket, his short, curly hair frozen, unaffected by the winds, smiled innocently at me, and as if it was his second nature, he said coolly, You seem pretty normal to me, Ben. Hey, you're one of us and all the others bantered among themselves in agreement. I took a group photo of my new best friends, all of us arm in arm, holding on in the chill air and holding on to the memory of being so free, without supervision. Looking back on everything now, the world, the universe never looked as beautiful to me as it did during that cool breezy night on top of the world, where I was with my friends and nobody knew just how invincible we really were. Parenthetical pet peeve, the fancier the hairdo, the harder the wind will be blowing. I haven't a clue what happened on the walk back to the hotel and, by the next day, when Wesley and his buddies vacation meant they'd be back in the States by sundown, I had forgotten about it. I mean, I'd forgotten about everything. My introduction, and I went back to the in-crowd. They did what they did without me for the rest of the trip mostly drinking French beer from the mini-bar in the Hotel Chateau Martin. I find that the more I think about all that I can remember from that particular night out with the group from Paris, the more I constantly wonder if, by now, they've grown up. Or, have they just stayed the same, like in the picture I still have of them? It's under my bed, in an old shoebox, so that I can stay the same, somewhere, somehow, way deep down inside. Dear Diary, there are times I'll struggle and tussle with my inner demons. Other times we'll simply cuddle and snuggle together. It's a relationship that has both feelings of love and hate. 
there is a bond between us that remains ever strong, perhaps based on the myth or truth of general inherent goodness or purely due to all the variants of myself and any beast or such demons, real or unreal. My inner demons are within me, and oftentimes they end up being the ones who save me. I don't have such a need to be saved from my inner demons per se. To suddenly discontinue, dissolving and dissociating, breaking for a fairly ubiquitous cigarette, but to exist nowhere and do nothing, only like the fog and itty bitty bugs, to exterminate all ambiguous thoughts for a moment. Please allow me to introduce my recently completed novel, Jonathan Harnish, an elite biography, a fictional memoir based on my own experience of dealing with schizoaffective disorder and post-traumatic stress. No, Ben. What I'm asking is, are you the vehicle, and Georgie rides around in you? That is why Ben's the driver, right? As its title suggests, Jonathan Harnish, an elite biography is actually based on my own experiences as a person diagnosed with a cummerbit schizoaffective spectrum condition. Ben and Georgie and Claudia were all part of my past, part of what has led to my becoming a writer. Ali Biography represents my first manuscript of appreciable length. Its target audience is adult readers who enjoy the transgressive style that best depicts the intricacies of a mentally ill mind. Jonathan Harnish, an Ali Biography weighs in at roughly 250,000 words and is fully complete. How simple it is to see that we can only be happy now and that there will never be a time when it is not now. Would I trade my cummerbit schizoaffective spectrum condition? No way. Never. Too many gifts, like Georgie Gust and Claudia Nesbitt, come along with it. Synopsis of Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography Ben Schreiber has Tourette syndrome, which causes him to display uncontrollable tics and hops, and to stutter and swear inappropriately. Bullied through his school years, he can never form strong friendships, especially with women. In his late twenties, he plunges into a downward spiral of drug and alcohol abuse, which culminates in an attempted bank robbery. After he is arrested, his psychiatrist, Dr. C, quickly recognizes Ben's affliction as much more than Tourette's. Inside Ben's head lives Georgie Gust, Ben's alter ego. Georgie is obsessed with his manipulative but extremely sexual next-door neighbor, Claudia Nesbitt. Ben is desperately searching for the unconditional love he never received as a boy. He finds it easier to retreat into his mind to share Georgie's sick obsession with cruel and abusive Claudia than to deal with his real issues. It is up to Dr. C to help Ben face the buried terrors of his childhood so that he can finally let go of Georgie and reduce him to the literary character that the writer Ben wants him to be. Book 2 of Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, Freak, explores Ben's days at Wakefield. School is too traumatic, so Ben lets Georgie attend and take the abuse. The book explores Georgie's relationship with the original Claudia Nesbitt, the girlfriend of the jock Ozer, who tormented Georgie mercilessly. Claudia befriends Georgie and loves him for who he is. The other good part of Wakefield is Heidi Birilow's philosophy class, in which Georgie excels. Heidi encourages him to write an essay for the prestigious Winterborn Scholarship. Georgie discovers alcohol and is constantly hungover. 
he is arrested for drunkenness and bailed out by Heidi, who keeps encouraging him. George wins the Winterborn Prize but loses Claudia to suicide. Book 3 of Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, Porcelain Utopia, explores Dr. C's interactions with Georgie and Ben. She thinks that dredging up Ben's past will somehow fix his present. Ben describes what went down at the holdup with the cell phone bomb. He describes being booked into the psychiatric ward. Ben develops a strong obsession with Claudia Heidi. Ben describes his first sexual encounters at age 10 in the Boy Scout treehouse. Ben describes some of his mother's abuse and neglect of him as a child. Dr. C points out that Georgie looks more like Ben's mother than Ben does. Ben is haunted by a demon that resembles his mother. He remembers being sexually assaulted by his mother at age 11. Book 4 of Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, The Oxygen Tank, shows Georgie back in his morning routine of breaking coffee cups, falling in the shower, and of course, meeting Claudia for the first time. Georgie's house grows in size and grandeur with every dream. Claudia has an affair with Sir Tony Haldale and is caught by Georgie. Claudia is hit by a car and paralyzed. She then drowns when Georgie takes her boogie boarding on his boat. Georgie tries to kill himself. Ben is realizing that everyone is crazy in some way, not just him. Book 5 of the groundbreaking bestseller Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, Glad You're Not Me, takes the act of transgression to another level. Harnish, the author himself, discovers he has been fictionalized as a character in an old friend's chapbook, and decides to come out of the woodwork as a real person, the mentally ill artist, in this explicit transgressive reaction chapbook. Book 6 of Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, of crime and passion, explores romantic love through the story of John Marshall, who is taught by a prostitute that one can get everything one wants through seduction. John wants glory and personal prestige, and vows to get it by obtaining lowly positions in upper-class homes and then seducing the one woman in the household who has the most influence. He begins with Maribel Roman and ends with Claudia Sinclair. He discovers that seduction is indeed very powerful, but you must never actually fall in love. About Jonathan Harnish, author, publisher envision a blend of a mentally ill mind with unsurpassed resiliency and fiery intellect and your result would be the brilliant Jonathan W. Harnish. An all-around artist, Jonathan writes fiction and screenplays, sketches, imagines, and creates. His most recent artistic endeavor is developing a music, a newfound passion with visible results already in the making. Produced filmmaker and published erotic author, Jonathan holds a myriad of accolades, and his works captivate the attention of those who experience it. Manitone scripts with parallel lives, masochistic tendencies and sexual escapades, and disturbing clarities embellished with addiction, fetish, lust, and love are just a taste of themes found in Jonathan's transgressive literature. Conversely, his award-winning films capture the ironies of life, love, self-acceptance, tragedy, and fantasy. Jonathan's art evokes laughter and shock, elation and sadness, but overall forces you to step back and question your own version of reality. Scripts, screenplays, 
and schizophrenia are the defining factors of Jonathan's life in reality, but surface labels are often incomplete. Jonathan is diagnosed with several mental illnesses, from schizoaffective disorder to Tourette's syndrome, playfully, he dubs himself the king of mental illness. Despite daily symptomatic struggles and thoughts, Jonathan radiates an authentic, effervescent, and loving spirit. His resiliency emanates from the greatest lesson he's learned, laughter. His diagnoses and life experiences encourage him to laugh at reality as others see it. Wildly eccentric, open-minded, passionate, and driven, Jonathan has a feral imagination. His inherent traits transpose to his art, making his works some of the most original and thought-provoking of the modern day. Jonathan is an alumnus of Choate Rosemary Hall. Subsequently, he attended NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, where he studied film production and screenwriting under Gary Winnick and David Irving. During his studies at NYU, he held internships under renowned producers Stephen Haft and Ismael Merchant. He is best known for his short films On the Bus and Wax, both of which boast countless awards, including five indie film awards, three accolade awards, and winner of the Best Short Film and the Audience Award in the New York International Independent Film and Video Festival, to name a few. Despite his impressive formal education and awarded honors, Jonathan is your normal, down-to-earth guy. Meditation, Duran Duran, Vivid Colors, Patrick Nagel Prince, and rearranging furniture are some of his favorite things. Vices include cigarettes, Diet Coke, inappropriate swearing, and sausage and green chili pizza. He enjoys irony, planned spontaneity, redefining himself, and change. Jonathan lives with his beautiful wife, Maureen on Fat Man Farms in the unique, desert village of Corrales, New Mexico. Prefatory note the reader is introduced to Ben Schreiber and his alter ego Georgie Gust, who is obsessed with Claudia Nesbitt. Ben indicates that he has not told his wife Kelly about Georgie, Claudia, or that he is nothing but a trust fund baby with an addiction problem and a constellation of lurid sexual fetishes that shrink into petrified silence in the presence of any actual women and a half dozen psychiatric diagnoses ranging from Tourette's syndrome to schizoaffective disorder. He has been arrested for trying to rob a bank by brandishing a cell phone and referring to the September 11th terrorist attacks. He now must undergo psychotherapy with his court-appointed psychologist, Dr. C. He hopes to come to a point in his therapy where he can be honest about everything with Kelly, but he knows the journey there will be terrifying. Dr. C's introduction drive C raises the possibility to Ben that everything he experiences is just a series of hallucinations and that his reality is actually the inside of a psychiatric hospital. She suggests that Ben has a choice, leave the vivid world of his hallucinations or re-enter the sterile, ceramic world of the hospital. Introductory Clause, Subject, Perthesia and Parenthetical Pet Peeves Ben introduces this pet peeves, inserted in parentheses, thus, parenthetical. He says he used to be, all right, but now, at age 30, he is classified as a double personality, lacking any sense of his own self. He disagrees. He is self-aware. To the reader, looking back. 
then recalls being defined by fellow school children on a trip to the Eiffel Tower as normal and one of them. He clings to that memory so that he can stay normal somewhere within himself. Book 1 1. Prologue Georgie's Big Break Georgie Gus discusses his release from the psychiatric hospital with Dr. Abrams, claiming all his voices are gone, leaving only his Tourette's symptoms, which are not committable. Dr. Abrams says he has been in touch with Georgie's therapist and wants to keep him at the hospital. Besides, with Georgie's parents' money, Georgie is a big-ticket item for the hospital. Georgie has a vision of killing Dr. Abrams violently and driving off in his car. Dr. Abrams says he will get Georgie's release paperwork together. Zero. Georgie Gus takes a stand. Georgie thinks about Claudia, the woman he loves and hates, his sex goddess and creepy nemesis. Georgie hangs himself to end his obsessive thoughts of Claudia. Zero. Proof you can go home again. Georgie returns to his country home. Ben is his driver. Georgie is a brand new man with no Tourette's tics. Margaret, his only friend, who reminds them of their trip to meet the Dalai Lama, visits him. Margaret had found Georgie when he tried to kill himself and wants to know why he did it. Georgie describes growing up with Tourette's and being sexually abused as an infant by a nanny. Margaret suggests that maybe Georgie should try to find his old nanny, to try to get closure from the abuse. Zero. Claudia moves in, part one. Georgie meets Claudia, who is his 40-year-old next-door neighbor. She and her long toes with flaking pink nail polish intoxicate him. Georgie is still a new man who has met the Dalai Lama. Georgie goes grocery shopping and encounters Margaret again, who reminds him to hunt down his nanny. Claudia has left him a note when he returns. The note refers to her cooling affection for him. Georgie wonders if they have met in another lifetime. He gives a completely naked Claudia a pedicure and foot massage in her bathroom and is sexually aroused by her feet. She gratifies him by rubbing his genitals with her feet. He awakens in Claudia's bathroom and abandons the happy self-sufficient Georgie that met the Dalai Lama. All he wants is Claudia in the joy-hate-love-torture sex she promises. He longs for a never-ending orgasm. She is a world on fire and Georgie needs that. He obsessively watches her from his house, using binoculars to focus on her toes. He runs into Margaret at the grocery store again. He drops his morning coffee, falls in the shower, makes new coffee in a lineup of ten espresso cups, wanders through his gloomy house, and rechecks his grocery list of cigarettes. He thinks he has pushed Claudia out of the picture and he is back to being the self-sufficient Georgie again. Zero. Emptying his pockets Ben drives Georgie to an orgy held in a palatial mansion where Georgie completely indulges his foot fetish with a woman who resembles Claudia but has a mouth scar that makes her grimace rather than smile. He then crawls around on salt grains. The pain feels great. Ben asks why he hurt himself. Georgie tells Ben about the nanny that abused him, to explain his craziness. Georgie tells Ben he is seeing Claudia. Georgie returns to his house, but there is no message from Claudia and her house is empty. He stares at her house for days. He runs into Margaret again, 
who suggests they get together. He decides he will pretend he's not home if she shows up. Zero. Making a count with Dr. C. Drive C. asks Ben who Margaret and Claudia really are in his, Ben's, world. Ben says they don't even exist in his world. She asks him what he gets out of knowing Georgie. Ben tells her that Georgie just appeared one day. He was Georgie and Georgie was Ben. Zero. Claudia goes deep. Claudia returns to her house. She tells Georgie she was fired from her job as a paramedic for having sex with her boss Greg and his wife Sarah. Georgie agrees to pay her for sex since she is out of a job and he needs someone like her. Zero. Ah. What a comfy web they weave. Claudia torments and tortures Georgie by handcuffing him, gagging him with a feather duster, and coating him with wax, then agonizingly removing the wax. He is horrified and in pain, but at the same time, he feels peaceful and detached from himself. Claudia tires of the game and leaves him still bound and wax-covered. He passes out, coughing on the feather duster, then awakens to find himself free of the wax, duster, and handcuffs. Claudia has disappeared again and Georgie resumes stalking her house, watching for her. He fears he has lost her, and that causes him pain that gives him a sense of peace. Claudia returns and increases his pain by not visiting him. Georgie camps out in front of a window to watch for her constantly. His fear of losing her gives him bliss. Claudia pounds on his door, then becomes Ben's mother pounding on his childhood door. Claudia finds Georgie emaciated and almost dead and takes him to a hospital. He tells the hospital staff to release him, that Claudia is a paramedic and will take care of him. They return to Georgie's house, where she again tortures him, giving the pain he so desires and also threatening him with a pregnancy. The fear of Claudia not caring gives him the feeling of endless orgasm he is searching for. Zero. Practice makes perfect Claudia again disappears. Georgie heads for the grocery store and Claudia waits for him, knowing he needs cigarettes. She promises to call the next day, but doesn't. Georgie lines up and drinks his ten cups of espresso waiting for her. He goes to Claudia's house. The avoidance torture is too much. All he wants is the unadulterated orgasm again. Claudia is frying a sandwich and invites Georgie to sit on the pan for pain. He does, and sets his pants on fire, and then the whole house. Georgie again finds the everlasting orgasm while trying to put out the fire with his coom. Georgie, having destroyed Claudia's house, now invites her to live with him. Zero. Claudia moves in, part two. Georgie decides that having Claudia move in is the best, and the worst, thing that could happen to him. She cannot torture him with her absence, but now she can physically torture him constantly. He gets familiar with all of her physical idiosyncrasies, which is too much to know, but he also gets to torture her a bit, her pain causing him pain and therefore bliss. Claudia finds nothing but drudgery but has nowhere else to go and no money except what Georgie pays her. She finds new ways to torture Georgie, by making him think he is in a coffin and dying. He awakens in his own bed, not knowing if it was a dream or whether Claudia had let him go. He no longer knows what is real and what isn't. His mother invites them to dinner. Zero. 
dinner with Augustus. Georgie and Claudia have dinner with Georgie's parents. Claudia intends to torture Georgie with their disapproval and disgust with him. Having dinner with them is torture for Georgie. Zero. The fruits of his labor Georgie awakens in the street, naked, amid a crowd of people. Claudia is gone. He tries several different stores, asking to use a phone. He calls Ben, who drives him home. Claudia has hypnotized him and left him in the street, as a new form of torture, and Georgie has no way of stopping her from doing it again. The fear of her power over him is new torture, and new bliss. Margaret checks in on Georgie, having heard he was out naked on the streets. Claudia drives Margaret off, leaving Georgie without his old friend. Zero. It's all in a day's work Claudia and Georgie go out on a real date, which starts out full of happiness for them both. Georgie unconsciously flirts with the waitress. Claudia is furious and leaves without him. Claudia leaves a note for Georgie saying their relationship is over. He finds her in the bathroom in a pool of blood, but that is just a dream, which morphs into a memory of jealousy and Claudia's house fire. Claudia is actually lying in the bathtub next to a nearly empty prescription bottle. Georgie secretly hopes that she is gone from his life, but fears that she has. Claudia has been playing dead. Georgie wakes up in the closet and thinks he enjoys the nothingness he feels inside it. Claudia is miserable because she can't please him. He can't stand her misery. Zero. Calling for reinforcements Georgie meets Margaret again in the grocery store. He tells her he and Claudia are living in utter bliss. She asks if he has found his nanny yet. Georgie returns to find that Claudia has thrown an orgiastic party at his house. He realizes that Claudia only stays with him for the money, and he feels a whole new brand of pain. He dreams of torturing Claudia with a knife and awakens to find her cutting him with a razor blade. Margaret visits the house and hears Georgie's screams. Claudia tells Margaret that Georgie has not been well and sends her off. Two policemen visit due to a report of domestic violence. Georgie convinces them he has no intention of charging Claudia with anything. Zero. Dr. C goes deep drive. C asks Ben why the driver's name is Ben. She asks if Ben is the vehicle and Georgie rides around in him. Ben says he doesn't know. It's a lot more complicated. Zero. Love can keep them together another dream where Claudia has dinner with the gusts, but this time Georgie is on a platter with an apple stuffed in his mouth. She awakens to Georgie squealing, still in pain from his razor cuts. She is tiring of the torturing because Georgie no longer represents every man who ever hurt her. Still, she's being paid to torture him so she will continue to do so. She goes out on her own that night and re-encounters Greg and Sarah, and brings them back to meet Georgie, who hides. He uses one of his security cameras to film Claudia having sex with Greg and Sarah. Georgie pays her double the next day. She plans to stick to sleeping around rather than torturing Georgie physically. Georgie goes to the grocery store in search of Margaret, but cannot find her. He returns to his sex clubs, where he won't find Claudia. He hopes that cheating on Claudia will eliminate his need for her, but the level of torture at the sex club cannot match Claudia's cruelty. He cannot feel enough pain, 
he has outgrown that level of sadism. Ben drives him to a new place run by a haggard old woman who has sex with him on a smelly bearskin rug. Zero. Nothing but a brilliant, bright prick of light Georgie awakens on the vomit-covered bearskin rug and flees the old hag. Ben drives him home. Claudia is not there, nor is Margaret. Georgie has only himself for reassurance and he is no consolation at all. Ben pities him. Georgie awakens and tries to get the hag's stench off of him. Claudia returns and he prays that she will go easy on him. He and Claudia have unprotected sex in the shower and again he fears getting her pregnant. He tells Claudia he loves her. She ties him to a dolly and shoves him down the stairs. He awakens to Claudia burying him alive. He welcomes death. Zero. Damned if you do Georgie suddenly can breathe again. Claudia has given him CPR and revived him. Claudia swears to never hurt him again and says she loves him. Georgie is disdainful at her weakness. She asks him to make love. She is tired of hurting him. He pulls out just before she reaches a climax and leaves her. They return to their previous torture arrangement. Margaret arrives again and stays for dinner. She invites Georgie and Claudia to a play with her and a friend, Mandy. The play mimics Georgie, Claudia, and Margaret's life together, making each of them profoundly uncomfortable. Claudia considers how to drive the knife more deeply into Georgie. Zero. Hunting they will go Claudia takes a break from torture to allow Georgie to become complacent. She suggests that she, Georgie, Margaret, and Mandy take a vacation at Georgie's parents' cabin. Mandy cannot go, so Margaret brings her friend Carl. Ben drives them to the cabin and then drives away. Georgie isn't sure where he stays and doesn't care. He wants Margaret to fall in love with him. Georgie has a hallucination about Carl, Claudia, and Mandy, which morphs into Claudia, Greg, and Sarah again. Claudia morphs into Georgie's mother, abusing him, riding his penis, and then into the hag from the cottage, while Georgie reverts to a small child, terrified and not strong enough to fight back. The creature wants to be pregnant. Georgie cannot help but respond physically and has an orgasm that lasts an eternity. Zero. Wake up and smell the dopamine. Georgie wakes up to an angel, in the form of Margaret, who tells him he cut off Claudia's hair. Claudia had drugged him. Georgie, Claudia, Margaret, and Carl leave the cabin. The group amuses Ben. Georgie returns to his fetishes and Claudia returns to Greg and Sarah. Georgie returns to the hag's cottage but there is no one there. His dick is limp and useless. Like a boy's. He goes to the grocery store and meets Margaret again. She says she knows he didn't find his nanny because he is not any better. She insists that he has to see the nanny to get better and gives him a piece of paper. He tells Margaret that maybe he doesn't want to get better. He wants to tell her it's too hard. Zero, then, unto them Claudia is pregnant. Her morning sickness rids her of every rotten thing she has ever done to Georgie. Georgie comes home and wants to embrace her but steps in a pool of vomit and can only think of getting the puke off his shoes. He is not good with sick people.
His shoes are more of a concern than a baby that may or may not be his. He tries to clean his whole living area free of her vomit. Zero. Claudia moves out. Claudia is gone and Georgie wonders how he was ever bored with her. She made his life a tortuous adventure and he has reverted to making his 10 shots of espresso. He wants her back. He can't even find Margaret at the grocery store. The store manager throws him out. Claudia leaves messages on his answering machine about the conference she attended when she first met him. He wonders if he has imagined the torture and that everything is as it should have been all along. A message from Margaret asks if he has contacted his nanny yet. He finds the paper she had given him and goes to the address written on it. Ben drives him. He recalls the first Claudia, a girl named Marie who taught him how to love, the clutching and the pushing away. He leaves, feeling that he and Claudia and their baby could live the American dream together. He can remake himself. He returns home, to be trapped in a noose by Claudia. He thinks that Claudia will be nice to him if he pays her to be. He doesn't want to play the games anymore. But the news tightens. She tells him she has had an abortion and now she will kill Georgie. Zero. Waking up with Mr. Clean Georgie wakes up in a psychiatric hospital, in restraints. The psychiatrist Dr. Weinstein tells him he has no girlfriend named Claudia. Georgie is happy. No Claudia, she doesn't exist. She never hurt him. But if she wasn't real, then what is? The doctor tells Georgie he has been in the hospital for 15 years. Claudia, Margaret, the cabin, all have been a dream. But Georgie now thinks that it is the hospital that is the dream, the hallucination. He cries out and Ben answers. Ben tells Georgie that Georgie is his alter ego and is not real. Georgie hears Ben cry out, claiming to be Ben Shriver, and he wants a cigarette. Georgie smiles as he fades away. Book 2 1. The Road to Wakefield Ben, aged about 18, travels to Wakefield School, together with his alter ego Georgie Gust and Georgie's parents Pops and Rose. Pops tells Georgie that he must win the Winterborn Scholarship. He is attracted to a girl, a troubled teen. 0. Settling in Georgie settles into his single dorm room, which he fills with philosophy books. He scratches his father's face off of all the family photos he has brought. He learns about a jock named Wyman. Zero. The birth of adult love Ben watches as Georgie attends school. Georgie writes a description of his perfect woman, Claudia Nesbitt, and Georgie falls instantly in love with her. Zero. Heidi Ben is remembering Heidi Barillo, a teacher who apparently morphs between Claudia and himself. She has a medical degree and will not teach at Wakefield for long. She receives a call from Dr. Winterborn about a student who graduated two years previously. Zero. School Blues Georgie attends Heidi's class. The troubled teen girl is there also. Heidi tells them about the Winterborn scholarship to be won by the best essay. The teen girl stares at him a few times. She is popular with the jocks Wyman and Ozer and Wyman's girlfriend Susan. Her name is Claudia Nesbitt. Ben has an alcohol abuse problem, which becomes Georgie's. The jocks tease Georgie, 
imitating his Tourette's symptoms and nicknaming him Mr. Twitchy. Claudia doesn't find their antics funny. She befriends Georgie. Georgie finds the campus bar, the pen. Zero. The classroom Heidi holds her introductory philosophy class. She throws a piece of chalk out the window and then asks whether the chalk hit the ground. Most students, Georgie included, are not listening. Zero. Hungover Georgie gets drunk at the pen and spends the next day hungover in class. Georgie explains that he has Tourette's, but tries to explain his ideas on philosophy. Heidi is impressed. Zero. Talking through windows Heidi tells Georgie how well he is doing in the class and that he should enter the Winterborn contest. Zero. Mr. Twitchy Georgie is mocked and laughed at by the jocks, but not by Claudia. Georgie finds solace from his humiliation in hard liquor at the pen. Zero. Pushy boy Ozer makes out with Claudia, but she won't have sex with him. Zero. Bar cops Georgie now emerges from the bar, clearly drunk, and rapping to himself. Ben asks Dr. C, parenthetically, if she could diagnose him with a disease so he could have a label to put to who he is. Zero. Fuck the bar cops Georgie continues with his rap, fuck the police, even when he is nabbed for drunkenness by two cops. Heidi bails him out. Zero. To the rescue Heidi tells that drunken Georgie he needs to get his life in order. Zero. Passed out Claudia sees Heidi drop Georgie off at the dorm. Ozer tells her Georgie is only there because of a need for diversity in the school. Georgie is locked out of the dorm and climbs up the drainpipe, which breaks. Claudia runs out to check if he is hurt. They run to elude the campus security. They spend the night outdoors at the top of a bluff and watch the sunrise together. Georgie tells her it's where he comes to cry. She chides him for wasting his time getting drunk and arrested. He puts a foot over the edge of the bluff, as if he might walk off. Zero. On the edge of something? Georgie reassures Claudia that he wouldn't really walk off the bluff. Not until he is famous. He tells her he is going to be a famous writer. Claudia asks him why he can't stop drinking. Zero. The new day Georgie apologizes to Claudia for the day before. She is happy she saw the bluff at sunrise. Georgie confesses that he drinks so that he doesn't feel alone. Claudia responds by saying no one is ever really alone. Georgie explains his Tourette's symptoms. Zero. At the pen at night two college girls invite Georgie to a threesome. Zero. Back in business Georgie attends class and finds spirits after his night with the two girls. The class is to work in pairs and Georgie is left the odd man out. Claudia joins him. Heidi again tells Georgie he is doing well and should enter the Winterborn competition. She invites him for lunch. Zero. Grave company Heidi and Georgie have lunch in a cemetery. Heidi asks Georgie why he is hungover again. He says it's because he is a rebel and doesn't conform. He says he doesn't know what he wants but doesn't want his Tourette's devils to control his life. Heidi says that everyone has his or her own demons. Zero. There's no place like 
Ozer asks Claudia what's up with her and Mr. Twitchy. She insists they are just partners in class. She blames him for not showing up to class on the day partners were chosen. Zero. Misery loves company Georgie keeps a flask of alcohol under his mattress and carries it with him now to the bluff. He finds Claudia sobbing. She asks him why he smokes and tells him she would care if cigarettes killed him. The two reveal that they are only at Wakefield because Dr. Ozer, the jock's father, pulled strings to get them in. Zero. A good thing Georgie tells Claudia he hates his father. She tells Georgie she loved hers but he committed suicide. She says she prays to her father and believes he hears her. Georgie says his parents never hear him or see him, even though he's right there. Claudia shows him a misdated coin that is worth much money because it is a freak. Just like Georgie. The two decide to forget the pressures they are under and just relax together. They run in the meadow by the bluff and then attend a street fair. Claudia admits to being pressured by Ozer to have sex. She and Georgie kiss and Ozer catches them. Claudia claims to have had sex with Georgie. Zero, once, twice, Georgie thinks he might just enter the Winterborn competition and begins his library research. He observes Ozer making out with Susan, Wyman's girlfriend. Ozer is still furious that Georgie was with Claudia and crushes Georgie's hand with a book as a threat. Zero, truth, lies, and lunch Georgie and Heidi have their weekly lunch at the cemetery. She is the first adult that Georgie has been able to talk to. He tells her he is off his medication and feels good. She tells him he makes her feel young and alive. Georgie is going to title his winter-born essay, On Bad Faith. Heidi asks what happened to Georgie's hand. She tells him he reminds her of her sister who had cerebral palsy but was also very brave. She tells him he has a lot to offer the world. Georgie doesn't know what to say. Zero. Detention Georgie has detention for being late to class because of his hangovers. He spends the time lying on his back listening to classical music. Zero. Rocks for Jocks Heidi's class talks about bad faith. Pebbles tossed in the window by the jocks are pelting Georgie. They throw a rock that smashes Georgie's glasses and injures his eye. Claudia tries to soothe him but Georgie erupts, tossing his books, desk, pencils, and anything he can grab. Ozer and Wyman are suspended and removed from the upcoming lacrosse game. Georgie continues his rampage and destroys his dorm room. He tries to apologize to Claudia later but she is furious that he treated her like he treats everyone else when she thought she was his friend. Georgie reassembles his room but can't sleep. He starts to write about his own existence. Zero. Something positive Georgie and Heidi have another lunch together. Georgie is even more on edge than usual. Heidi sees that he is no longer smoking. He tells her he quit drinking too. He focuses on writing. Zero. The big game Wakefield loses the lacrosse game, with Wyman and Ozer on the sidelines. Georgie continues his writing, oblivious to the game. Zero. A slight change of plans Georgie no longer has detentions. He has lunch again with Heidi and tells her that he is writing his essay for the Winterborn and that has replaced his need for cigarettes and booze. 
She informs him that this will be their last lunch together as the school is reconsidering her tenure because she appears to be favoring Georgie and Claudia. Georgie's room is broken into and his computer knocked over. His essay is still intact, but he retitles it, Apart From Me and runs from his room. Zero. Jump Georgie goes to the bluff to cry. Heidi finds him and tells him he can't run from himself. He tells her she can't know what goes on inside him. All she sees is the external issues about Tourette's. He runs to the edge of the bluff but she doesn't try to stop him. She is tired of feeling sorry for him. She tells him to flaunt at and laugh at his problem, because he can't be beaten by something he can laugh at. Georgie appears in and participates in Heidi's class that afternoon. Zero. Peacemaking Georgie continues to work on his Winterborn essay, which is now clearly an autobiography. He is tying his life story into the concept of bad faith. Claudia stops by to tell him it was her dad's birthday. Zero. A twisted tree Claudia disappears from the school. Georgie races to the bluff and finds Claudia's freak coin. He finds Claudia hanging from a tree. Zero. How the shite hits the fan Georgie is devastated by Claudia's suicide. He starts smoking again. He meets Ozer at the pen and tells him that he, not Ozer, loved Claudia. When he returns from the pen, Heidi is waiting for him. All Georgie can think of is Claudia, and it is interfering with his writing. He considers leaving Wakefield. Claudia has left him a letter that tells him she is happy to be free from living the charade that her life had become. She asks him to be happy for her. Georgie resumes writing. Zero. The other ending Georgie wins the Winterborn Scholarship. Georgie credits Claudia for his win. Heidi informs him that she is leaving Wakefield. He introduces her to his parents. Book 3 Part 1 Dr. C. Meet Benjamin J. Schreiber Unfinished intro Buffered off a thought drive C. asks Ben what his goals are for his therapy. He doesn't know. He just knows that the New Age self-help books he's been reading aren't helping. Slingbacks out of my deepest of pockets drive C wears sling back, open-toed sandals that cater to Ben's foot fetish. She said she is going to make Ben love himself. Ben reveals that he has been seeing psychiatrists since he was 12 and was diagnosed with ADD but then finally with Tourette's. He thinks Dr. C is delusional if she thinks he will ever like himself. Ben has writer's block. Retirement? Ben sometimes stops writing when he's in love, but that is lover's lock, not writer's block. This instance of writer's block has lasted 18 months. He hasn't written a thing. He senses Heidi and George are both in the background somewhere. He wants Georgie back. Georgie writes back Ben gets rejection letter after rejection letter. Georgie returns and tells Ben to relax and sleep things will be fine. Dr. C meets Ben, a written account from Dr. C. Dr. C says she's never had a client like Ben before. She did not like Ben because he was rich, late, and dressed eccentrically. He made a bad first impression. She admits that some of his eccentricity was due to his Tourette's but her bias still showed and Ben picked up on it. He admits that even he doesn't like himself. 
Dr. C recovers her professionalism and tells him that she is going to help him to love himself. Cutting class drive C asks Ben what he remembers about his school days. He tells her about Georgie instead. Ben at first discriminates between his life and Georgie's life, but then slowly melds them together, confirming that he and Georgie function together. Flashing forward to yesterday Ben recognizes that Georgie and he share the same person, and that they can't place themselves anywhere. Georgie chooses only to go to Long Beach, California, New Mexico. The only time he follows Ben is if Ben goes back to school. Ben still seeks his lost inner child that was damaged by his parents. Ben and Georgie are now in Long Beach and Ben wants what Georgie has. Ben wants Claudia. Long Beach, the hub of the warp drives he wants to know what the name Claudia Nesbitt means to Ben. He says it is between Georgie and him. When Georgie sleeps, Ben experiences time warps and nightmares. Housekeepers are a blessing Georgie is too nice for his own good. Dr. C wants to know why people take advantage of Georgie. Georgie doesn't feel crazy, but how would he know if he was? He keeps thinking about Claudia Nesbitt and how he loves her and how he hates her. He hopes she dies so he can stop being a good guy. Georgie is talking to himself. He doesn't wonder if he's going crazy. He just wonders how crazy he is. Restaurant Love Ben dreams of Claudia at a restaurant. Ben morphs into her waiter, as Georgie. Georgie obsesses on people, mostly. He loses himself in a fantasy world for as long as he's obsessed with them. The next morning, Georgie starts his routine with Claudia while Ben sleeps in, thinking of Claudia. Ben makes oatmeal. Georgie finds a clean shirt. Georgie is alone and invisible. He doesn't feel he doesn't exist. He's not needed. He breathes. He thinks, but he is not. Georgie wants to say he doesn't care about this, but he does. Part 2. From Wakefield to Rehab. Dr. C made me do it. Ben has an appointment with Dr. C and rambles on. Ben has been diagnosed with Tourette's, schizophrenia, and other diseases, so he doesn't trust doctors. What really happened drives he wants to dredge up Ben's past to fix his present. Ben explains how he came to attempt a bank robbery, because his father froze the funds in his trust account. He is arrested and put into rehab. Mantle Ward Snuff Ben describes Betty, one of the ward nurses, who checks him into the mental hospital, and his first night after admission into what he categorizes as hell. Wax melts Ben meets Heidi, his Heidi, not Georgie's, whom he's met in a gift shop parking lot. Ben obsesses over Heidi while Georgie lives with Claudia. He is attracted to a girl bagging groceries, who makes him daydream about Claudia and he morphs into Georgie, who is now in a coffee shop, watching Claudia enter. Claudia recognizes Georgie but nothing has happened between them yet. It's a new version of their meeting for the first time. Claudia asks Georgie if he wants to sleep with her and they go to a motel for sex. Part 3. Getting Clean with Dr. C. Pregnant with the idea of Georgie Gus Drive C asks Ben who Georgie is. He can't answer her because he is not sure himself. Ben knows that he imagined Georgie a lot more once he started writing about him. 
Georgie became everything he hated about himself. He also doesn't know if writing is therapy or if it is the source of his disease. He doesn't know if his cure involves the death of Georgie. Or Claudia. He imagines a scenario where Georgie would be born, his scared and lonely childhood, his Tourette's diagnosis, and his heavy drug use. He describes a mystical experience where Georgie is possessed by a sense of supernatural beauty. Then he describes Georgie crying as he writes. He is transfixed by something supernatural, mystical, and sexual, like an orgasm that his past transforms to. Writing his story does this for him. Ben recognizes Georgie as part of him. Ben spies on his hallucinations while Georgie lives them. But Ben wants Claudia. She is his stereotypical woman who will end his loneliness. What got me here Ben, in the psych ward, is full of self-hatred and loathing. The psych treatment has made him see himself for who he really is. He is tired of the bull's height. He doesn't want any more learning experiences so he can learn to love himself. Taking it to the cleaners Ben is finally cleaning Georgie out of his head, but he wonders what happens when he kills him off in a literary sense. And what happens to Claudia? Ben realizes he has to stop fantasizing about her and wasting his life. He starts to realize that he is the author of these fantasies and if he says they are fact, they are, including Claudia. Georgie misses Claudia because she kept the house neat. Ben recognizes Georgie as the scapegoat. Everything is Georgie's fault and never Ben's. A chance encounter, reality. Ben encounters Heidi in a convenience store parking lot. She is in town for a psychiatry convention and decided to get her nails done. He gives her a pedicure in her hotel room. They meet and walk in the neighborhoods and along the beach. Heidi encourages him to write. She skips her conference class and has a bath instead. Ben joins her and gives a foot massage. Ben finds his writing block has gone. The Emperor Concerto, second movement now Georgie's day takes over. He craves some different routine but his day proceeds just like all others. Ben wonders why he has given Georgie, whom he now views as his literary creation, so many issues. In the parallel midst Ben sees Georgie's driver Frank drop Georgie off in a secret desert location. Georgie is studying New Age books, intending to do the exact opposite of what they recommend. He checks into a nudist colony and participates in a foot fetish orgy, but it no longer satisfies what he needs. He then crawls on salt crystals. On the way home, he tells Frank about his nanny who abused him. Georgie is looking for an endless orgasm because during an orgasm it is like he doesn't exist. Georgie's home is my home. Georgie's living room contains photos of his past girlfriends, awards, trophies, and travel posters, as well as intellectual books, all in three copies, as are his video and music collections. There are many unfinished drawings and paintings that show Georgie's brilliance. His past seems rich and full. Everything is placed according to obscure mathematical relationships. Coming to Ben sets up cameras in his New Mexico home so he can record videos of him at home from all angles. Don't be afraid to let them show Georgie attempts to use a camera to record Ben. Ben tells Georgie that he feels itchy and dirty. Georgie tells him to take a shower. 
Ben has new meds and wants to get back to writing. Office bathroom Ben imagines ultraviolet blue boils on his thighs as Georgie heads him to the shower. In the shower, water off Ben is filthy and his skin has yellowed. Georgie helped him take off his clothes and shower. Ben longs for some strange disease so he can overcome it and feel he has done something, and then maybe everything. History of sex Ben is in his guest house, which is a crack den, which he shares with his former crack head zombie selves, the nameless movie director, the fit and slim jogger, the successful stockbroker, and the poor homeless guy. Georgie joins them. Umbrella makes me spread my wings. The zombies copy all Ben's moves. He finds and opens an umbrella and they do the same. Ben's umbrella is shredded and he gets soaked. The zombies umbrellas are fine. Ben can't light his crack pipe because it's wet, but the zombies won't give him a light. The zombies watch Ben in disapproval, except for the homeless guy, who continues to copy Ben, who lies down on a mound of dirty clothes and pizza boxes. Georgie appears, with a crack pipe. Ben reveals that he has a wife Kelly, who knows nothing of Georgie or of Claudia. A series of zombie wives appear, followed by the real Kelly, whom Ben calls his living colorful beauty. Claudia also appears as a zombie. The phone rings incessantly. The zombies turn into policemen who chase Ben in the streets of Albuquerque. He falls and faints and wakes up again in the crack den. Part 4. Dr. Seat Meets Mr. Clean Mr. Clean Ben Benji is 11 and his old house in suburban New York is being torn up. His mother makes him stay inside with her. Pops is divorcing Rose and she can't stand to be alone. Benji sees an albino jogger run past his house every day. It's a hallucination that only he sees. He thinks Mr. Clean will be there for him someday, like his pops no longer is. Dr. Seat meets Mr. Clean drives he urges Ben to write as therapy. She tells him to write the gross, obscene, sexual stuff first to get it out of him. Ben's wife Kelly tries to keep him to a routine to help him. He has no idea how stressful living with him might be for her. The rest of his family just wants to control him and set him up in rehab. Second Skins Benji is in 6th grade sex education class. Ben learns the words that come to mean so much to him later. A man ahead of his time Benji offers his first porn at age 9 from his dad. He buys his first magazine at 10. Boy Scout Brothel Ben and his friends set up a sex club in a kiddie brothel. Ben and his friends never graduate beyond their sex roles set up at this time. But in childhood they were invincible. Ben develops a fetish for latex condoms. He feels all his sexual preferences were divinely selected for him. Ben wonders how a good little kid like him ever became involved with a perverted sadomasochist like Claudia Nesbitt. Except that they were a perfect match. Two doomed tortured souls. Ben Georgie becomes obsessed with the agony she causes him. When he thinks he has gotten her pregnant, Claudia admits she doesn't love Georgie and will be raising his son with another woman. Ben realizes she isn't the woman of his dreams. The real Ben emerges a week later. He tries to convince himself that he and Claudia can raise a baby together. Claudia tells him she cannot have kids. Her tubes are tied. 
Love beyond dignity Ben awakens from nightmares, as he always does, where love and happiness are misery and emptiness. He used to be such a happy kid. He had dignity. Now he has love without dignity. Therapy Georgie reads up on mental disorders to find out what is wrong with him. He realizes that past hurts and being taken advantage of now prevent him from moving on with his life and being happy. He instead turns inward to his fantasies. Mother's naked friend drives he asks Ben when his fascination with older women started. He explains how his mother used to parade his Tourette's to her friends to gain attention and sympathy and as an excuse to avoid playing racquetball with her friends. Benji accidentally sees one of his mother's friends fully naked at the racquetball club. Ben says Georgie is the one who has hung up on the childhood sex thing. Mother's lava soap Ben explains how his mother groomed him for borderline personality disorder. He figures that he must still be that traumatized kid. She would swat him with newspapers and wash his mouth out with soap for his Tourette's outbursts, which he could not control. He wonders if the pumice from the lava soap started his foot fetish. Dr. C tells him it is part of his self-esteem problem. Waste notes on Ben's novel when Ben falls in love with Claudia, or Heidi, he vows to sober up and become a better person, but he doesn't know how to succeed with Claudia. He writes about Claudia but he cannot put his feelings into words, they muddle up his thoughts. He wants to stop his meds but he loses his sanity when he is off them. Ben is still obsessed with Claudia. Georgie's affair with Claudia has shattered the whole heart and soul of the desperate, lonely man who just wanted to replace Heidi with Claudia. Family reunion Georgie attends his family reunion at the Hamptons. Without words, he's desperately begging somebody from the inner family circle, the one that controls it all, who is loved, to turn on some secret switch in the invisible boardroom that will turn the tables around again for him. That will make him feel good. He will even love himself again then. He still wants to feel some new and positive things, good things that will last for the better. But that switch was never even there to begin with. First date with perplexity Ben imagines his first date with Claudia. Georgie steps in and goes on the date. They have sushi at a restaurant. Georgie tells her he has schizophrenia. Claudia doesn't mind. From the inside Georgie wonders if Claudia has ever been miserable. She always seems to have good luck. Claudia mentally tortures him. The slow fade out Claudia has abandoned Ben. He needs a story to work on to have a new beginning. The themes would be death, loneliness, and despair. End of November Ben cannot let Claudia go. Georgie is not around to act for him and Ben has succumbed to Claudia's torment again. Georgie wants to have sex with someone else so Claudia won't be his last one. Claudia, Heidi, my perplexity Ben realizes he never learned how to deal with conflict. If a conflict arose in a relationship, he ended the relationship. He moves out of his house and into a full-service apartment where he'll be free to be completely alone. He sees Claudia everywhere now. Ben can see himself in the mirror now. More from Waste, a novel by Benjamin J. Schreiber. Ben is off his meds but the writer's block is gone. He knows Heidi lives next door, not Claudia. 
Heidi can balance the chaos. He takes her to dinner and she talks about all the men she dated and slept with. Ben and Pops Ben remembers a time in 6th grade, before Georgie, when he and his Pops were alone at home. His mother and sister had gone on a vacation. Pops and Ben have gone on a father-son ski trip. They laugh together and have fun, but Ben knows he has to go back to his mother and her torment eventually. Pops leaves Rose soon after, and Ben never has another father-son experience. Alter ego Claudia. Georgie's nightmare at noon with his new meds working and the writer's block on, Ben feels rushed. Therefore, Georgie takes over and clears the remnants of Claudia from his house, but the visions of Claudia are too strong. She rapes Georgie in her desire to get pregnant. Georgie wants to break up with her but she won't let him go. Easy steps to a perfect pedicure, deja vu, Ben takes one pill and Georgie reappears. This time Claudia is a neighbor in Long Beach who has just broken up with her girlfriend and it is Halloween. The pedicure fantasy begins again. Ben remains as Ben, and he knows that he will strike up a relationship with Heidi in Long Beach. Ben sees the premise for a big novel. A living, colorful beauty and borderline personality disorder. He's making it. Rehab and Mother Ben tells Dr. C that his mother visited him in rehab. His one fear is that he'll end up looking like his mother. Tight curly hair and obese body. Dr. C asks if Georgie, with tight curly hair and obese body, is patterned more on Ben or on his mother. Ben considers it a stupid question. And the violence Ben's mom is a bully. Ben's father allows him to go to boarding school as a teen and his mom is furious. She hits him repeatedly and finally he hits back. He leaves for college a worthless piece of shite who needs a new mother. Second skins with footnotes drive C asks to know more about Heidi. Ben says she is his obsession. She changed his life, but not in a good way. She brings back Georgie, who has Claudia as his Heidi. Claudia is the essence of every woman Ben encounters. Benevolent Georgie Georgie has some genuine goodness despite his overall unwholesomeness. He sees beauty in every woman, he is generous with money, he buys food for the homeless, and he picks up trash. Georgie likes Dr. C, even though he knows she thinks he doesn't exist. Georgie knows all about Ben, even if Ben doesn't know all about Georgie. Georgie also knows it's Ben who can't get over Claudia. Georgie also knows that the sadness and despair stems from Ben's mother, but Ben lets no one know her. No one. Part 5. St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Journal. Ben can't tolerate his current symptom, paranoia. All he can think of is his writing. He doesn't want downtime, free time, or Georgie time. He thinks everyone around is listening to him and suspiciously spying and snickering. Police sirens and helicopter noises come and go as he drives. His medication makes him dizzy. Higher doses give him hallucinations, which he craves. He still craves Claudia but wants to be free of her. Ben wants to discover himself so he can make his mark on the world, but he knows his excuses, medical maladies, and baggage of abuse, neglect, and life limit him. He wants to leave a profound message for the world. 
a Valentine reminder Ben remembers the real Claudia, who died, and how he brought her back to life with the help of Georgie. Claudia explains that Ben was just too high maintenance for her. She couldn't take care of him. Funeral Ben fantasizes his own funeral. He hears all the women he knew speaking about him. Most said he was complex and funny and unpredictable. His funeral is held at a crack house. Ben begins to meet himself, thanks to those who once shared his life. He has broken up with another woman, Melanie. Ben reverts to Georgie in Georgie's home again, with the awards and trophies from Georgie's past life. Ben admits to buying them. Ben lives other people's anonymous lives. All he wants is to be someone. The narcissist Ben believes he will die in the next 15 days. He has to write down his thoughts before it happens. His thoughts about himself, the nausea, coughing, anxiety, paranoia, loneliness, bitterness, and nostalgia that make up his disease and his existence. The orange button Ben is addicted to change, so he visits hotels frequently. He experiences insomnia and paranoia, and sees his own funeral again through a spy camera in the room. Broken-hearted Jubilee Ben has had enough of excesses and enough of habits and addictions, fears and phobias, money and resentment. He visits Fat Ann, a good friend from a Tourette support group. She no longer wants to be his friend because he is selfish. Ben has a dream where a character, Lisette, acts like he does in Claudia's real life. He treats her with disdain, a disdain he also holds for himself. Ben looks to Georgie to understand life and overcome his selfishness. Dialogue with self, after the funeral, Georgie believes he doesn't matter. He's shite. He is becoming just words, writing, and a metaphor. He wants mutual, reciprocated love. He worries. If I stop thinking of me, will I still exist? Halloween Georgie's brain starts to process thoughts again. Strange voices ask him many questions about who he is and what he wants from life. The new way to feed solitude Ben just wants his own version of who he is. He wants solitude. To be left alone. He finally is able to release the past. He also realizes that everything is genuine, imagined, perceived, or experienced. It all defines him as a man. He is just like everyone else. He's doing just fine. Is this a new beginning? Ben the author finally has a good idea. On a flight somewhere, he introduces himself to a fellow passenger as Georgie Gust. Part 6. Rest in Peace. Support this troop Ben talks to Dr. C about the jogger, Mr. Clean, again. Ben thinks his mother was having sex with the jogger, who was young enough to be her son. Dr. C finds it interesting that only Ben can see his mother in the jogger. Demons Ben's apartment has demons. His computer boots and shuts down on its own, even when unplugged. Bathroom lights flash and water runs. He looks online for an exorcist and finds Reverend Jezebel Constanza, who conducts an exorcism. The demons are worse than ever afterwards. He thinks it wouldn't be so bad if he weren't so alone. Georgie isn't alone with his demons. He's out with different women every night. He has dedicated himself to getting Claudia out of his system.
Georgie and Dr. C. Georgie is the only one to show up at Dr. C's next session. He's frantic. Dr. C wonders who Georgie is when he isn't Ben. Georgie needs someone who loves him, someone who can touch his soul. But he'll never have that. He needs peace. Mother Ghost Ben shares his bedroom with the demons. He is visited by his mother angel older woman at night, who climbs into bed with him. He knows the woman, his mother, his angel, and his lover, is an illusion and tries to ignore her. She tells him she is haunting his house with memories. She encourages him to shoot himself. Ben has a memory of being age 11. His mother comes into his bedroom, crying that his father is leaving her. She abuses him sexually, leaving him traumatized. To the shore drives he watches Ben drive away in a taxi and recalls the first session she had with him. She has succeeded in getting Ben to say hello and goodbye to Georgie Gust and, of course, Claudia. Part 7, Postscript Meanwhile, back at Ben's New Mexico ranch, Ben writes furiously now in his New Mexico home. Ben J. Schreiber Ben submits a short story for publication. He wants Kelly to understand. Checking the mail Ben receives a rejection letter that criticizes his use of Georgie as a hero. He has written 43 chapters about Georgie and Claudia. He obsesses over why he can't get anything published. Dr. C told him that Georgie is not a real character. He's just an alter ego stuffed with all the feelings Ben refuses to feel. On Kelly Kelly is Ben's editor and is very supportive of his work. Another living colorful beauty? Ben writes Kelly a letter that ends up focusing on the negative and how pathetic he is. Kelly replies that she loves having him as part of her life. Back to the heat Ben writes to Kelly again, this time questioning the value of his written work. Kelly again supports him and tells him she loves him. Fortune the fortune teller sister Clara has sensed something about Ben and has drawn images of Ben's grandmother, aunt, nursery school teachers, and nanny all abusing him as an infant. This discovery explains to Ben why he is so fucked up now. He goes home to Kelly, but Kelly is not there. Inside Ben is being monitored at home rather than admitted to a psych ward. He thinks he may finally have found himself. Book 4 Soliloquy, for Dr. C. Ben is out of rehab and writing as therapy. Ben has told Drive C that he has scuzzy blue movies playing in his brain constantly, starring Georgie and Claudia. He doesn't tell her much about the movies. He thinks psychiatrists are crazier than he is. Part 1, A Day in the Life of Georgie Gust Georgie lives out his typical morning, breaking his coffee cup, falling in the shower, making his 10 cups of espresso. His neighbors wonder about Georgie and Claudia. Georgie arrives at work six hours late and Ben does nothing there. At home again, he erases the mark next to, gets cigarettes on his marker board, and then rechecks it. The next day Georgie and the new age woman meet, while both singing, a day in the life. The new age woman is Claudia. They check into a motel and reality blinks out. Part 2. Another day in the secret life of Georgie Gust. The motel room is empty.
Georgie is in his yard. His message machine records a message from Claudia. Georgie is now walking along a beach, looking disheveled and downtrodden. Claudia's voice sounds on his voicemail. Claudia is at a lecture. We are revisiting the early days of Georgie and Claudia. Claudia encourages Georgie to tell his story. Georgie starts another day, awakened by the arrival of a Mexican cleaning crew. Part 3 Living the American Dream Georgie and Claudia live in an enormous McMansion, which they are having remodeled. Georgie asks Claudia to marry him. She takes the enormous ring from him. This is really what marriage is like, like they say, only mutual self-interest with a hint of disgust and loathing. Part 4 The End of a Dream Georgie and Claudia's McMansion is even huger with the new addition, but inside all is not well. Cracks are appearing in their romantic dream marriage. Georgie goes on a business trip to Vegas, refusing to take Claudia with him. Claudia meets up with Sir Tony Haldale and starts an affair with him in her home. The next morning, Claudia calls her friend Amanda and asks her urgently to come over. Sir Tony Haldale is dead in Claudia's bed. Georgie calls on his way home from the airport. He'll be home in 15 minutes. Georgie arrives and Sir Tony walks down the stairs, looking for his high school sweetheart Claudia Nesbitt. Part 5. The crack of the marriage is on the rocks and the posh mansion begins to disintegrate. Over time, the house totally falls apart and Claudia and Georgie disappear. Georgie returns to it, followed by Claudia a few years later. They resume their marriage. Georgie begins another day, trying to sort out his relationship with Claudia. Claudia walks on Georgie's street with Sarah, whom she introduces to Georgie as her wife. Claudia later ties Georgie up and rapes him, to get herself pregnant. She confesses that she never loved him. Georgie tries to kill himself. Part 6 the flashback flashbacks to Georgie meeting an older woman while both sing Hotel California. Claudia is on her way to get her nails done. Georgie ends up giving her a pedicure. At home, his message machine plays messages from aboard Claudia, tired of her lectures. Georgie makes love to her feet in a cheap motel room. Georgie sets down to write the first installment of The Secret Love and Death of Georgie Gust and Claudia Nesbitt. Part 7. The Fantasy, I Claudia and Georgie are the fond-loving couple on the beach. The scene changes to Georgie, alone, beating himself up, pretending he's Claudia. The scene changes again and Georgie is invited to watch Claudia and Amanda have sex. Greg and Sarah watch too. The scene changes again and Georgie and Claudia have coffee together at a yuppie coffee house, where they discuss the intricacies of modern American life. They have stolen $50,000 and are eluding the police. They split and promise to meet up again when the coast is clear. Claudia boards a plane and never returns to America. Part 8. The Fantasy, 2. In a different city, Georgie and Claudia are different people. They meet for the first time in an elevator in Georgie's swanky apartment building. Claudia is French and speaks with an accent. They carry out an old-fashioned European romance, complete with billet D-O-U-X. Part 9, 
The Secret Love and Death of Claudia Nesbitt and Georgie Gus Georgie's current fantasy mansion is the size of an airport. Claudia is a natural beauty set against the gardens. Georgie proposes to her and on their honeymoon they consummate the perfect pedicure. Claudia is hit by a car and paralyzed in her torso and legs. Claudia tells Georgie to pretend she is dead and to marry Cleo. Georgie vows to stay with Claudia. He takes the paraplegia Claudia boogie boarding on his boat and she drowns. Georgie, the CEO of Georgie Gust Enterprises, takes it all in stride. Part 10. Down and out with Georgie Gust. Georgie is now a homeless derelict. He enters a luncheonette, where a waitress who is Claudia serves him. Georgie starts up a conversation with Mr. Wilton, another customer, about success in business. Georgie helps two young teens cope with their grief at the death of a friend. He points another young man in the right direction to respecting his girlfriend. The scene changes and Georgie is a successful businessman. He has a revolver in a brown paper bag. The scene changes again and he is on a bus. A Walmart version of Claudia sits beside him. Georgie expounds on mental illness with the other passengers. He tells his psychiatrist about the bus ride. Georgie says he told the Walmart Claudia, it just seems like, I told her, all my years at Wakefield, and all my years at Harvard, existed for the simple purpose of proving to me that I was an utterly absurd person, no different from any other absurd person. No different from her or anybody else, because we're all absurd people, see? Part 11, Epilogue. The waxworks Claudia is dead and Georgie sinks his whole inheritance into a wax museum where he can immortalize Claudia. Georgie is married to Cleo but he is enthralled with Claudia the waitress. He gets Amos, his wax museum designer, to use Claudia the waitress and the model for Claudia the wax museum showpiece. Part 12, Coda. Benjamin J. Schreiber writes to Dr. C. Bend explains how his schizophrenia causes him to have blue and hardcore porn movies playing in his head all the time. He is just a spectator and has no control. Georgie, Claudia, and other characters show up in the same crazy scenes keep playing. He thinks that they sometimes are trying to tell him something, like maybe the whole world is stupid, meaningless, and empty. Codex. Dr. C. writes back to Benjamin J. Schreiber Drive C. tells Ben that many people feel that the world is crazy and that their lives are pointless. Dr. C. tells Ben that Georgie and Claudia are showing him that everybody needs someone or something to make the absurdity mean something by learning to laugh. Appendix Final Q&A session between Benjamin J. Schreiber and Dr. C. Drive C. explains how no living woman could live up to Georgie's expectations of the perfect Claudia Nesbitt. Book 5 Glad You're Not Me The author Jonathan Harnish is a mentally ill artist who suffers from constant sleep deprivation. He has seen improvement with new medications and is still married. He hit bottom in 2006 and his family took over his life. He writes as therapy for his Tourette's and schizophrenia. The passages included here show the thought patterns and brilliant phrasings that a schizophrenic mind can generate, unfettered by rules of realism. Book 6 Prologue on Marcy No, John Marshall meets the beautiful Chantal and experiences his first sexual encounter on his 18th birthday. 
He tells Chantal that his goal in life is to achieve glory. She gives him a small portrait of Che Guevara and tells John that Che succeeded by seduction. Chapter 1 Father Patrick puts John, now well studied, forward for a position as a tutor for the Roman family. Chapter 2 John's father is livid that his son is going into service for the Romans. He banishes John from the home. Chapter 3 John meets Clyde Roman at the mansion and his beautiful wife Maribel. John sees that Maribel is his seduction target. He gains her favor by promising never to beat her children if they do not learn their lessons. Clyde Roman suggests that if John's work is good enough, Roman may eventually set him up in his own business. He gives John a used suit to replace his peasant clothing. He meets the children, Ramey and Christian. Chapter 4 John begins his tutoring of the children at the breakfast table, further impressing Maribel. Chapter 5 John is the main attraction at a dinner party. He performs by reciting Bible passages. Roman offers him a two-year position as language teacher and caretaker, but John turns him down as the agreement would bind him but leave Roman free to dismiss him at any time. Chapter 6 John encounters two youths that he went to school with. They are jealous of his success. They beat him up and leave him seriously injured. He is found and nursed by Maribel until he regains consciousness, and then is cared for by the maid, Lauren. Chapter 7 John is healing well a week later and again is invited to attend the dinner parties. One guest, Harold Lawrence, insults the communists and John is enraged. He goes to his room and looks at the portrait of Jay. Lauren arrives to take his one suit to clean for the next day. Maribel checks in on him and finds him in his underwear, with Lauren attending. John wants to reassure Maribel that he would not touch another woman, but he cannot. Lauren thinks she has claimed John as her own. Chapter 8 John now travels with Maribel to do errands in town. She asks if he is happy, and he confesses that he still wants a position with more purpose. Maribel informs him that she is about to come into a small inheritance. She offers him a gift of money for being so good to her children and tells him to buy more clothes. Clyde Roman and incensed when Maribel tells him that John refused money. Such rudeness from a servant. Roman gives John more money and John accepts it. Chapter 9 Father Patrick visits to tell John of some good fortune. Lauren wants to marry him and Father Patrick is interceding for her family. John refuses her, stating that he wants to marry for love. Maribel makes a final plea on Lauren's behalf but John still refuses. He tells her he does not love Lauren. Chapter 10 Mr. and Mrs. Roman heads to their home in the Hamptons, taking John and the children with him. John is overwhelmed at the grandeur and size of the mansion. The children chase butterflies and John convinces Maribel to join them. It begins to rain and Maribel and John take shelter together under a tree. They are both intensely aware of the attraction building between them, but John is also aware they are in full view of the house. That night, during his prayers, John reveals that his plan is to steal Maribel's heart so that he can cockle her fool of a husband. Chapter 11 John confesses to Maribel about his secret obsession with Jay. He begs her to protect his secret from her husband, who would fire him, or worse, if he knew.
He tells her he has a portrait in a box under his mattress. He tells her to look for the box but begs her not to look at the portrait. Later, he asks her if she found the box and gets a slight nod. Chapter 12 The Romans are entertaining Mr. Calvert and Mrs. Driscoll. John informs Mr. Calvert that John's friend Seth has offered him a partnership and that friendship with Mr. Calvert could be beneficial. Maribel is dismayed to hear that John is considering leaving. He tells her that at 2 a.m. he will come to her room to tell her something. He seduces her that night. Maribel asks who the portrait shows. Who is her rival? John tells her there is no woman he loves more than he loves her. Chapter 13 Mrs. Driscoll leaves. Roman tells John that the senator will be attending the town's annual parade and it is his job as mayor to prepare the town. Patrick has asked that John assist him in the church service. John also is invited to participate in the parade itself. These are two high honors in the town. Some of the townspeople, particularly the Lawrences, are not amused that the tutor gets to play politician and priest on the same day. It goes against separation of church and state. John goes to Maribel's bed again that night. He tells her he loves her and she returns his love. Chapter 14 Mr. Roman is livid the next morning. He hurls a newspaper at John and asks how he could do such a thing. John leaves the room without finding out what it is that Roman thinks he has done. John assumes that Roman has gotten a letter from someone suspicious of John and Maribel's relationship. Maribel comes to John's room that night, but he does not open his door to her. Maribel shows her husband a note left at the gate about John and demands that John be sent away. Roman thinks she is being foolish. Her husband points out that banishing him would just confirm the rumor. Maribel tells him that Lauren and Mr. Lawrence may have had an affair and that she too had received letters from Lawrence. Roman strikes his wife and goes in search of the letters. John decides it is time to leave. Chapter 15 John goes to a priest, Father Peter, in a nearby county. Father Patrick has put in a good word for him, suggesting that John be offered a scholarship. John will be going to New York City with Father Peter. John will be personal secretary to a businessman, Mr. Sinclair. Mr. Sinclair sends John off to buy new clothes. John is given a desk in the library. Mr. Sinclair tells John he is expected to dress for dinner. He meets Levida, Mr. Sinclair's wife, his son Norbert, and his daughter Claudia. Chapter 16 Claudia comes into the library but scurries out when John spots her. He goes riding with Norbert. John has lunch with Mrs. Sinclair and Claudia, and fears it is one of his duties. He asks Father Peter if he could have an allowance to eat lunch elsewhere. Mr. Sinclair is carrying out an experiment by having John dine with them and wishes to continue it. Claudia finds John amusing. Chapter 17 John goes to the opera. Mr. Sinclair then hears that John is the son of a Texas oil merchant, according to the opera goers in the next box. John insists that he did not start the rumor, but did nothing to prevent it from perpetuating. Sinclair tells John to go to the opera every evening and stand in the vestibule when important people are exiting. It is important for him to become recognized. John goes to a party at the Devons. Claudia is the belle of the ball. 
John is winning her over by being the opposite of the young men of her class. John's friend Seth is also at the party. Chapter 18 Claudia visits John in the library. He treats her coldly. He then visits the rooftop garden and is again joined by Claudia. He tells her that he finds her intellectual conversation stimulating but he doubts that the man she is about to marry will have the same view. Claudia pretends to sprain her ankle so that John must put his arm around her and help her off the roof. Claudia later gives him a slip of paper. John does not reply to Claudia's letter, so she stomps into the library and gives him a new letter demanding that he meet her on the roof at 1am. They meet and kiss passionately. Chapter 19 The next Sunday, John helps serve Matt with Father Peter. Claudia avoids John. He confronts her in the pool room and she kisses him passionately when she sees he is jealous. John goes to her bed that night. Claudia cuts off a lock of her hair and gives it to John, vowing to always obey him. John tries to leave the hair behind but Claudia insists he take it. He avoids Claudia and she accosts him, telling him she no longer loves him. Chapter 20 John receives a parcel containing a huge stack of letters. John makes Claudia jealous by flirting with her friend Louisa Charles. He visits Louisa the next day and goes to the opera. Chapter 21 John receives a letter, which Claudia rips from his hand. He embraces her and apologizes. They make love that evening. Claudia has been miserable for the month that John has avoided her and never wants to experience that again. She asks John to elope with her to Vegas. He asks how he will know she still loves him, once she is disgraced. She informs him that she is pregnant with his child. John is called to see Mr. Sinclair the next morning. Sinclair is indignant that his grandchild will be the son of a tutor. Claudia tells John that if he leaves, she will leave with him. He escapes and flees to Father Peter, who has a letter for him. He has been made a partner in Mr. Sinclair's hotel. He is being brought into the family. Chapter 22 John meets Claudia in Central Park. He is leaving on private business. She begs to go with him but he tells her to wait for him. John visits Seth, who asks if he has found love. John says he has found passion. John tells Seth of a dream he had where Seth was a woman named Margaret. John returns to find Claudia distraught. Her father has received a letter that has caused him to revoke his permission to marry and to remove John from his new position. It is a letter from Maribel. She claims that John seeks out and seduces the woman in the household who holds the most power in order to advance his own position. John dreams that the love of his life shoots him in the head. Chapter 23 John returns to Father Patrick's church during services. He shoots Maribel, he is arrested, jailed, and sentenced to death. Claudia visits him and tells him that these do not need to be his final days. No harm was done. She is willing to help him escape. He sends her away. Another visitor comes later. It is not Claudia but Maribel. She was not killed by the shot. John asks Maribel to look after the child that Claudia bears. Bonus Notes Jonathan Harnish, the author, 
describes through his own personal experiences what it is like to be a schizoaffective individual and how he has taken charge of his own life and overcome many of the challenges his disorders have forced him to face. Lover and the nobody I believe that anyone suffering from any type of mental illness is one badass motherfucker. Nothing is more terrifying than battling with your own mind every single day. So, get ready for this. Lover and the nobody is not for the faint of heart. Enter the literary playground of the wildly eccentric author and all-around artist, dreamer, man on a mission, and human being just like you who also suffers, like all of us, in one way or another, to some degree. The author, oui, c'est moi, l'auteur, the third person, laughs as he writes this, but hey, we're all for sale in some way. But actually, I'm all over the place. I'm in my head, my imagination, and my moment. Comfortable here, comfortable nowhere. Have I already lost you? Awesome. Keep reading. I'm not in the marketing business, after all. I do what I do, as they say, and I change. All the time, often taking delight in the touchy topic of madness, for example, in this brand new, raw, brutally honest, and extremely palpable psychiatric thriller that is part fiction, part truth. Noted scribe featured in Publishers Weekly and Writer's Digest, among other literary publications, and controversial mental health advocate, Jonathan Harnish, Jonathan Harnish, in Ali Biography, 2014, Second Alibi, The Banality of Life, 2014, Sex, Drugs, and Schizophrenia, 2014. The four-time number one Amazon best-selling author and number one writer of hot new releases under the subject of schizophrenia, introduces his, yours? Asks Dr. C, in my throbbing, labyrinthine head, yes, mine, debut novel. Perhaps my piece de resistance, Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, is now being taught at the university level for its inspiration and vivid feelings of a disturbed reality, which is sometimes disquieting, other times harsh. And with real emotions, it is culture-bearing, brazen, and bordering on brilliant, blam. Here she is, for ten bucks US, with all royalties donated to charity through the Jonathan Harnish Foundation. Boom. Lover and the nobody. Where Ben Schreiber, voila, c'est moi, said Jonathan, has Tourette syndrome, causing him to display uncontrollable tics and hops, with a stutter, swearing inappropriately. Bullied throughout his school years, he can never form firm friendships, especially with women. He's simply incapable of happiness. In his late twenties, he plunges into a downward spiral of drug and alcohol abuse that culminates in an attempted bank robbery using a cell phone as a fake bomb. He is arrested and placed under psychiatric evaluation, where his psychiatrist, Dr. C, quickly sees Ben's affliction as more than just Tourette's. Ben is not alone. Inside his head lives Georgie Gust, Ben's alter ego. Georgie is obsessed with his manipulative and extremely sexual next-door neighbor Claudia Nesbitt and shares a sadomasochistic relationship with her that is supported only by his obsession. Claudia has no love for Georgie, and while Ben desperately searches for someone, Claudia Nesbitt, the perfect woman, 
will provide him with the unconditional love that he never received as a boy. He finds it easier to retreat into his mind to share George's sick obsession with the cruel and abusive Claudia than to deal with his real issues. Dr. C senses that Ben is suffering from some type of post-traumatic stress that occurred early in his childhood, and that he is using Georgie as an escape when bad memories start to surface. It is up to Dr. C to help Ben face the buried terrors of his childhood so that he can finally let go of Georgie and reduce him to the literary character that writer Ben wants him to be. Alas, if you don't have this book in your library or classroom, what do you have? Get your copy now. P.S. I never said I was normal. I suffer, I move on. I laugh, I cry. I write it all out and never give up. Sending Light and Love, from me, Mr. J. Hyperreality by Jonathan Harnish. I am already drugged. I was, I am, and I have always lived in my own private hyperreality. That is what all of this, these words, the disjointedness, and the following fragmentation to come, the variation, and the skewed view of time, space, self, and others, and everything, is about. My consciousness has not been able to distinguish reality from a simulation of reality. I do not live in any technologically advanced postmodern society. I do not live. I do not die. I am a walking thought. I am a collection of them. I am myself. I am you. I am everybody on the earth plane who has ever lived. I am everyone who has not, and this confuses me at times. I am not God nor a god, nor anything, nor being of the divine. I am nothing but a recorder of collected thoughts and pieces of the world. There is no point. There is nothing. There is everything. And I am a tiny representation of a speck of hyperreality itself. That would be the best way to put it, at least for now. One might simply consider me completely insane. A masterpiece of fragmentation, repetition, and hallucination by Jonathan Harnish it is not exactly intended to be a story, rather, a sort of sphinx, to make sense of it is not necessarily the point. It is a delicately hallucinatory experience that dishevels far more fixed truths than it arrives at. Long, honest, raw brazen, shameless, and impudent. Never-ending. Writing therapy. An example of how easy does it by Jonathan Harnish let's get the facts straight up front to avoid any confusion later. I am a person first, a human being, just like anyone else. Maybe a little different, that's all. Years ago, I publicly disclosed my diagnoses with Kummerbitz Schizoaffective Disorder, Post Traumatic Stress Disorder, Personality Disorder NOS, not otherwise specified, and Tourette Syndrome. One might argue that I have been dealt quite a handful of cards and put through the ringer. Maybe it's just the luck of the draw, or maybe it's not luck at all. But some time ago, when I felt internally trapped and suffocated and hiding all my inner demons, as I call them while secretly writing about them, it simply grabbed hold of me. And boy did it grab hold. I had made seven suicide attempts and had over 30 hospitalizations and addiction rehabilitation stints within a decade. Then, one day, I just made a choice. It felt like the sun smacked my face, allowing my mind, 
my experiences, and my altered sense of reality to burn, twist, deform, and coil. I am referring to a metamorphosis that had taken place inside me. I looked into the mirror, where everything came alive. My delusions, my dreams were burying everything within reality as I experienced it. Now, I no longer saw impossibility in the mirror. My imagination ignited once again. I kept staring at my reflection. My delusions of grandeur formed a shape on their own in my reflection, in my double reality, if you will, not a multiple personality, which is one of many myths surrounding schizophrenia. Within the depths of my mind and psyche my imagination began to dream while awake. In short, the metamorphosis occurring inside caused me to begin my mission, exploiting all that I had kept buried inside for far too long, letting loose all my secret weariness of suffocation of and derailments from the truth, my truth. I opened up, raw, unabashed, facing perhaps my huggest fear. I went public with my mental health conditions. One morning, I awakened for the day at midnight and was unable to think clearly, concentrate, or remember much of anything. I dove into my art, my work, my life purpose of productivity, but I couldn't concentrate. Growing more and more upset with myself, I felt a very familiar stinging sense of shame and disapproval. My thoughts, my executive function deficit, were askew along with my condition. My morning writing session had gone awry, at least at first, this happens to be a part of my morning writing session. My concentration had been thrown off, and an overload of stimuli within the silence of my home office frustrated me. I took a hot shower to ground myself, which often does the trick, and then returned to writing. At this point, the original thesis or subject of my words shifted with my thoughts, and that suited me just fine. Earlier I had been overcome, irritated beyond belief mentally physically and perhaps spiritually too, by my role of being an artist, which is commonly known to involve, for example, my latest novel Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, my masterpiece. However, the point to my sitting at my desk began to metamorphose on its own. That's one thing I love about writing and writing therapy. How it helps me. It keeps things simple, and it helps my thinking become clear. Being the mainstream literary author is known to be 50% writing and 50% marketing, and it was the business aspect, the marketing, that ripped at my soul. At least that was how I felt. I felt defeated. While writing therapy is a tool I take quite seriously, perhaps I was not upset with the onslaught of internal difficulties, my own goal of being the best, being on the bestseller list, that doesn't matter any longer, and that's not why I write. I write for therapy, and that is why I keep fighting my mental health condition, my mind, every single day, because I can overcome the demons, the delusion, and the distractions. Perhaps this morning my cognitive behavioral therapist would have reminded me that my mind plays tricks on me, or that we all suffer in some way from cognitive distortions. He would remind me of how cognitive distortions and living with mental illness can take its toll on interpersonal relationships. After all, I believe we are all in the same boat in many ways. And it comes down to something very cliched yet entirely true. We all have problems, but let's not kid ourselves.
It's how we deal with them that make the difference. I ponder on what the difference is. In my question, I see the answer. I see my self-confident smile once again. Relationships with family and friends have faded and deteriorated in my world. But then just the opposite occurs, sometimes at the drop of a hat. I am grateful for living on a mental roller coaster and not a merry-go-round. My illnesses make me unusual, as I said, and sometimes I think we all just need to give ourselves a time out to be alone for a bit, simply to figure some things out. Usually, we can see a problem in a new way when we focus our eyes someplace new. That's what the past hour has taught me. It's good. Good enough. Realistically, things may not be as bad as they seem. Sometimes another perspective on distressing matters can help. I see it as my task, perhaps our collective task, to be resilient even if some days we just have to be there for ourselves when we are feeling alone in the enterprise. We move on. There's no way around it. I ask myself now if I feel okay, and the smile is back. Thank goodness. One last note. I've often doubted my abilities and my perception of my reality by fearing others and feeling myself withdrawing and going inside, losing hope of coming back to myself with any peace of mind. The future, that's not where I am. I'm right here in the now. Catherine Hepburn once said, if you obey all of the rules, you miss all of the fun. I apply that to writing and writing therapy, as well. Living with mental illness. Better doesn't mean cured by Jonathan Harnish sometimes. I feel that I don't know what's going on or that I don't care about anything. I am confused by my feelings because I'm not able to explain how I feel, except for the emptiness, and I feel that no one is really there for me, even if they are, or that nobody understands me anymore. It feels like I have nothing to look forward to. I'm a compulsive liar, but I don't understand why I do it. I create intriguing stories about myself, to the point that I can't even tell who I really am anymore. I lie to feel better about myself. Maybe, once I realize I'm a spectacular person just the way I am, I will stick with the truth. I also try to respect people, including myself, who maybe don't deserve it. This does not reflect the other person's character but reflects mine, and I miss the mark, sometimes out of frustration, questioning why, it's always me who tries to be right. I feel that other people are wrong at times, but at the end of the day, respect is better than lowering myself, even the tiniest bit. I'm better than that. I just woke up from another nap, and I write down my scattered thoughts about emotional pain, while in a state of complete confusion because of the disorder currently in my life. Of all the things I've lost, I miss my mind the most, though it might, just might, return, even if only for a second. I believe I have lost the battle with my own mind, but I still carry on feeling completely alone in the Enterprise, which is where I want to be. I want to be alone. It is the closest thing I can think of to pressing the pause button on life, especially in the relationships I have with other people. I am a bad person to my wife. My biggest fear has always been that eventually she will see me the way I see myself. I can't stop thinking that I'm saying goodbye to my own sanity. I believe I have lost this war, 
perhaps a long time ago. My mind has always been a dark place, and somewhere I would not want my worst enemy to be, but despite all of these feelings, I still battle depression and man, am I tired? I want to feel like me again because, for a long time now, I have felt like someone else. The old me disappears as I fall deeper and deeper into oblivion. I need to be alone without any more external drama or chaos. I do not know how to deal with this feeling, except through anger, disdain, or withdrawing completely. When I can, I try to keep up with my art because it has saved me. For my own good and the good of others around me, I believe I need to be alone but not to be lonely, only to find some enjoyment or interest in my free time that let me be myself. Otherwise, I serve no purpose and certainly no positive purpose. I don't think I was ever meant to be or have ever served any purpose, except to communicate through my art, mainly my writing, to share these feelings for those who cannot. I have nothing else to lose. Sometimes, I feel the stress of everything in the world trying to claw into my mind, all at once and constantly, and I need something to help push me through life. Something like writing, or maybe music, or at times, just sleeping and not participating. I have miserable feelings inside me that I can't seem to control, though sometimes it feels like I can. Continuously, I fail and I hurt people, causing others anguish, wretchedness, hatred, and more. I feel that I cause the same in myself, and so I stand back. I no longer interact with people due to this bizarre conflict that I do not know how to handle. I continue to fight for my wife and stepchildren and my many pets but not for myself, because in reality, giving up is just not an option. It never has been. So far, though, I have lost this fight. I walk away from day-to-day -day life because I want peace, but day-to-day -day life, and my past, keeps following me. I try not to argue with the people in my life, and I still hope for something. I just don't know what I'm hoping for, maybe peace of mind and no more distress or conflict. If I do pull through the chaos, it will be because I had to be my own hero, once again. It has to be that way because no one else can destroy me when I destroy myself, or rather the schizophrenia destroys me. Please just save me. Fix me. I have fought this battle more than once, and I have still not won. It creeps upon me and terrifies me to pieces. That's enough for now. I am being as honest as I can possibly be. Love me, hate me, hurt me, or kill me, I will still keep going. I'm still here, but entirely confused about how to relate to other, real people. I am a mental health problem, not a person. I am schizophrenia. I am no longer a person, not anymore. I sit back and watch the world go on around me, and I am a failure. The only place where my dreams become impossibilities is in my own mind. I can't see what is actually possible, even when that something is better than the hand of cards I have been dealt. The war against my own mind exists on a continuous loop and that is why I keep fighting, even if nobody is aware of it. I have been absent from the external world and lost within my broken mind. This is called depression, schizophrenia, or so many other names. I call it war. 
I will leave it at that for now because I know this will barely make sense to other people, though I could be wrong. I can't give up, and I won't give up. Considering I've been diagnosed with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, PTSD, borderline personality disorder, Tourette syndrome, diabetes, anxiety and depression, a rare blood disease, dyslexia, and cancer, I am doing okay. I'm fine, but I'm just not happy, and I'd rather be honest than impressive. This morning I wrote on a post-it note, Dear life, you suck. I am feeling a little bit better and stronger now. Still, I am not fine. I am sad, sick, hurt, angry, mad, and disappointed. Still, do you know what? I don't think people understand how stressful it is to explain what's going on in your head when you don't even understand it yourself. I am not sure if I am feeling better or if I'm just used to being sick. I did go on a spending spree last night, spending a little over $10,000. My inheritance was stolen due to family conflict and inheritance, medical, and other power of attorney rights, but I'll put on a smile and move on. It will hurt, but I will survive. Sometimes, I don't feel like living. I don't want to kill myself. I just want it all to stop or go away. I want to be calm. I want to be happy. I feel tired, the kind of tired that sleep can't fix. Every so often, I hope I fall asleep and never wake up. I'm scared. I'm scared of people. I'm scared of doctors. I'm scared of disease. I'm scared of life. I'm scared of death. But most of all, I'm scared of me. All I really need is the right medication, with side effects that won't kill me or make me worse and doctors who listen and care. I need family members who won't judge me and are willing to help me with my journey, friends who try to understand. I need my bed, comfy pillows, a heating pad, blankets, a good night's rest, and above all, a fucking cure. Things change, but it doesn't mean they get better. People with depression cannot snap out of it by Jonathan Harnish people with depression cannot snap out of it. My moods change frequently, and I am currently depressed. There is nothing more depressing than suffering from depression and still feeling sad. So, what's the point? Will it pass? No doubt. I forget what it's like to smile, and I mean for more than a couple hours now. I'm talking about now, not later. I forget what it's like to be a lovely or loving person, or if I ever was such a person at all. One of love, of goodness, of graciousness. I forget how it feels to truly live, much less how to live life to the fullest. I just exist. Right now, I simply exist, with my pulse and my breath and maybe some tears, if I am even able to let them roll a river down my face and flood the seas and the world with them, to get them out. I try to get myself out of this mood. This life. This episode of depression. Sure, I'll return to normal. Sure. Still, I have temporarily lost the point of living a life, pretending to smile or laugh, or getting a joke every darn hour when there are people around me who only want to see me happy. Well, I am not happy, and overall I have not been happy for most of my life. If anything, I glamorize the past, and even the present, sometimes.
It'll pass, but that's not the point. The point is how I feel now. The point is right now. Yes, I know it will pass. I know people love me, but I do not currently know what that should feel like. I just can't remember. I feel so lost. Gone. Yet I continue, and therefore I inspire, I'm often told. But I am still depressed. I am still in this chair, writing out this rubbish because it gets so overbearing I can't tell you. I'm not alone. I know that, too, but that feels and sounds so contrived and lackluster, uninspiring, to me right now. I pretend to be so damn nice and funny and charming for others, just for them, so I don't lose a Facebook friend or whatnot. Nevertheless, I have zero real-life friends. I'm not sure if I ever have had any. Well, maybe, sort of, but they probably felt sorry for me. Who cares? I don't know. I am not even my own friend. This has been true for most of my life. I got into a good school, which I didn't even belong in. I live my former Hollywood life, which never did anything for me worthwhile. I exaggerate about how cool the time in my life was, way back, back in the day. Now, I can barely move. I can barely see. I've been here many times. So don't worry about me. Just send a hug, as if I'd ever feel any real hug. Virtual hugs are probably better because there is no effort involved. No feeling, and I can just barely feel. This is why I write this kind of stuff. Just keep writing, says that little voice in my head. Get it all out, all that you can. Do it now. 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 Get me out of right now. Remind me of some clever quote or cliché, reminding me how they are just reminders over and over again of how hard it actually is, in this case for anyone, to do, let go, move on, it'll pass, it'll pass, and so forth. I pretend to live, pretending to be myself, as if that would ring true. Oh, that's just your mental illness speaking, some say. Well... Then I guess I am just one full bag of happiness, and I am over it. Did I snap out of it? Of course. And again, I will get out of this depressed state, just not now, and I will do it only to see it return. I am incapable of getting but one positive thought out, so I am sorry for not pretending right now, even for just a minute. Maybe I still am pretending. I am sick, twisted, and wrong. I don't belong. Other people have it worse. I suppose I don't deserve or have the right to be depressed. I need to think about them. Poor them. Hate me. Sometimes I pretend to love the life I live. What's the point? As Faulkner said, basically, the reason to live is to get ready to stay dead a long time. Okay, thanks, Mr. Faulkner. Seriously? What is the point? Tell me about it, about how we are all just here winging it, trying to get by. I am not getting by. I watch the clock and wait, and wait, and wait for tomorrow. Oh, how sad and pitiful. Get rid of this guy, this guy Jonathan. Hell, I can't even walk two feet without being right here with myself, as myself. There is no escape. I just know hope. It's that same hope that gets me and brings me back here, 
for now. Tell me the point and I'll tell you why I am so damn me, but it doesn't mean I'm really proud of this. Make me understand you as I tried to do the same. People with depression cannot snap out of it. Until my next episode, and otherwise until next time, getting through an episode by Jonathan Harnish. The curtain opens. I am Jonathan. I have schizophrenia. I don't want to make a big introduction. Perhaps some of you have read my work before. For me, schizophrenia is similar to what I have read. In the early material, from such turn-of-the-century psychiatrists as Cray Eppelin and Blue Uller, there seems to be plenty of subgenres or comorbidities with this condition, which I have had since I was a boy. I believe my traumatic upbringing, at least for me, though not my sister, who was brought up in the same environment, likely set off my illness. A series of other, seemingly ongoing traumatic events in my adult life have created complications, as my doctor would call them. I experience manifestations of other mental health conditions from autism to borderline personality disorder, and my case, for lack of a better word, involves many symptomatic days and times which often cycle rapidly. For example, my moods can fluctuate up to 30 times per day, with concomitant autistic experiences, and muscular manifestations and malfunctions. A significant number of the comorbidities of which I suffer, not only just happen and I deal with them, but rather they create reactions to even the simplest things. I battle through daily life. I experience confusion with electronic devices, which is likely and appropriately a common symptom of schizophrenia itself. I may need to reply to an email and I forget how to, or I go to turn on my computer and I forget how to find, much less press, the power button. At the opposite end, on another day, or even another hour, I am capable of solving advanced logic and mathematical problems. While I often forget the simplest things, I have a photographic memory. Let me back up for a moment, I left off my last essay, mentioning that I would be back writing during my next episode. And I am having an episode right now. Schizophrenia might be considered an umbrella disorder, though I am not a doctor of any kind. I consider myself an unemployed artist with a botched trust fund and a life that, in terms of conventional reality, doesn't actually exist, so I create delusions, or in a way, a double self not a multiple personality, which is one of the myths of schizophrenia. This double reality, despite all the chaotically misfiring neurons in my brain, helps me to have experiences that replace the uncomfortable truths or situations that I prefer not to have. To exist. To be not myself, though loved ones have told me that there is a core, an, over-soul, that is intact throughout my schizophrenic life. My thought has trailed off slightly while I was about to write one last bit on my episode, primarily consisting of paranoid thinking that I should keep on writing through my now former episode until I could break through it. That is what I do. I archive my writing. Often, and only when I am feeling symptomatic, I go back to the categorized collected written words that I have been documenting since I was a boy so that I can see what happened through my point of view and so learn how to cope better the next time. I take my writing to my therapist, explaining what happened. 
I often bring up with him that my life is incredibly synchronistic with my books, which consist of a series of 36 alibis of what makes me who I am so that I can know, so that I can understand and so that I can keep going and move the hell onward as I always do. I always come back. My intention for this essay was perhaps that it would be another inserted chapter in my literature, my books, my documentaries, my life, my art, and my reason. But that thought has now trailed off as well, and I had only begun what I referred to as what was not my beginning, or my introduction to this piece. What I would like to do now is simple, take a 10 minute break. Time goes on, with people coming in and out of my office and interacting with me, communicating. My goal now is to return to my laptop and recall the five minutes after my last break. I mean my cigarette break when I wrote the initial thought that trailed off. Things change. Holy cow, things change. I am back. But I can't stop now without completing this piece, my three-act play, my opera, where I am not the conductor but feel I should be, naturally, if I did not have schizophrenia. I was the violin section. I was beating the melodic tom-tom drum. I was the full orchestra performing live, both alone and with an audience. Together, all the musical instruments communicating with each other, creating a rusty fragmentation, if you will, communicating with me, at my core. I'll take a break now, and I will recap how I got through this one, this brief setback, and the five minutes that changed everything. I know I can recall what happened. And I will. I never intentionally abandon what I am doing at any moment. Again, I always move ahead. There is at least some sun after the storm. If I can stay on track, or if not, while I still play this out live, some might be able to see the stream of thought that is my specialty, where I present a typical day living with schizophrenia. And I'll call it a good day at this point. I can't lose what I already have. If I do, I will grab something else and run with that. In summary, if I am able, for thoughts still bombard my psyche, overlapping and wild, I will, and if not, I will just move the hell on. And let this go. I should have better things to do than to examine my day-to-day -day experiences with schizophrenia. And you know what? Maybe I will. However, I can't leave anyone hanging. The show is not over yet. The chips are not down. I will simply do my best to finish on the stage, close the curtain, and become the director, the switchboard operator in my head. I have nothing to lose now. I am at war. Just not in combat. I am now in reserve. So let's get to some meat, the heart of this, and some completion. Something. Anything. It is also confusing and stressful. Stressful? Damn right. But it fuels me. It fuels everything. No matter what those five minutes involved, from overlapping tears and a hardcore crying spell, followed by recentering a crooked picture on the wall, to having a can of soda and a smoke, a cigarette smoke mind you. Nothing more. I can laugh now. Maybe it doesn't matter. My brain chemistry changed, all on its own. I am back again. I have returned another time from within the hallways of going deep into Wonderland, and back and forth.
That is something I am used to. The sun is now out, at last and at least for now. Until, well, we'll just see what comes next. Roll credits. Insert title card. The end. Fade out. Asterisk. Amendment. There is no end. I walk off stage. The seats are empty. I am back in real life. Well, sort of. The story of my life with schizophrenia continues. The curtain draws shut. You can also find Jonathan on Google+, Facebook, and Twitter, which is his preferred social media site. Author Jonathan Harnish has written a semi-fictional and semi-autobiographical best-selling novel, Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, which is available on Amazon and through most major booksellers. He is also a noted, and sometimes controversial, mental health advocate, a fine artist, blogger, podcast host, patent holder, hedge fund manager, musician, and film and TV writer and producer. Google him for more information. December 27, 2014, early morning time to reflect. To my loving wife, my life, and to the professor on Twitter. Dear Diary, you have become my mentor. You encourage me. You support me and appreciate my work. You are one of the few who actually get me. You make me feel good, validated, and worthwhile. Thank you from the bottom of my heart and the depths of this maze of my mind. I would rather any day that my work is made to serve, not merely just entertain and sell, to teach is to love, to have the inherent desire to educate. I have been working with my alma mater to become involved with their art community with my impressive resume, though I am noted as being the typical down-to-earth man. I may laugh at my illness when I can. I see beauty in the subtleties of life, and have a passion, a deep passion. If I am not creating, I feel as if I may not live. My imagination on fire, my alter egos are real and they inspire all that I do, even telling me what not to do, not to hurt, maim, or inflict pain on self. The real Claudia was a woman I met for 24 hours, and I wrote 1,200 pages about it with her as a mere mental concept to expand upon in my literature. A while back, I received a note from a reader who commented, Gosh, that's very interesting to read. I suppose no reader would ever have guessed, I'd bet, plus 1,200 pages of notes for the series, of which there are 30-something rough drafts of books in the series to get to and onslaughts of film, video, and art footage and files. Piles and stacks of writing, as I journal, documenting life, second by second in some way, desiring a legacy, to leave a dent on this otherwise misappropriated world. To teach is to love and I am glad to have you both as teachers of my work. I am human, a human first, and I believe that if I have an idea or a thought or an image in my mind, words, visualizations, rhythms and sounds, and otherwise entangled feelings and sensations, I hope to manifest them, making them palpable in some way. To have that go to waste is to waste something, perhaps not inside Jung's collective unconsciousness. A burning desire has ignited in me, all of my life, to elicit emotion, positive emotion. To teach, to learn, to live, to love, 
to pass on. Thank you for being that person. I don't want to be a professional. I want to be an artist, and I am an artist. My mind is not diseased as much as it is special, moreover universal, as is any human thought or sensation. If I feel lonely, isolated, lost, and bewildered, then others might feel love, loss, grief, or inadequacy, and if I feel explicitly sexual, or obsessive, others do, because we are all human. I believe there is nothing original if one human senses a feeling or has an experience. To be human is to be the hacker, or a programmer, and the painter, the artist. To live, to learn, to love, to lose, and to die, for me these matters of fact exemplify the very identity of the human race. I have wanted inclusion in the human race forever, until I realize that I am included. I have been for a very long time. Perhaps I am a very old soul, so to speak. These scattered morning thoughts may indeed be fragmented and congested, or maybe not. As disordered as my schizophrenia illnesses, I create to make sense of it, my mind, and my brain. I did my art. I left my legacy and I am still here. Beyond anything else, I am grateful for what I have gained and what I have lost, physically and mindfully. I have nothing to lose, only more to create. For the rest of my life I will continue to do what I feel and when I feel it. It may be a sort of zen thing, but so far it works. Today's goal is to lose the fear, all fear and become fearlessly in love with the world within me and without. Long live the arts and long live life. Thank you. Jonathan Harnish December 29, 2014 Early morning time to reflect. I am a troubled artist today. I do not know what day it is. I am extremely frustrated. Unable to ground and center myself, I feel restless. I am, I am not me. I am not myself today. I cannot recall who that person was. But I know he was here. I understand him. He will resurface again some other time, hopefully soon. I recall the first person. I know of no second person. I need the third person, the person I think I remember, to return. This must be the hyper-reality from some other day, which I wrote about for inclusion in my next novel. I recall that something I said on camera was scattered and disjointed and yet was a center point, something to ground me for further writing. No censor today and, so far, no highlights showing typos or grammar errors, and no system overload on the computer. The internet seems to be back on, online. I don't need the internet now. I need a complication. I need the morning after and to melt away, to manifest the titles for my latest work. Beginning to view these calms me and allows me to see beauty in the abstract. But I know the original images, which flicker on the screen in the morning after and also chance encounter, emptying his pockets, and melt away, the film I have not released yet. The one I am still working on, just not right now. The rough cut just finished exporting, I see. But I need to write, to set aside all film and art but for the written journal. Dear Diary, as I say, in the books, the novel I just published, Lover and the Nobody. But I just need, right now, 
to write so I can feel, not so I can move on. I will, and I will have to. All artistic projects must be on hold now, although the fire in my mind is ever present, I brought it to a halt. I fixed in my mind, my obsession. I paused. I did the right thing. This is my medication. My early morning thoughts and ventilations that often come out in the shower. I will not run through the documentation of the yesterday that was. I do not recall yesterday. I recall right now as time continues. I allow myself to become stuck for good reason in right now. I can't move on. And I won't. That's altering time. That's moving along with it, as indefinable as time is, continuous, relatively, or moment by moment. I believe I see it right now. Moment by moment. Trapped in between the moments I think is where I should be, I once heard that, come to think of it, somewhere, a psychic or something a long time ago. My cats are dying. This is a stream of thought. This is how I cope. Issues with film and literature. Little things. But it is all on hold. Rather, they are done. I manifest what I write and the chapter names become the chapters in my hours. The 24-hour woman 240 times 10 pages. It's complex composite sketching. Manifesting words into life. I had to look it up to find what day of the week it was, and it is Monday. Compulsive about dates. I cannot remember anything about there ever being a Sunday, just that my cats are dying. I chain smoke five to six packs of cigarettes per day and chew two to three cans of smokeless tobacco. This was written about too, the slow semi-suicide of the mind. Now the body is coming to die. But I won't, I don't like this at all. My cats are dead from my smoke. I scared off the thought, and I can't stop smoking. I will cope when they die. It's strange. Real. Strange. The morning after is beautiful. I think that's what it is. But I couldn't tell you. Maybe writing this out a little bit helped, but I am not better. Smoke lingers in the pad, and I want drugs. I can't have any drugs. I can't have any illegal drugs, only prescribed medication for my anxiety and some other things, like schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is also a drug. It's been almost 12 years since my last hit. But I do, I crave crack. I fucking crave it just for now. In some strange self-deprecating way I want to die from it. I am just still not willing to die from some asinine knee-jerk suicide, a senseless reaction. I don't want it today. The anxiety is torture enough. I want it to pause. For life to pause. I need beauty. One hour later, I took my morning anxiety medication eight hours ago. But I woke up at 1 a.m. last night. I feel better. I feel like William Burroughs as he was in Junkie. I load a dip of tobacco onto my lower lip after my final cigarette, my last smoke until 8 a.m. so my cats won't die from it as they sit here sick with me. I feel better. We all move on. For once today in the few hours since midnight, I feel a sense of medicated bliss. And it is doctor approved. It's junk. But it's complicated. My opening line in my latest work. The one sentence of profound profanity. Anti-art. 
I live for art. Otherwise nothing matters. I have always sought meaning. I wanted complexity. I wanted a complicated life, and I sure got one. Oddly enough, I can be grateful for that. I am. And so, for the record, I am already drugged. I was, I am, and I have always lived in my own private hyper-reality. That is what all of this, these words, the disjointednesses. The following fragmentation to come. The variation. The skewed view of time, space, self, and others. Everything. It is what all of this about. My consciousness has not been able to distinguish reality from a simulation of reality. I do not live in any technologically advanced postmodern society. I do not live. I do not die. I am a walking thought. I am a collection of them. I am myself. I am you. I am everybody on the earth plane who has ever lived. I am everyone who has not, and this confuses me at times. I am not God, nor a God, nor anything, nor being of the divine. I am nothing but a recorder of collected thoughts and pieces of the world. There is no point. There is nothing. There is everything. And I am a tiny representation of a speck of hyper-reality itself. That would be the best way to put it, at least for now. One might simply consider me completely insane. The story continues. Gus by Jonathan Harnish Introduction. A Wheel of Fortune Georgie Gust is a loner. He is sometimes withdrawn, and has a fairly chilly, nonchalant personality. Although he is introverted, he is extremely rational. He is wary at times of the outer world, his senses, and even his intellect, because they might all be sources of illusion. His quest for identity with a spiritual whole gives him a voracious appetite for ideologies, structures, and theories. Readings that others would find abstract and intellectual impress him as reflections of important and lively realities. As a result, he has a penchant for reflection and philosophical study. He is intrigued by difficult problems and enjoys solving them. There is no difficulty, which can discourage him from the goal he has decided to reach for himself. His depth of vision, common sense, and caution, his tendency to be a bit calculating and sometimes conservative, his stamina, and his independent mind all give him the ability to tackle difficult tasks. His faculties for concentration give him an undeniable gift for abstraction and conjecture. As a theoretician, he aims to discover what is essential and universal. Indeed, he seeks to go beyond what is relative, contingent upon circumstances, or inadequate. His budding intuition is extremely receptive to the sacred or holy. As a result, the ideal or cause he espouses will be related to the concept of universality or totality. Since his lifetime adventure is based in part on this absolute truth, it is important for him to make an effort to define its nature. What sort of universality is he striving for? What spiritual Everest in himself or outwardly is he trying to scale? In fact, he tends to like mountain climbing, because the effort it requires is a great joy for him. Alone at the peak, he can contemplate and understand everything. In pursuit of this absolute center, positive or negative, which animates him, 
Georgie is shrewd and persistent. Stamina and endurance are resources of which he is quite confident. His existence and organism are arranged to optimize them. Others may consider him slow, but he is really just playing it safe, because, unconsciously, he knows time is on his side. When he takes an initiative, it is after careful forethought and preparation. His great composure, his ability to resist and overcome obstacles and wickedness, and his foresight give him a great potential to accomplish total self-control. However, he must be aware of one pitfall, excess. He tends to be a bit too rigid and intolerant. In intellectual pursuits, he can tend to be dogmatic, hermetic, or conformist. Some people criticize his obsession with labeling things. A creature of duty, naturally sober and relatively self-disciplined, sometimes a little too demanding of himself. Georgie Gust might commit himself to a productive lifestyle as readily as to a stoic philosophy. The path to liberty mapped by a respect for order is not the easiest to follow. Georgie's introverted personality gives him an attitude of reserve. He appreciates solitude and does not always enjoy sharing his feelings. He avoids superficial human contact as much as possible. Indeed, he sometimes feels uncomfortable at long, drawn-out social occasions and activities, and his interest in others is aroused only when they discuss subjects of special concern to him, such as his own business. This cold exterior hides a lively sensitivity and a heart eager for passion. Quite sensitive and sometimes vulnerable to emotional urges, Georgie would rather be safe than sorry. He tends to avoid casual dating and meaningless love affairs because they may destabilize him. As in every other endeavor, any emotional enterprise he embarks upon will be for the long term, after careful forethought and deliberation. He prizes deep feelings and the intense passion they rouse. Once he finds a kindred spirit, he will have to learn how to express his feelings and release long PENT urges. It is important for him to succeed, because if his emotions are deprived of the energy to obtain a release, his personality will become mired in a bog of unconscious repressed desires and frustrated yearnings. The inability to assert the aspirations of his heart would be reflected by a type of behavior, which would bring on his total isolation and separation from others. Georgie Gust wants to wield power and enjoy social prestige. He feels quite at home in the modern world others find frightening. He derives great rewards from every source of pleasure or creation, physical, artistic, or emotional. He has a penchant for speculation, modesty, analytical mind, need for security, strict logic, inhibition, attention to details, application, perfectionism, methodical mind, worry and anxiety, foresight, nervousness, loyalty. Georgie has a reserved, serious personality and a chilly, modest demeanor. Because of his keen intelligence, he is very much at ease with any task or research that requires long-term discipline and meticulousness. However, he feels uncomfortable in most social settings because they draw too heavily on his emotional energy. As a result, even though he may excel in his field, he will prefer a behind-the-scenes role to one in which he might be forced to be on display. Secretive and relatively inhibited in the expression of his feelings, he is nevertheless a faithful partner in love. Georgie Gust has a fiery, impulsive, 
confrontational personality. He will readily accept challenges and try to overcome obstacles, no matter whether he wins or loses. He must prepare himself by finding a source of true self-confidence in order to enter the fray, be it social or existential, as fit as possible for his symbolic victory. He must never forget that he is the main instigator of the conflicts in which he is embroiled and that he must respect his adversaries if he wishes to respect himself. Talents and Abilities As an employee, Georgie needs to feel like a free agent. He is quite independent and will only occasionally work with the team on a specific task. He is especially attracted to unconventional work environments where innovative techniques and structures are the norm. His penchant for examining the mysterious, hidden side of human relations and things in general may seem enigmatic and twisted to some. Psychologically, he is shrewd and clever, but he does not always try to be diplomatic in his relations with others. Georgie is sometimes driven by a collector's urge to gather things together, sort them out, arrange them, and organize them into coherent wholes. In the career where he chooses to apply his methods, he will become a technician and specialist. He makes use of the same sort of intelligence to communicate and sort information. Ambitions and Motivations he cannot conceive of a career that does not involve diversity and motion. He is full of humor and wit, gifted for communication and trade. His insatiable curiosity may induce him to pursue several goals simultaneously. He has an appetite for learning new things every day, and would be uncomfortable in a static or monotonous occupation. His ability to adapt and his learning skills would certainly be his best personal resources for career development. However, his carelessness and nonchalance may play a few tricks on him. The words that are his keys to success, application, tenacity, knowledge, construction, determination, leadership. Georgie Gus strives to be greater and to live intensely. His creative capacities may be expressed by fathering children or by any other form of personal accomplishment. He will have to be dynamic and enterprising in his professional activity. Whatever field he chooses, he must not hesitate to put his best foot forward and make a show of personal initiative and drive. The fear of committing himself totally individually and emotionally could be detrimental to his social success. On the other hand, excessive self-assurance, haste, or an uncontrollably competitive spirit could be a source of momentary difficulties. Moderation in all things. In the career world, Georgie will exhibit a bold and daring character. His lively imagination, enthusiasm, and energy give him all the qualities necessary to become a leader of men. However, his taste for risk and bravado could be the source of errors of judgment. For this man, the work world must rouse this sustained interest. He has a need to commit himself to it personally, and everything he accomplishes has to bear the seal of his personality. His ideals are fairly high, and he is liable to experience some frustration when they are not completely fulfilled. He has certain artistic leanings, and although he may not commit himself to an artistic career, the work he does produce will certainly display his sense of harmony, composition, and good taste. In his quest for a rewarding career, Georgie is under strains that may hinder his efforts or judgment. 
His tendency to be hesitant and vague may cause certain problems in his professional life. It would be a good idea if he set up a fairly rigid system for budgeting his energies. He should also draw a strict distinction between his personal expression and his social behavior. Career Keywords Georgie should be able to succeed in fitting into society using his perseverance to achieve his goals and his ability to get straight to the point. His intellectual abilities, which enable him to untangle complex situations or phenomena, his ability to combine a variety of ideas to produce a new synthetic vision of structures, his determination to delve into a subject, and his resistance to pressure are excellent advantages that will facilitate his search for a rewarding career. However, his pessimism, defiance, and occasionally excessive severity may trip him up. Instinctive motivations, withdrawal, isolation, concentration, desire to climb, pronounced narcissism, independence, self-assertiveness, restraint, control, discipline, excellence, Primary psychological functions, thinking, abstraction, meditation, edification, displaying, assertion of domination, perceiving, identifying, establishing, justifying, career activities and resources, studying, counting, analyzing, conserving, stabilizing, establishing, controlling, banning, administrating, governing, creating, leading, shining, evaluating, performing, guiding, controlling, counting, filing, analyzing, measuring, refining, grasping, checking, regulating, fabricating, providing care, symbolic tools and elements, earth, stones, insects, skins and leather, abstract things, society, his own body, valuable artistic objects, society, culture, health, animals, small objects, manufactured goods, relations with others, he may in time experiment with a dual form of companionship, marriage or intimate relationship, which symbolizes two aspects of his psyche. He likes to work in conjunction with other people. They may contribute financial help in some circumstances. With a tendency to underachieve, Georgie tries to protect himself from setbacks, in both his professional life and his relationships. He tends to need serenity and security to achieve happiness. His home and children will be very important aspects of his life. Material assets and resources, he prefers to work under supervision or as part of a group. He is especially interested in matters of form, artistic, legal, etc. Georgie will assert his social position by work that is financially productive. He has a fairly complex relationship with money and material wealth. He is by turns greedy and detached. His ambivalent and sometimes destructive attitude is relatively hard for those close to him to understand. One way or another, life will lead him to reconsider his sense of values and the way he manages his financial resources. At that point, he will have to become more aware of his relationship with money. He will have to learn to smooth the peaks out of his appetite for the material world that alternates with an aversion to it. Georgie's hidden psychic energies may burst forth from his unconscious in a sudden flood. They will result in immediate and positive action. He feels an affinity for profound knowledge or spiritual questions. 
Georgie's personal ambition could fuel a business or corporation that recognizes his qualities. In this case, he truly has the ability to increase the economic or socio-cultural wealth and standing of the corporation. A gifted manager, predestined for executive functions, he is an expert investor for a business's human resources as well as its capital assets. Although some of his associates may resent his high opinion of himself, he has a gift for resolving the personal dislikes and frictions that keep a group from functioning smoothly. He knows how to unify and motivate people. Privately, he is almost excessively proud of his corporate position, and he may tend, somewhat unfairly, to believe he is personally responsible for certain corporate successes. The fact that he feels almost indispensable to the other members of the group is his weak point, because it may rouse jealousy and hostility. Emotions and creativity. Feelings of anxiety sometimes restrain his potential for creative and emotional expression. His demeanor is sober and impressive, it may be difficult for him to relate to children. He will fulfill his creative potential by writing or in daily life. A creature of feelings and emotions, Georgie sometimes has doubts about himself and his true nature. To compensate for this uncertainty, and to feel alive, he needs to express himself and project onto other people. He is compelled to leave the mark of his unique identity upon the world, an identity he discovers at the same time as it springs out from his inner depths. As a result of this rather egocentric spontaneity, he is not always conscious of the impact of his words and deeds on others. He sometimes unconsciously generates power struggles and tensions in the people around him. The upshot of these psychological considerations is that expression, creation, biological or artistic, and love as a projection of the self onto the love object are the primary manifestations of his vital forces. These characteristics may take on any number of forms and be applied to such diverse activities as teaching, art, communication, and gambling and speculation. It is easy for Georgie to externalize and express himself. He enjoys speaking in public, and takes pleasure in playing with words and manipulating concepts. Because his artistic expression is strongly influenced by his feelings, he could develop some literary talent. However, in other fields of expression, he will have to guard against his lack of objectivity and make an effort to structure his ideas more solidly. Cultural and Intellectual Pursuits his subtle intelligence incites him to probe the hidden, the complex, the enigmatic, etc. Thinking and intellectual work have a very important place in his life. He is curious and might have the opportunity to travel a lot. Georgie's daily life and schedule are rarely smooth and routine. His relationship with his environment is eventful, characterized by eruptions and sudden departures. His youth and intellectual development were probably marked by a special situation. Perhaps an unstable home life and a series of changes forced him to quit school. If he did, he probably pursued his studies independently, and is self-taught. Although he has developed highly original and individual opinions, he also tends to change them rapidly, adjusting them to shifting socio-cultural trends political and economic fads, etc. His mental and intellectual abilities lend themselves to practical, 
tangible accomplishments. He sometimes needs to compare his social status to his philosophical principles and express his findings. Home and hearth. Religious or philosophical concepts are important as an anchor for Georgie's personality. He might make his home abroad. He will sometimes feel a need to live with his friends to restore his energies. Despite the ups and downs common to anyone's family life, Georgie probably was lucky enough to grow up in a fairly warm and harmonious home environment. His individual presence was an element in the peacefulness of the surroundings, one of the bonds his parents shared. If this was indeed the case, Georgie will try to recreate the same balanced and cordial atmosphere when he fathers his own family. His beloved home will doubtless be one of his centers of interest. He will enjoy entertaining guests, surrounding himself with tasteful furnishings, and elaborating a refined and highly civilized lifestyle. He may even have a certain amount of luck as concerns his dwelling, and find a very pleasant home at a reasonable price. Although, like most people, Georgie would like to establish a solid foundation for his personality and his life, he is still fairly confused about the means to achieve this goal. He has the impression that all his attempts are doomed to fail and that he will never be satisfied by anything really solid. Because his strivings for security are so often disappointed, he continually questions his own idea of what would be good for him. In fact, the key for him lies in realizing that his need for security will never be gratified by the stability that reassures most people. Only the truly universal values, like faith and brotherhood, for example, will put his soul at ease and make him feel like a productive member of society. Social activities. In the choice of his friends, Georgie is guided chiefly by his intuition and sensitivity. He tries to enroll his friends' participation in all his creative endeavors, whatever their nature. He is sensitive to the moods of the people around him. He is also receptive to contemporary social trends, the invisible tide of values, needs, tastes, and desires that accompany social change. This type of intuition would be extremely valuable in such fields as advertising or politics. Jonathan is extremely sensitive to injustice and acutely aware of the shortcomings that prevent people from being happy. His vast circle of friends is very important and practically primordial to him, and he especially enjoys associating with women. He and his friends share a certain feeling of mutual brotherhood, and their intellectual exchanges are productive and stimulating. His strong sense of friendship makes him relate to people in an affectionate but fairly impersonal way. Nevertheless, he is always ready to do a favor. Georgie is not spontaneously attracted to cultural events. He is fairly conservative, and is most comfortable with traditional, orthodox values and lifestyles. The new ideas agitating artistic and intellectual circles seem silly and futile to him. He is fairly pessimistic by nature and unable to take idealists and utopian thinkers seriously, because he judges people according to their accomplishments. If he decided to become a creator or inventor of new forms, he would do so only in isolation, as a solitary seeker. He is quite aware of matters of hierarchy and rank, and it is difficult for him to relax and be open with friends or associates. As a result, his circle of friends is fairly small. 
he tends to choose people of experience who have acquired some wisdom from age. When Georgie speaks out in a group, he does so only as a recognized consultant or specialist, on the strength of his independent position. If Georgie really wants to improve and transform himself, the first step is to become aware of the weaknesses that may be holding him back and preventing his evolution. His coolness and distance. His lack of consideration for others. His rigidity. His need for total control. His fear of his emotions. Georgie Gust sometimes senses a conflict between his desire for social and professional success and his need for a stable, secure domestic life. He is deeply committed to both ideas, and does not always succeed in reconciling their schedules and demands on him. Sometimes it feels as though he will never be able to find a balance. However, no job promotion will really satisfy him if he has neglected his most intimate needs and desires. Although it sometimes seems easier to him to climb the rungs of the career ladder out there in the real world, if he merely sacrifices his domestic life, he is only trying to fool himself. He should accept the fact that his domestic life is the true basis and foundation of his development. All his career endeavors and success will be even more rewarding if they are supported by a safe, warm personal life. He is fairly independent and individualistic, so it is easy for him to detach himself from prevailing intellectual trends and pursue his activities independently. He may tend to be too self-centered. However, he is likely to encounter situations in life that require he adapt to new and unfamiliar circumstances by changing his system of values. If he clings to a narrow vision of the truth, certain relationship experiences may shatter it, leaving Jonathan with a feeling of loss and disorientation until he recovers. The best cure would be putting his determination into changing his life and concentrating on new goals. Georgie has a pretty gloomy opinion of himself. Until he frees himself from this state of mind, nothing in his life will bring him full satisfaction. To initiate a change in his negative self-image, to trust himself better and gain self-assurance, the first thing he must do is learn to say no. Once he is capable of saying no to others, he can say yes to life. He must develop his awareness of all the things he loves and feels positive about, as well as all the changes he hopes to make in order to enjoy life more. This is the foundation that will support him, the inexhaustible source and center of the transformation of his personality. Infantile anxieties, which arose in childhood when he was helpless, may be obstacles to Georgie's evolution. Sometimes they actually prevent him from daring to confront challenges he would be altogether capable of assuming now. One of the reasons he yields to these childhood fears so readily is that they procure a feeling so familiar to him that, although it is negative, it is a reassuring part of his identity. However, the more often he reinforces this complex by yielding to that feeling, the more unaware he becomes of his true emotional state. The irrational childhood fears have also reinforced his pessimistic tendencies. It is difficult for him to believe in the sunny side of life because of the pernicious little voice inside him reminding him he really doesn't deserve all this goodness. This side of him undermines his vitality and forces him to compensate or flee from reality. In doing so, 
he limits his power to bring about a positive change in himself or his life. It's a vicious cycle, and to free himself, the first step for him is to free himself from the fears that prevent him from taking full advantage of life. He can succeed if he arranges a relaxed, positive environment for himself, establishes sincere relations with one or two special people, and, if possible, finds a setting, perhaps a yoga class, in which he can practice relaxation exercises. The main goal for Georgie, in order to give purpose and meaning to his life, is to manage to be more practical. He must strive to implement his ideals in his daily life, in his relations with the people and objects he encounters every day. He should also try to introduce the abstractions and generalizations that make up his personal philosophy into down-to-earth realities. Let me lose my mind. Let me lose myself, and my body, spirit and soul. I've stopped. Is genius crazy? With my uncle lying in his deathbed like a clown, eating chicken with his mouth open and bulging eyes, I wondered if I should be laughing or crying. Then tears rolled down my cheeks when Uncle Eric, are you referring to Uncle Martin, Ben, from a very long time ago? No, that's Pops, not my uncle, so as for Uncle Eric, he reminded me with a quiet whisper. I'm not going to make it much longer, Ben. He drifted off to sleep as I departed. My experience with these final hours of my uncle's life taught me that sometimes people are better off dead when they are face to face with it. Who would want to live any longer in such a ridiculous state? Smoke break who will be the next big person to die, expire, and pass on? Digging up the damn dirt, parenthetical pet peeve. The past. I'm still here in the psych ward. No, I mean, in my home with the cinder blocks and cement and stuff. With my electronic bracelets and monitors. I haven't been able to escape yet, but they give me day passes and things. But I'm home. I'm still at home, you see. I stand, flinching, and cover the camera lenses, one at a time, until they see nothing but blackness. I sigh and continued to speak, parenthetical pet peeve, the bloody psych ward above all things. Yes indeed, I'm still here in the intensive treatment program at MT Shasta, fuck. This is what I call home. The bureaucratic intake nurse had given me this sheet, and after all these years I finally look it over and still don't give a damn about it. I have had more than enough time so if you would like to see it for yourself, that's up to you. Let me lose my mind. Let me lose myself, and my body, spirit and soul. I've stopped. Postscript. I think I might actually be crazy, after all. The, my so-called life series has more closure than we do. In other words, Claudia, it's over. It's finally over. I am breaking up with you, again. And again, what about God? Pessimists try to convince you the world sucks, optimists already know it does and smile anyway. Professional schizophrenia. I stand among you I was born into wealth. I have healthcare and a college degree. No debt. A home. I have more than enough. I want to live in a world where we all have enough. I am the 1%. I stand with the 99%. Confession of my iniquity I am a troubled man. I am not good. 
I've burned bridges. I can't make my mind up about anything. I can love, but I cannot fall in love. I don't know how to trust. I make more mistakes than I should. I am always sorry, but I never change. I am afraid of letting anyone else in my life too close to me. If you want to come into my life, the door is open. If you want to get out of my life, the door is open. I have just one request. Don't stand in the door and block the traffic. It's impossible to learn to plow by reading books sometimes. I feel like I don't know what's going on anymore, like I don't care about anything anymore. Confused about my feelings, not being able to explain how I feel, except emptiness. I may feel that no one is really there for me, even if they are, that no nobody understands me anymore, and it feels like I have nothing to look forward to. I feel nothing. I'm a compulsive liar. I don't understand why I do it. I make intriguing things up about myself. I can't even tell who I really am anymore. It seems I lie in order to feel better about myself. Maybe once I realize I'm a pretty spectacular person just the way I am, I'll stick with the truth. I also try to show respect, even to people, including myself, who may not deserve it not as a reflection of character but as a reflection of mine but i miss the mark sometimes out of frustration questioning why it's always me who tries to be right feeling that other people are doing the wrong things at times but at the end of the day respect is better it's better not to even lower myself the tiniest bit i'm better than that conversation with self i woke up and set myself the goal of getting out of bed I achieved it. I set my next goal of getting washed and dressed, and I achieved this too. Next, I successfully went to my first appointment of the day. Am I afraid? I was. At first. Why? Because I know I am dying, and I'm not finished. With what? I don't know. Then why did you let yourself die? I didn't know I had a choice. Did it hurt? Not in a way you will understand. Well, what did it feel like then? It felt like forgetting. Like my life was slowly pouring out of me as I lay there grasping for it with invisible fingers. I watched it fall out of me as if it had never happened. It was that fast, the undoing of it all. And, just like that, it was gone. I was undone. I saw you at age 38, my same age and I understood your own forgetting and how difficult it was to keep a life going when there was no body anymore. I understood my body was going. My arms were numb, my head heavy, my eyelids caked shut. I understood my body was disappearing, and I was afraid for what that meant. I was afraid of who I'd be without my body. And how would my grandchildren know the sound of my voice? And, oh my god, they wouldn't. It felt like forgetting. Letting go of the body is an effortless thing, unless you fight for it, and that's what I did. I fought. I fought to bring my body back. But I was too tired. I gave up fighting when I understood. What did you understand? That you might forget small details, but that you'd carry on my legacy. And that you and your mommy and your sister would know that I love you and do the best I could and that maybe I was finished. How can anyone really know, anyway? Did you? 
do the best you could? I don't know. Yes. Maybe. No. Why is it so hard to do our best? Because we forget. The drug I take is called schizophrenia, among other labels. I desperately want to put it away. I want to put the drug of schizophrenia down, and I want to put down the stigma surrounding its label. Thank you to those who have been thinking of me and asking how I have been through different online social networks. My overall health has been in a state of decline. Surely I will lose even more personal friends and public fans by posting this, mostly on my personal private Facebook page. But thank you to those who have shown concern. I am doing all I can, my best, and taking all the proper medical treatments and recommendations seriously. There is not much else I can do. Intermission, to my wife. I have been sleeping, but only for an hour or two at a time every now and then with so many vivid nightmares and just the stinking depression which sometimes turns into anger. I am still waiting for the review from Dr. K who may not get to it before I see him again on Tuesday as you know. And though I lose so many friends, I mean real friends, at least I thought they were or at least played some small but important role in my life years ago. I like to hold on to those moments like in the beginning of Ali biography with the friends in the Eiffel Tower chapter. It is hard when I can feel my own death dawn on me. I haven't the abilities to do much work, if any, and even the television hurts my eyes. I just sit here in a sort of existential despair in a way. Anyway, even writing this message takes so much out of me. I can't tell you. I will undoubtedly have 12 years clean and sober in a few days and my birthday on the 17th. Also, my third novel is in Publishers Weekly with the fourth set up so far with two additional definite literary journals. And my podcast, which I was going to record today but I felt acutely ill again when it became time. I noticed I had my most successful day yesterday, the highest stats of all time. The day in the life of an eccentric man, the 312 hour documentary was viewed by over 2000 people in one single day. On the other hand, speaking of my books, I went ahead and changed the summaries, blurbs, etc. But I actually have not made a sale since the 4th of January 1 have no idea what is going on unless they are getting the books at physical retailers, which if it is the case I wouldn't be notified for about 4-6 weeks or sometimes months afterwards. And now my Amazon pages are all messy and screwed up because of this darn brain disease, which makes me not be able to think straight. But hey. If I die tomorrow I know my father would take the books off the market. But I am glad there will always be a few hundred of them floating out there as my legacy. God bless you. I don't think I am winning this battle anymore. I usually rapid cycle, but this has been going on over two months. I am tired of fighting, not to say losing friends and mostly the fans I worked so hard to achieve. Then the Porcelain Utopia blog was shut down, etc. in 2013, after 250 million hits in just two years. Honey, this hurts too badly. Fuck those who unfriended me. My god, I still have 174,000 followers on Twitter and a few thousand on my Facebook fan page and on this personal Facebook there are only about 700 something. Also, 
My high on Twitter was just over 186,000, so I haven't lost it many since the closing of Porcelain Utopia. The URL, by the way, goes null any day. I abandoned it, though I could have sold it. It was worth so much due to the 25 million hits per day it was getting. Fuck. I hate this. Farewell Facebook. Sometimes, I forget to thank the people who make my life so happy in so many ways. Sometimes, I forget to tell them how much I really do appreciate them for being an important part of my life. Today is just another day, nothing special going on, so thank you, all of you, just for being here for me. Fuck Microsoft Word. It just deleted the two-page blog post I was going to post onto Facebook. Fuck Bill Gates. I'll rewrite it. Photographic memory. Fuck it. Farewell Facebook. I write fueled by hatred, bitterness, anger, and shame. And I forgot my introduction. Regardless, it was something about not giving a fuck. Just without the fucking swearing. No photo memory. No censor. Just pure and evil denials of my fucking self, and of course my family. That never dies. Boo-hoo. Okay. Begin fresh you little waste, you little piece of shit, Jonathan Harnish. Best-selling bullshitter. There. Lost another lost friend, just for saying thank you though I don't feel well. Offline I go. Rather off Facebook, this account. Thank you to those who do care and stick around. One could just hide feed. And I wish those who leave would just give me a good written lashing before leaving. Enjoy your day everyone. Find me on Twitter, www.twitter.com slash jwharnish, where 100,000 or so still have my back. I am sorry I am, again, so negative and hateful. That's just a Jonathan thing. Farewell Facebook my Facebook page, Jonathan Harnish page www.facebook.com slash jwharnish feeds directly to my main twitter account www.twitter.com slash jwharnish find me there on twitter if you wish to connect i am abandoning facebook due to lack of interest and as my health declines i post here on facebook often when wanting to tweet over 140 characters as for my personal Facebook account, I am pretty much done with it. Too many don't get it or rather, get me, as they say, a lot of my actions and behaviors online and in real life are simply just Jonathan things. No negativity in saying this, but the truth, that this is my Facebook page and I will continue to post what I want and as much or as little as I'd like. I have no real life friends, obviously because I am misunderstood, or just not the same person former friends used to remember, just being a little shy and twitchy, in school and such, but also brilliant. A nerd, a hacker, and thus the programmer, best understood better if you've read the classic by Paul Graham. Cheers and farewell, Facebook. It's my turn, and I haven't slept in days nonetheless. I use all my art, even this, this is the written word. It's art. It's mine. I use it for therapy and so it's not just Tom and me, my alter ego, alter, hallucination, spirit guide, and what have you.
I am sorry, I am so upset. My 39th birthday is soon in 12 years clean and sober, both in just a few days. And maybe that is part of the complications which have caused me to enter an existential crisis of sorts over the past few months. I am tired. I am bitter and I am losing my mind. My heart, to be honest, has temporarily run astray. I need to continue taking voices of schizophrenia inspired these words. Upon losing the majority of the content on this website, about 1,500 of the 2,000 blog posts from the last year 5 or 10 brought in 10 million hits in one month, last month, March 2012, with no backup. Care of myself. Thank you to those who continue to stick around, and make sure to give me a good written licking before you decide to leave. Never leave quietly. Burn that bridge, man. If we, if others aren't worth it, then it's like when you've got to drop a deuce, it's like hey, when you've got to go, you've got to go. And maybe this is my illness speaking and still I'll owe you all another apology for misbehaving. Farewell Facebook. As I said, it's just a Jonathan thing, a fucking Jonathan thing. Take me, or leave me. And always remember any online shopping you may ever do. Think of me because I hold a patent for the virtual retail interface, which means in layman's terms I invented online shopping, also helping build Amazon back in 1994. In 1991, I was 15 years old. So yes, some smart little schizo, me, created online shopping and has had many accomplishments single-handedly wielded, as I wish for death. Jesus, take me. Oh please God take me. Farewell Facebook. Let me lose my mind, my body, my spirit, my soul, and my heart. I built this city and now I take it down. I hold only and all regret. Put something like that on my epitaph and cremate my ashes. Make me a victim of massacre, as I write in my debut novel. I'll apologize now. I apologize for my exuberance though I do revel in it. I have always wanted a complicated life and I sure as hell got one. I have lost this. Rather, I have given this back. Farewell Facebook. One year prior, I just wanted to mention that you've probably noticed my status updates have lost their edge. They're no longer dirty vulgar or offensive or too open. I know I miss them and kind of lost faith in my own uncensored personality when people started to unfriend me and judge me for not being as hush, hush as I'm supposed to be in front of my Facebook audience. I feared that people lost sight that I'm a good person and a loving mother, above all. I'm naturally unfiltered in all aspects of communication, whether it is with an ancient grandma or a young person I barely know. But it started to bother me that my filthy side was all a lot of folks saw. But now it's starting to bother me that I'm like all the other censored Facebook sheep who would never dream of updating the internet about needing new AA batteries to power their vibrator, and only post wholesome things. Please, everyone, don't forget who I am and what I stand for. I need you all to know how truly open I still am, and though I've really enjoyed not being bombarded with annoying messages from different men, I need you all to still know I haven't changed one bit.
And I really do need new batteries for my vibrator. It's starting to take a long time to orgasm because it isn't shaking very hard. From Jonathan Harnish, December 31st. Some people in my life too seem to assume what I am feeling, what and who I am or not interested in, who to speak to, who not to talk to, who to accept as a friend, on Facebook or not, and who not to accept as a friend. Surely it has happened to most people at some point and sometimes it's a challenge to control it. As human beings we can naturally be afraid of conflict or afraid to react. In my life, I have had several people make my decisions for me. I will allow them to decide for me what I have to say, what I have to do, who to be friends with, who not to be friends with. All of us have personal issues behind closed doors, and some like you and I often bring our skeletons or the darker and even the more explicit sides of us to the surface, which in my opinion takes courage, honesty, and authenticity. Often such detail is perhaps scary for others to accept. That shouldn't stop anyone, not you or me, or anyone, although again it can be hard. You're a mature adult now, and old enough to dictate who you are by not allowing other people to hold you back, put words in your mouth, or shut you up. Dictate your own life, whether in real life or online. Ideally we should not allow anybody else to tell us what to post, do, feel, tell, or say, but then we might fall for it again, resulting in our own loss, not theirs. Sure, it's great to help people and care about what others do in their lives, how they live their lives, and who they talk to, and whatnot, and it is great to see people genuinely care which is awesome, but then again, oh please God, wake me. We shouldn't let people suppress us frequently. Independence? It's just a matter of being ourselves, making whatever decisions that reflect our own self, not theirs. Stand tall, even if it means to stand alone, highly unlikely, and likely just the opposite. Example, my often outspoken blog, which has now been closed down merely due to its compromise by highly advanced hackers, Garner 26 million hits in its first three months, won 4 billion in its 2-1, fraction slash 2-year lifespan. As for my new book series, let's just say it really pushes some uncensored limits, but I used a pseudonym, and I believe for fair enough and healthy reasons with which I myself am comfortable. Nonetheless, through my own therapies I would suppose such a discussion, as this topic of assertiveness would be a top pick for my shrink. And so I found such group dynamics as Facebook seem to rely on a mutual and rather dull understanding of what we post, if you ask me, dull, trivial, shallow, no depth, no dimension, and seem imply a similar opinion regarding the sheep, never dreaming of posting. If we as a group are all on the same page, then terrific. But then when we're not on the same page, the assertive idea, as my doc would likely advise, speaking up and speaking out even if it means that we lose friends. The saying that, they weren't our true friends to begin with, comes to mind, thus my preference to stand alone, or with the few, than the many as people dictate us with their assumptions, blah. Keep away from people like that. You will know even better who your true friends are and you who stick behind you when shite happens, or skeletons surface. Just think about it, and roll with the flow.
Keep Being You. P.S. The lyrics to the Duran Duran song we'd sing together in California come to mind. The shadows are on your side as soon as the lights go down. P.P.S. I am no therapist or doctor, just some schizophrenic, toretic, autistic intricate lyrical minded creation and friend moving ahead the best he can, often missing the mark completely. December 27, 2014 Early morning time to reflect Dear Diary, you have become my mentor. You encourage me. You support me and appreciate my work. You are one of the few who actually get me. You make me feel good, validated, and worthwhile. Thank you from the bottom of my heart and the depths of this maze of my mind. I would rather any day that my work is made to serve, not merely just entertain and sell, to teach is to love, to have the inherent desire to educate. I have been working with my alma mater to become involved with their arts community with my impressive resume, though I am noted as being a typical down-to-earth man. I may laugh at my illness when I can. I see beauty in the subtleties of life, and have a passion, a deep passion. If I am not creating, I feel as if I may not live. My imagination on fire, my alter egos are real and they inspire all that I do, even telling me what not to do, not to hurt, maim, or inflict pain on self. The real Claudia was a woman I met for 24 hours and I wrote 1200 pages about it with her as a mere mental concept to expand upon in my literature. A while back, I received a note from a reader who commented, gosh, that's very interesting to read. I suppose no reader would ever have guessed, I'd bet, plus 1200 pages of notes for the series, of which there are 30-something rough drafts of books in the series to get to and onslaughts of film, video, and art footage and files. Piles and stacks of writing, as I journal, documenting life, second by second in some way, desiring a legacy, to leave a dent on this otherwise misappropriated world. To teach is to love. And I am glad to have you both as teachers of my work. I am human, a human first. And I believe that if I have an idea or a thought or an image in my mind, words, visualizations, rhythms and sounds, and otherwise entangled feelings and sensations, I hope to manifest them, making them palpable in some way. To have that go to waste is to waste something perhaps not inside Jung's collective unconsciousness. To teach, to learn, to live, to love, to pass on. Thank you for being that person. I don't want to be a professional. I want to be an artist, and I am an artist. My mind is not diseased as much as it is special, moreover universal, as is any human thought or sensation. If I feel lonely, isolated, lost, and bewildered, then others might feel love, loss, grief, or inadequacy, and if I feel explicitly sexual, or obsessive, others do, because we are all human. I believe there is nothing original if one human senses a feeling, or has an experience. To be human is to be the hacker, or a programmer, and the painter, the artist. To live, to learn, to love, to lose, and to die. For me these matters of fact exemplify the very identity of the human race. I have wanted inclusion in the human race forever, until I realize that I am included. 
I have been for a very long time. Perhaps I am a very old soul, so to speak. These scattered morning thoughts may indeed be fragmented and congested, or maybe not. As disordered as my schizophrenia illnesses, I create to make sense of it, my mind, and my brain. I did my art. I left my legacy and I am still here. Beyond anything else, I am grateful, for what I have gained and what I have lost, physically and mindfully. I have nothing to lose, only more to create. For the rest of my life I will continue to do what I feel and when I feel it. It may be a sort of Zen thing, but so far it works. Today's goal is to lose the fear, all fear, and become fearlessly in love with the world within me and without. Long live the arts and long live life. P.S. The wonderful professor at the State University is looking into teaching my films, already teaching my literature which ignited me to write what I did and my wife began once again to make her way in, playing a huge role in the above writing. December 29, 2014, early morning time to reflect I am a troubled artist today. I do not know what day it is. I am extremely frustrated. Unable to ground and center myself, I feel restless. I am, I am not me. I am not myself today. I cannot recall who that person was. But I know he was here. I understand him. He will resurface again some other time, hopefully soon. I recall the first person. I know of no second person. I need the third person, the person I think I remember, to return. This must be the hyper-reality from some other day, which I wrote about for inclusion my next novel. I recall that something I said on camera was scattered and disjointed and yet was a center point, something to ground me for further writing. No censor today and so far no highlights showing typos or grammar errors and no system overload on the computer. The internet seems to be back on, online. I don't need the internet now. I need complication. I need the morning after and to melt away, to manifest the titles for my latest work. Beginning to view these calms me and allows me to see beauty in the abstract. But I know the original images, which flicker on the screen in the morning after and also chance encounter, emptying his pockets, and melt away, the film I have not released yet. The one I am still working on, just not right now. The rough cut just finished exporting I see, but I need to write, to set aside all film and art but for the written journal. Dear Diary, as I say, in the books, the novel I just published, Lover and the Nobody. But I just need, right now, to write, so I can feel. Not so I can move on. I will, and I will have to. All artistic projects must be on hold now, although the fire in my mind is ever-present, I brought it to a halt. I fixed in my mind, my obsession. I paused. I did the right thing. This is my medication. My early morning thoughts and ventilations that often come out in the shower. I will not run through the documentation of the yesterday that was, I do not recall yesterday. I recall right now as time continues. I allow myself to become stuck for good reason in right now. I can't move on. And I won't. That's altering time. That's moving along with it, as indefinable as time is, 
continuous, relatively, or moment by moment. I believe I see it right now. Moment by moment. Trapped in between the moments I think is where I should be. I once heard that, come to think of it, somewhere, a psychic or something a long time ago. My cats are dying. This is a stream of thought. This is how I cope. Issues with film and literature. Little things. But it is all on hold. Rather, they are done. I manifest what I write and the chapter names become the chapters in my hours. The 24-hour woman 240 times 10 pages. It's complex composite sketching. Manifesting words into life. I had to look it up to find what day of the week it was, and it is Monday. Compulsive about dates, I cannot remember anything about there ever being a Sunday, just that my cats are dying. I chain smoke five to six packs of cigarettes per day and chew two to three cans of smokeless tobacco. This was written about too, the slow semi-suicide of the mind. Now the body is coming to die. But I won't, I don't like this at all. My cats are dead from my smoke. I scared off the thought, and I can't stop smoking. I will cope when they die. It's strange. Real. Strange. The morning after is beautiful. I think that's what it is. But I couldn't tell you. Maybe writing this out a little bit helped, but I am not better. Smoke lingers in the pad, and I want drugs. I can't have any drugs. I can't have any illegal drugs, only prescribe medication for my anxiety and some other things, like schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is also a drug. It's been almost 12 years since my last hit. But I do, I crave crack. I fucking crave it just for now. In some strange self-deprecating way, I want to die from it. I am just still not willing to die from some asinine knee-jerk suicide, a senseless reaction. I don't want it today. The anxiety is torture enough. I want it to pause. For life to pause. I need beauty. One hour later, I took my morning anxiety medication eight hours ago. But I woke up at 1 a.m. last night. I feel better. I feel like William Burroughs as he was in Junkie. I load a dip of tobacco onto my lower lip after my final cigarette. My last smoke until 8 a.m. so my cats won't die from it as they sit here sick with me. I feel better. We all move on. For once today in the few hours since midnight, I feel a sense of medicated bliss. And it is doctor approved. It's junk. But it's complicated. My opening line in my latest work. The one sentence of profound profanity. Anti-art. I live for art. Otherwise nothing matters. I have always sought meaning. I wanted complexity. I wanted a complicated life, and I sure got one. Oddly enough, I can be grateful for that. I am. Before I die from this beautiful pneumonia shit, here's some shit I can leave behind. I found it in my closet in a box marked high school and I scanned the crumpled sheets of paper onto some word processor. Fuck editing it. Fuck the format. Fuck Amazon, for that matter. Fuck me. When we were invincible begins and never ends. And by this point I should have died. I am dead. No more of me as I'm likely now a statistic of suicide. That saying, life sucks, 
then you die, comes to mind. The story continues, when we were invincible by Jonathan Harnish Victorian dream Why do people love life and hate death? Because life is a beautiful lie and death is a painful truth. The first week at St. Michael's, I had no friends. I quickly became obsessed with the graveyard down on Main Street, past Christ Church, close to Rex Road. I would sneak off bounds and smoke a camel filterless and sometimes a pipe or cigar when I had or needed more time to think about things. While the graveyard gave me hope, the bluff in the upper campus wood was visited for sadder contemplations. It looked over the Atlantic, and I read in some old book that the students in the 1920s and 1930s used to go up there to play with illegal drugs and drink during Prohibition. My father, who did a lot of work with illegal shit, was a cop. I think he owed a lot of money to some corrupt loan sharks on Mott Street in Little Italy. One day out of the blue, he sent to me a huge check for $150,000. This depressed me profoundly. I headed up to the bluff midday and wrote to Pap. Dear Dad, why? How? I just received your mail and I don't think I need to tell you how dear you have been to me with your kindest offer I cannot accept for reasons beyond my knowing. Nor, that in your kindness I've placed nearly all the satisfaction in my life. It was the only happiness I proposed to myself, and had set my heart upon it so that it was therefore made my punishment to let me see that, however innocent I thought my affection, it was sometimes falsely guilty, in being greater than allowable for this world. It's no boring comedy that gives me these apprehensions and inclinations. It's the result of a long strife with myself, before my reason could overcome my passion, or bring me to personal resignation to whatsoever is allotted for me, it's now done, I hope, and I have nothing left to persuade you of that which I assure your own judgment will approve in the end. Your reason has often prevailed with no offer, that which you would have done out of kindness to point of honor, and me I would have you do out of wisdom and kindness to yourself. Not that I would disclaim my part in it or lessen my obligation to you. I am your son, as much as I ever was in my fatalistic life. I think more and I shall never be less. I've known you long enough to conclude that you have all the qualities that make an excellent father, and I shall endeavor to deserve that you may be so to me, but would have you do this upon just grounds, I know we're not a very rich family, and such as may conduce most to your quiet and future satisfaction. When I have tried in all ways to happiness, there is no such thing to be found in a mind conformed to one's condition whatsoever it be, and not in aiming in anything that is impossible or improbable. All the rest is only vanity and vexation of spirit, there can be no pleasure in a struggling life, and that folly which we condemn in an ambitious man who is ever working for that which is hardly got and more uncertainly kept, is seen in all others' pride, stubbornness of nature that chooses to always go against the tide lit in others, an unfortunate fancy to things that are in themselves innocent until we make them such other by desiring them too much. I should justify myself that it's not likeness in my nature, or any interest that's common to us both, that has written this change in me. To you that knows my heart, and from whom I shall never hide it, and whose friendship is built on common grounds, I have no more to say, I don't impose any opinions upon you. 
I might defy all that fortune could do, and putting off all in disdain and constraint, with that which only made it necessary, make my life as easy to me as the condition of this world may permit and allow. I may own you as a person that I extremely value and esteem, and for whom I have a particular friendship, and you may consider me after tonight, March 2nd, one that will always be, your faithful Georgie. P.S. Tell mom not to worry, as if she ever would. There I was, Georgie Gust, a new junior at St. Michael's Academy. A dreadful evening lay ahead, on the dusk of a new revolution of my youthhood. I was depressed with only a fat check in my bank account. It was only a party, and that poor Pooba Marks, who had evaded carry banks yet spent the night with. And so I had snuck out of my humble dormitory quarters, which smelled of rank football cleat shavings and sweat. I needed out. I headed straight to Main Street, where I sought another answer. I began banging furiously on the huge oak doors of Christ Church. Emerging from my insides was pure and evil denial of the very God who had created me. The banging continued for quite some time. Haunted spirits were overshadowed by the compensating swiftness of my rage attack. I wanted to get inside and see with my own eyes if he was asleep or dead. Why? God? God? Show me yourself. Where are you? Bang bang bang. Nothing. So, I kneeled in front of the doors as if they were my sanctuary. Of course, I had prprepared for this. I removed one Valium from my tiny drug-marred bottle. One pill, then another, then another, then another, and so on, and I shoved them into my mouth until it was nearly full. I reconsidered everything for a moment, and then added the rest of the bottle. I used my left index finger to maneuver the downers to the back of my throat, and then made a vile gag. I couldn't swallow, so I chewed the pills as they were quickly dissolving with my saliva and swallowed. You're going to kill me? Answer me. Damn it. How could you have shamed me? Why? Then I turned goddamn weak and started crying, the little kid I was, only 17. I don't believe you anymore. You've become my own demon. How will it get better? How will it get better? And I sat, facing away from the doorway. I was deeply saddened, alone and frustrated. I heard massive thunderbolting over heaven's rooftops. My tears fell with the following downpour of rain. I warmed my chest with my hands. It was nearly winter but there was still no snow on the ground that year. The rain immediately came to a halt. There was a glare now, directly penetrating the center of my eyeballs as I looked up at the street lamp causing this. Then another glare appeared, from higher up. It was a tiny star in the sky. The glare was so painful that I wanted to grab hold of this little star and choke it. I reached inside my soaked brown carpenter coat and removed a tiny revolver I had purchased the day before at the gun shop, on Center Street, downtown. I held the gun in front of my face with a stare at the tip of the barrel that pounded my brain. It was a plain gun. I sighed and placed the revolver back inside my pocket. The surrounding area was now completely empty and isolated. The streets, every cobblestone, gave off steam. There was a cabbie fast asleep at the comer of Main and Harp Street with his off-duty sign lit.
Soaked with rain, I stood up and started walking back. I heard somebody running after me, but I couldn't give a hot damn. I ignored everything except my conscience. My head was face down. A little girl, wretchedly dressed, around eight years old and nervous, began tugging at my left elbow. I ignored her. She then clung onto me as I walked, but still I gave no response. She was so terrified that her words to me were barely understandable. Mom. 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 She cried. I attempted to scare this fiendish child away by stomping my feet strongly on the street. She grew even more frightened. Sir. Sir. I looked down at the little girl's innocent face. It was pudgy, brown and had scratch marks on the right side and on the chin. The girl ran off to an old man with a long black raincoat down the next block. When I returned to my quarters, I could smell the sleeping breaths lurking, which smelled of the night's large pizza pies and pepperoni flavor from my sweet mates. And Chad Donovan, next door to mine, snored, as usual. I could tell his window was open because the cold air from outside made him sound so sickly. I didn't bother drying off. I sat on my bed, made with hospital corners, and aimed the revolver at my right temple. The gun did no good for me at the temple, so I directed the long barrel to the center of my heart, the broken heart, after careful contemplation. I pressed the gun harder and harder into my chest, but I didn't know when to pull the damn trigger. So I stuck the barrel inside my mouth. For fuck's sake, I couldn't make up my simple mind on where to shoot myself. The phone on my night table rang once. Twice. With revolver in mouth, I answered calmly voiced, but with my heart pounding like the cylinders of a log truck coming after me at a hundred miles an hour. Hugh wow? Dial tone. Suddenly, an image floated beside me, kind of like a hallucination. I tried to resist it. It was the innocent face of the little girl whose mother must have been in trouble. I withdrew the gun from my mouth and fell, fully clothed, back on my bed for a natural evening's repose. The Valium would keep me asleep for 20 hours. Nobody ever dies from a Valium overdose. They just sleep. I couldn't close my eyes for a half hour and my window shades peered open a bit. The rain had completely stopped and I could barely see the tiny glaring star that almost ended my life that late, dreadful evening. As I slept, spirits soared and were transformed. Drifting further and further into unconsciousness, I was brought back, way back, to when I was just a dead fetus in my mother's womb. I know this was a valid memory because my mother told me when I was 13 that I was born unconscious. I felt a murky, muddy, soft rubbery sensation around my body. I was curled up and couldn't move. I could hear bubbling, burping, churning, and swimming sounds. I wasn't too clear on what was going on. Christ. I wasn't even born yet. It seemed like I was swimming in a bowl of chocolate gelatin. Then, after a few moments of supreme harmony, it stopped. I'd been convinced later on that I was born with a horn-headed monkey that lived on my shoulder. One Thursday, this thing made its way on across my face. My squinting eyes would manifest qualities of a hellish demon. I'd hop on my right foot, just the right one. 
skipping, almost in a patterned fashion. It was like step 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 hop step hop step step step. People question it. I'd just sprained my ankle, or I fell off my bike doing the ghost rider. I'd throw my head back catatonically, twist, smack my stomach, and not because I was hungry or anything. Fight urges to stick my pinky finger on a burning stove, ridiculous outbursts due to absurd situations I couldn't tolerate. My French teacher at Danville Middle School, Madame B. Ranger, she'd make us do little skits in front of the class, and my heart would pound, had to run out in panic to the water fountain to catch back my wind. Madame B. Ranger would often speak with me after class to tell me how great my test scores were. Sometimes I couldn't respond to her as the words, just I couldn't get them out. Could've just been some Freudian sexual aid repression type thing. But she was an old lady, not some Durney, John Taylor worshipping teenage glam rock disco chick like Tracy Harwell, who I was just a freak to anyway. I mean this was something wrong. This was something I've never, this was goddamn bizarre. I wasn't completely aware of a nervous symptom until someone called my attention to it. And one weekend, because I no longer believed that my twitching and compulsions and obsessive thoughts were caused by me, my own weakness, but by something remotely supernatural, something beyond me, I woke up one morning and went into the upstairs bathroom in our house and looked in the mirror. I tried to hold as still as I could for a long while, wakening the ghostly spirits inside me, waiting as still as I could until I had to let loose, and then regaining temporary control of my body. Restless, I watched it. I watched my long tongue crawl out of my mouth as if it were a threatening snake. As soon as it pried it up and touched the tip of my nose, I snowballed into a laughing frenzy. The whole time, my parents were naturally concerned. They'd seen me. They finally made me sit on my father's lap on the living room sofa as my mother just stared at me from a distance. The hell was I supposed to do? Before she grabbed the Super 8 movie camera by her side, she just stared with utter awe. How was this for me? My parents analyzing every motion, movement, probably my inner thoughts as well? Why? Why did I put up with this? Twelve years old, and yet like an infant. They took me to a doctor, a neurologist, and I was immediately diagnosed. A unique case of something called Tourette's Disorder, a syndrome. Neuropsychological. I was put on strong and risky drugs. And when they said, drugs, the oppression sunk in. And as others finally gave up on trying to ridicule, anger, and shame me, they all still regarded me as a curiosity. But how odd I really was to them was my own evil horn-headed monster with me. Our secret. My joke on them. My mom was a public drinker. Dad? I didn't know his habits and flaws at the time, but I knew that I was one goddamn handful to both of them. My older brother, Craig thought I was a punk. Ironically Craig with his green hair and several earrings. He never talked to me much. This super pseudo self of others had no clue how alone I was, how ashamed, depressed. I felt like an outcast. I was an outcast. I was a cocoon in hiding. I begged my parents to send me away so I could scope out and broaden things and so I wouldn't become a delinquent, 
And that's how I ended up at St. Michael's Academy as a postgraduate. Finally, I wrote to my mother. I knew she'd be flat-wasted when she read my letter, but I sent it out anyhow. Mom, sorry I haven't spoken or written in a year, but sometimes the most important things are the hardest to say. Words seem to diminish everything. After Dad died, my journey to life near the city, which would have extremely delighted me, would have incited me to contemplate nature, would have inflamed me with the joy of living, left me cold. The traffic was no rougher, no harsher than the feelings of my soul. The small and tall buildings were not livelier than my blood. My dorm room not more overlaid, and the food not more indigestible than the contents of my imagination. When I arrived, I was awake many nights engaged in multifarious and sometimes devious occupations. I went through struggles and experienced much stimulation from within and without. Mom, with sincere hope that the dark clouds which hang over our family will gradually disperse, that I shall be permitted to share the immeasurable love, which I often have not been able to express as I should like, in the hope that you too, mindful of my storm-tossed feelings, will forgive me when my heart must often seem to have gone astray as the burdens of my spirit have stifled it, I beg in your conduct to stay well. I broke nearly all existing ties with the old idle circle of friends back home and nights out and getting nowhere. I got screwed up, mom. I had what they call a sugar daddy. He was realty rich and would take care of me and do stuff for me. He was a psychiatrist, you know a medical doctor. But he was the biggest druggie. We would snort coke all weekend long. We'd hang out. He'd go to work during the week and we'd hang out at his house or my room at St. Michael's. And he would prescribe drugs for me, like Xanax. My friends used to come over and we'd have Xanax do parties. But I began thinking of you and, well, Dad, and I got sick of it all, and ever since leaving the MD, I sought to rehabilitate and immerse myself in the learned studies taught here and reading for pleasure, Sartre, Dostoevsky, to name a couple. I still like traveling off-bounds, underground, into Manhattan, the raw youth inside me beneath the Puritan levels of standard motivation. But I didn't know why. Must we always be asking questions? Well, yes, I suppose, but not because of the oppressed society, the people that damned me as a little kid and killed dad. What is society anyway? Some general gathering of politically correct, socially capable masters of existence? I know now that my past means nothing and the future is unpredictable. My body is finally being cleansed. Keep well. I remain always your loving son, Georgie. I needed to get away from it all. I was quite the unhappy lollygagger. I had packed and prepared to commence my postgraduate studies at St. Michael's Academy in Delvin, Connecticut. The people in the train station back home looked fucking pathetic, sleeping on seats, bored and lonesome. Staring out the windows at nothing but tracks, running by and diverging, crossing each other faster and slower. I traveled above the earth, through tunnels, but I was perhaps inspired by the fact that there are times in life which manifest themselves as boundary posts, sort of marking the end of a period, 
and at the same time pointing in a new and promising direction. When I arrived at St. Michael's, a new world had just opened up before me. The world at first of love that was frenzied with yearning and void of hope. I met with Dean Taylor, Martin Taylor, dear, of the sixth form boys, which included postgraduates. We both agreed I should enroll in the inductive reasoning class, taught as an elective by Miss Heidi Barillo. Taylor also mentioned that he'd recommend me to become a Gold Key Society campus tour guide for potential incoming transfer students. It was a clear New England morning and I was 19, a Gold Key student guide at St. Michael's Academy. I was having a splendid time as I shepherded Mr. and Mrs. Patrick Fitzgerald and their son, Sean from chapel to gymnasium to dormitory. Brightly and articulately, I bubbled praise for my school. I was, in fact, particularly proud of the New Arts Center. These are beautiful buildings, aren't they? This is our New Arts Center. Took six years to build. Given to St. Michael's by anonymous alumni some 12 million dollars then i paused hey i'll bet you'd be interested in this pointing up to the wood we walked up a rocky and narrow pathway past the upper campus area together as sean's parents bragged about his son like i was some goddamn admissions officer then i glided ahead i waited for sean and his two parents at the top near the bluff isn't the view incredible i exclaimed Mrs. Fitzgerald was quite impressed at the beauty of my place. Yes. This is gorgeous. The three of them swept the horizon with awe. The view from the bluff was indeed magnificent. The sloping green hills ran down to the blue water for miles and down to the Atlantic coast. Sailboats, their colorful spinnakers were at full wind as they darted among the whitecaps. Then suddenly, all became absolutely quiet. My youthful face grew less positive and more innocent. My eyes followed the boats for several seconds. What goes on up here, Georgie? Asked Mr. Fitzgerald, strictly curious about my secluded area. This is where I come to cry. Everybody's got to have a place to cry, I answered the truth. Hell, this was a tour of my school. We were now in my territory. Everybody? Asked Sean's mom. Darling, calmed her husband with his hand gently rubbing her shoulder. Well, maybe just me, I confessed. I then thought that maybe this was not a good side trip to have taken. Sean questioned in his anguish, is it that bad here? So I took them back down the wooded pathway as I explained, deep structure regulation. The uniforms may be gone, but the uniformity still abounds. Control is by no means lax. Naturally, there are prohibitions against stealing, cheating, possessing firearms, drugs, alcohol, and inappropriate sexual behavior and compromising the reputation of the school. Kids do it. It's kind of easy to break dorm rules, dining hall, smoking, dipping, bike permits. I have a bike here. It's not a problem. I mean, being a teenager usually centers on dating, cruising, hanging out. But, here, we live with our friends day in and day out. Some garbage can happen, but really at any school like this. Balloon fights, panty raids, scandals, and triumphs. Sean was thunderstruck when I said, triumphs. I hope so, he said.
Then he asked, are there any single dorm rooms for the next crop of incoming transfers? I like a lot of privacy. And he smirked to his parents as they looked down at him, his father almost outraged, probably thinking about his days of unauthorized co-ed visiting back during his prep school years. There's not much privacy, especially in the winter months when everyone gets rebellious. Halloween? Sean asked. Halloween? It's kind of fun. We sponsor dances every weekend, a summer and winter ball, the last hurrah, like a prom. Everyone goes all out with limos and things. Sean grew excited. Mom, Dad, I can bring Lauren from Glendale? Glendale? I thought I'd better tell this kid more rules. You can only bring dates to the dances that are students here at St. Michael's. No outsiders, they say, and lots of supervision too. That sucks. Sean whined, kicking the dirt beneath his loafers. Sean! Cried Mrs. Fitzgerald. Sean's dad was pissed at his son's attitude, like I gave a hot damn. Watch your mouth, son, or you'll go straight to Brighton military. Sean moaned a short apology. I felt bad for the guy. We approached the steel admissions hall. I sent the parents, who both politely thanked me, up the rounded staircase and told them to speak with Mrs. Lyons. She would set Sean up for the interview. Sean remained outside with me. I had no class until half past eleven. I forgot the guy's name so I asked Sean again. He then reported his alias. Everyone called him Fitzy. So, do you think you'll come here? I asked. I don't know. My parents are really assholes. My grandfather went here, he explained. My grades and SSAT scores weren't so hot. I submitted myself to Fitz. I sort of just came to get away from things. He agreed. That's why I wanna go away. My idea, anyway. Just have an attitude when it comes to authority over me. Hot damn. I couldn't tell him how much I was like him. I wanted Sean Fitzy to be my best friend right then and there. But it was too early at this point in time. I said to Sean, but this place is okay. Didn't mean to startle you or your folks by bringing you all up to the bluff. No, it was inspiring, he affirmed. I wanted this kid in SMA and to befriend me. I don't know. It's rough going to the best boarding school, whatever that means. 98% head off to the Ivy League and the rest just sort of sit around. Boring. To tell you the truth, I don't really know where I belong, ya know? I comfortably convulsed a few absurd theoretic grimaces and neck thrusts. Couldn't help them. I didn't care until Fitzy caught me off guard. I don't mean to, he intruded politely. Are you like, nervous? Your eyes end. I warned him. I have Tourette's Syndrome. No big deal. He tried to understand. No. That's cool. Hope you don't mind. Didn't mind if I asked. I just thought you might, yeah. Happens all the time. No big deal. Really, I confessed, keeping my cool. Sean changed the subject immediately, with the aid of some divine intervention, maybe. So. What's the toughest part about St. Michael's? He asked, holding an all gestures without my conscious effort, 
I told Fitzy the truth. Just that you can't really escape. Can't really be alone. Everyone knows who you are and what your story is. Too small a student body. Two to one student to teacher ratio. But, there are some decent females here. Just hard to slip them into the cell for the night, if you know what I mean. And Sean Fitzy contemplated for a good silent one or two minutes, before announcing, Father some kind of diplomat at the UN. I had my second girlfriend at this point. Claudia Nesbitt. She was one beauty and quite mature. Met her off campus at this local dive in Midtown Manhattan the day before Fitzy's campus tour. Sean moved in my room on Halloween Eve. The next day, I took Fitzy out for a midnight run. Claudia said she had to catch up on some chemistry. Fitzy and I had our heads hanging out of the quad side window, right down the hall from our room, room number 214. We looked out for SMA security PM patrol trucks. We both wore matching black jogging outfits with hoods. Fitz had cold feet. We better not get caught, he said. An element of danger, that's what makes it so exciting. I explained and pushed him down the stairs. Let's go. I whispered loudly as we both tried to hold in our mischievous hysteria. We escaped campus grounds within seconds and walked and walked past Reeks Road and onto Durham Avenue. Nobody I knew from school even had any clue where this road led. It went on past Merriam, the next county, and on further for fucking miles past Hartford. In the middle of talking about some of my horrid experiences at SMA, Sean asked about the time a while back when I was thrown into a cold shower with all my clothes on because my dorm mates thought I was a twitching twig. What happened? Gated for a week after they put neat hair remover in my shampoo, I replied. Fitzy chuckled. Insanity. At around midnight, believe me or don't, but there was an old man, emaciated and frail, handing out flyers as very few cars stopped at one of the many Durham Avenue red lights. He was holding about 20 of them. Probably hadn't given a single one out. As we approached this old man closer and closer, Fitz and I saw open driver's seat windows closing. Sean was hesitant, but I walked right up to the man and said, What's going on, guy? Fitzy stepped in closer. The man was harmless, probably lived somewhere in the low-income housing area in Meridian Gardens. I'm handing out papers, he replied, faceless. The guy looked like he had never even seen a trace of any birth certificate in his life. He looked lost yet full of some kind of longing for hope in whatever the flyers he was handing out were all about. Free? I asked. They're my thoughts. My thoughts are free. Yes, he grunted. I hopped. Let me see? I asked. The frail old man handed Sean a copy, then me. What are they about? I asked clearly. I thought the man was a bit hard of hearing. He must have been nearly a hundred years old, if not over a century. And he explained all he was capable of. This, well underway fourth revolution in psychology I've developed over the years. We listened in more closely. When you look for the sources of all problems and how that just gets you all confused when you think you must always be right and how, if you think about that, we're all still infants until we've reintegrated psychology and spirituality together and, 
Just take a look. We walked on to avoid contagiousness and Sean thanked the old man. I yelled back about 10 feet, way to go, sir. And the man waited for the next red light at the intersection. We passed Meridian Gardens. All sorts of crazy nuts were out. This was something I had never seen before. It was perhaps the farthest I'd traveled on Durham Avenue since I don't know when. Suddenly, some lunatic lady ran across the street as a man's voice was shouting at her from the entrance to the gardens, you'll pay for this, bitch. And she startled us, causing Fitz and me to trip and fall over her steps. I yelled at her impulsively, I fucking shit. Pissant. Pathetic. I grew frustrated. Everybody knows what it means to keep to his or her right and when we meet, we step out of each other's way. Sean pulled me up off the street, goddamn hole in my sweatpants. Yeah. That fucking lunatic just forges straight ahead, without even noticing we're here, taking it for granted that we will jump out of her way and let her blow by. I'm willing to yield to her, but why should she take it for granted and consider it my job? Pisses me off. The two of us continued on our midnight run. Sean remembered something. Hey Georgie, Chad Donovan, next door, told me, 2.30 or out, cause you need the room, right? We came to a halt. Yeah. What chemistry is Claudia working on anyway? She should be out here too. Probably at Corner Deli or Gas and Grill, crying in her wine glass, cause she couldn't find me. Claudia appeared out of nowhere, the stunning brunette she was. Hi. I'm already here. She said, scaring the hell out of me. Jesus. I called with a bit of confusion, wondering how in the hell she found me past Meridian Gardens. Just because Carrie dumped you, she told me. You two were retarded together, at least she was. What are you talking about? I asked Claudia, confused. She had obviously been following us for a while. I just got here when that lady knocked you two over, and I heard what you said. I interrupted. Oh come on. Still pretty vulnerable on the subject. I paused. You've never, ya yeah, no, popped the cherry with anyone? Me? I'll be your first? I asked. Fitzy looked like he was going leave any second, sort of embarrassed, I supposed. Georgie. Claudia exclaimed. Fitzy, walking away, called out, I'm off. Night. Thanks, Fitzo, I called to him. And he went back to St. Michael's to stay in Chad's room. I'm Catholic, Georgie, Claudia confessed. Live by the laws. I let a camel filterless. So what? Claudia replied, so, I'll bet you can't quit smoking. For a week. You'll get gated. Give me an honest clean week and I'll pay for your next sixer, non-alcoholic. I hopped. Screw you. We were standing still. Claudia replied, that's not part of the deal. I really wanted to know, so I asked Claudia, do you really believe in God? What? You heard me. Wait a minute, Claudia replied, confused. My facial tics were now extreme. This was an interesting subject. You said you were Catholic. Just answer the question, or do you have too many thoughts crossing your mind about sex? Yes, 
Claudia said, yes to sex or yes to God? I asked, with another hop. Claudia was ready to commence battleground territory. I know God exists, she said with affirmation. I had studied the ontological proof for years. I would not lose this small debate now. I hopped. How? I asked, and hopped again. We started walking further on Durham Avenue. She tried to think of the correct wording. If he doesn't exist, then his existence is, logically speaking, impossible. Right, I answered. Wait. Why? And Claudia used her hands, flamboyantly as she defined, by definition, God is omniscient, eternal, and independent, so he can't come into being, or be caused to come into being. Claudia, I suppose, forgot, or didn't know I studied logic independently last term. She was now up for a defeat. Okay, I said, if there is not a God, then his existence must be necessary. I hopped. I dogged this subject. I was sure to nail her. What the hell are you talking about? I said to her David Hume quote. It's elementary, my dear. He cannot have come into being, or ceased to exist, cause if he did, he would be limited, and by definition God is unlimited, she said with nonchalance. So? I demanded. So, either God's existence is either impossible or necessary. And this is where I would nail her to the cross with arms stretched out. All right, I said, if God's existence is logically impossible, then the concept of God is self-contradictory. She invaded. But according to the laws of logic, the concept of God is not self-contradictory. Damn, I whispered aloud. Therefore, God's existence is necessary and God does, in fact, she said, exist. I was impressed. Wow! I exclaimed. No. No. No, I said in disbelief. We stopped for a car passing by at the intersection of Durham and King Street. Something to think about, huh? Claudia summed up. Well, I said, after thinking for a bit, just that there's so much evil in the world, we continued walking. Yeah, but God didn't create that, she told me. I wondered. She repeated to me as if I were dumb. Evil, confidently, I attacked. Then how could he have created the universe if he's all-knowing, all-good? El Diablo, Claudia suggested. And I thought about it. The devil. Shit, this chick was smart. A long wait. Then I shouted, Jesus. As a homeless bum approached us both from behind. His face was now visible. A total druggie, schizophrenic, an older variation of Groucho Marx. Hey guys. How we doing? Mademoiselle, jumper, he said. Fuck off, man. I shouted at the bum. Actually, Claudia told him, lying of course, we've got to head on. We have nothing to offer. Just got back from an, um, a funeral. Very depressing. Still a bit distracted. Sorry. Really? I was confused. What? I asked. I'm hungry, she whispered. The homeless guy went on, funeral, huh? Gotcha. You guys got any change? I'm even taking checks tonight. What do you say? 
My tics entirely diminished while speaking to the bum. Man, I said, ya yeah, no, we could use a 40. Do you have any change? The bum emptied his pocket full of coins into my hands. Claudia smiled. Thanks, man, I said in return. And the bum continued in single persona, ya yeah, no, my uncle, he left a good 10 years ago. He used to race Clydesdale horses up in Saratoga. You know, those big Budweiser horses. Ya yeah, know, those big, huge ones. Well, he was out one day on the farm and this horse, he got startled, and my uncle was caught in the horse's reins and his leg got caught and he, he was dragged to death. We had a lot of weird deaths in the family. They're all gone now. Just me. Really? Clydesdale horses race? I asked sarcastically. Yeah, he told us. Death can really wipe you out. I know what it's like to lose someone. You're no longer around. Around here at any rate. And if there's nowhere else you'll be, heaven, hell, with the beaming white light, then all that's left are your effects, leavings, traces. My dog died, Claudia told the old bum. Really? Was he old? He asked. She. Seventeen. A small dog, Claudia responded. I jumped in. My brother's dog's almost twenty. A golden retriever. They never live that long. The bum asked Claudia, it was your dog's funeral? Caught in the lie, she hesitated. What? Oh, yeah. I jumped in again to save my girl. Open coffin. And when the funeral director said, she will live in our hearts forever, it's somehow immortalizing the dead dog. I mean the assumption was that everyone listening, the neighborhood friends and family, I didn't take the living in the hearts bit as a transitive relation, so that Fluffy would live in the further hearts where everyone there themselves will live on. Imagine, the guy said, she will continue in our minds until we all leave this building when we will all promptly forget her, the bum said. Claudia giggled. At my grandmother's funeral, I went on, way back, another thing I heard was like, as long as people survive, this woman will not be forgotten. Her achievements will live on. The bum corrected me. I'd add that people would live on for a long time. It's probably as close to immortality as a person can get. I told this homeless guy my real thoughts on this whole tale. But some people are disturbed with that. With the thought that life will go on for others, yet, without themselves. It's like they're forgotten and left out. Like permanent survival is not the ultimate goal. Only survival as life goes on, my alter ego told me. It should never be that it's important to be around somehow. I mean look at me. I sleep on a bench, walk around in the day, and beg. And someday, I'm going to turn cold and insignificant life, you too, this innocent man told Claudia and me, leaves its mark on the world. Mines on the far end of a Brooklyn-bound NR train in the city. It's somehow permanent. All three of us slowly stopped walking. I looked at my watch. It was nearly three. To be completely wiped out goes a long way towards destroying the whole meaning of life, the bum said. I pondered and offered Claudia and the bum a cigarette with a gesture. Claudia shook her head. The bum accepted, 
ejecting his filthy right hand. A crit? Thanks. The bum was pleased. Yeah, I smoke a lot. It's hard being homeless and have to support such a habit, he confessed. Why? How much do you smoke? Asked Claudia. Three packs, he confessed. Three packs a day? Claudia verified. I shook my head. Beats me. And when I was a kid, like 15, 16, the bum went on explaining as he made a truly wet and disgusting sneeze. Claudia and I backed off a bit. The bum wiped his messy face with his sleeve and continued talking. I used to steal my grandmother's grits and take them to the attic. And now, it's like three, four packs a day. I mean it's hard. It's real hard, but, I mean, I don't care, do what I want. I may live a terrible life but at least I don't have to pay bills to do it. Claudia was disgusted by the previous sneeze and started laughing hysterically. The bum walked on speaking only to himself, schizoid. Why do you always give cigarettes to bums? My girl asked me as we stood by a fire pipe with nothing else on our minds. It kills him, I said as we snowballed into a laughing frenzy. We headed back by a yellow cab we called from the payphone at Gas V Grill. The next day, the quaintly dressed and cute, Miss Heidi Barillo was teaching my inductive reasoning class as she wrote on the chalkboard, Tom Stoppard, Matthew Arnold, and the meth of S-I-S-Y-P-H-U-S-K-M-S. I sat in the back row, as usual. The meth of Sisyphus is the key to modern tragedy. Can anyone tell me who Sisyphus was? Miss Barillo asked the small class of eight. This asshole, Fred Dominique, who always had to answer everything first while sitting in the front, alone, raised his hand immediately and responded, he rolled a rock up a hill, but it came back down. Miss Barillo nudged him, where? Hell, he swore. Right. The teacher pointed out. I didn't bother raising my hand. Since I was always in the back, I usually chose the right to stand up before my desk to speak. Sick of the subject already, I stood up and asked, why didn't he just quit? Some absurd laughter filled the small room. This isn't an exercise in logic, Georgie. Now how can we apply this to the modern age? Birillo asked. Fred again, well aren't they just saying that we all just sit around and work and work at our little jobs, but don't really get anywhere? Yes, that's right, Barillo agreed. Chuck Bear then spoke up, the hard jock he was, barely fitting on his chair, well, how does that apply to the play? I mean nobody really works hard at anything. Then my sweet Claudia suggested something. I knew she hadn't even read the text. Just some literary criticism in the library. Well obviously the rock set in as far back as Matthew Arnold in a pool of purposeless ducks, or something like that. What bullshit, I thought, so goddamn cute and naive. Good. Good. Well applied after what Stoppard is saying in, Rosencrantz and Gilgenstam are dead. Miss B exalted. Chuck had a keen thought. Well, think of their deaths. First off, Rosencrantz describes the quality of death. Death isn't. And then you have their deaths. Now you're here and then you whack OL. Fred agreed as I was becoming pissed off thinking about dad. Yeah, 
the ultimate negative, he said, good, Fred, they simply cease to exist so that death is as meaningless as life. Utterly and completely thunderstruck, I stood and shouted at everyone, especially Miss Barillo, that's bullshit, if that's what they're saying, then it's bullshit. Georgie. Miss Barillo blushed. That's no way to talk. I steamed, it's horse shit. Then I stood up, gathering my shit to take off and yelled, fuck, this play is shit. The teacher couldn't believe my exuberance. Georgie Gust, now sit down. Or calm down. Leaving the room, I demanded, just fuck off. And I ran outside. Claudia got out of her seat to try and catch up with me. I ran and ran, with drumbeats in my head for a long time, to the bluff, where I collapsed and cried under the radiant sun as the clock tower struck noon. Father. I never apologized for my exuberance that day. Everything, I believed, was completely warranted. That night, I picked up the telephone receiver, which was hanging off the hook in the hallway of the quad dormitory. Chad told me some weirdo was on for me. Hello? Oh, hi, Mom. How's Craig? What? What? What do you mean you don't know where he is? Mom, Mom. I can't understand you when you're like that. No, I didn't say you were. I didn't say you were drunk. Okay, Mom, sorry, me? I'm fine, yes, Mom, I knew I'm your only hope. You keep telling me that, fine. Okay, bye. The receiver was slammed back on the hook. As I walked back to my room, I said to myself, out loud, I can't stand this place. I want to get out of here. The next morning, my alarm clock sung mechanically, you are invited to start the day. Wake up, morning glory. Rise and shine, over and over at 7.30 a.m. Claudia was sleeping with me. Damn it, Georgie. Will you shut that thing off? I jumped out of bed, smashed the dock on the floor and jumped on it, then kicked it across the room. It was completely destroyed. Time froze for a moment. Then, I hollered, damn 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 damn. Shit. Some lazy punk inventor thinks I can't get up at the right time. Who would invent such annoying, helpless garbage? Still half asleep, Claudia suggested, we should maybe just get up, dress, eat, and possibly go to class. Before we both get gated. It's not like that, Claudia. We must wake up. We must get dressed. We must go to class. It's imperative. Getting caught up in so many necessities totally distract me from the truth that none of this waste of time is really necessary. Georgie, you're missing morning classes, like every day now. You don't want restriction on your last day. Let's go. Do it for me. Then you know what I'll do? I'll drop out. Quit. Miss Graduation. I really don't give a hot damn. To hell with the measures they put on me here. I've been clean for six months. And now it's classes. And I'm doing good, rather, I'm well. Georgie, I'm trying to help you. You can't quit now. To hell you will. You've got to be more consistent. Consistency, charm, nonchalance, discipline, a system of values, right? 
I heard through the dean you're getting some big award at graduation. I wasn't supposed to say anything. You can't lose that. Fine. I'll go to class. I'm finishing as it is, okay, Claudia? Do it for me. Come on. Miss Perillo's cool. I'll just be late. I'm on your side. Just remember that. Everyone was drawing pictures in Miss Perillo's class. I, with a collared shirt and a tie loosely fitted around my neck, cruised down the long hallway and slid in front of the closed door to the classroom. I stumbled in late. A round of applause welcomed me. Then Claudia walked into class as I daydreamed. I did not consciously think. I assumed that everyone else was wearing clothes. That Miss Barillo was facing the class. Everyone was speaking English. Oh, Mr. Gust, long time. You've decided to join us on our last day of inductive reasoning. Well, you missed our Friday early arrival bonus points, if and only if I had come early, for I had only needed two bonus points for an easy A. She continued, Georgie, Claudia, I've asked the class to do something run today, being our last meeting before the final exam. A cake party? I said, the class laughed. I approached the back seat. Will this break? I fantasized, and fell through the chair. Faint laughter. No. Back to reality. I was safely sitting, my eyes, open wide, were making romantic contact with Claudia. The vibration was penetrating and she looked up, as Miss Barillo taught, I've asked everyone to draw a picture. So sketch a picture of, soldiers charging down a hill like stampeding buffalo. Hurry up. This is a brief lesson of consciousness and understanding. While the class was indulged in drawing all totally separate pictures, my stare was penetrating Claudia even further. She shrugged her shoulders. I folded my arms, exerting a few toleratic shrugs. You need a pencil, Georgie? Miss Barillo asked me. I stood up and walked to the front of the classroom. I was tick-free. Miss Barillo stood aside, a bit hesitant, allowing me to erase the David Hume causality necessary connection and constant conjunction notes from an earlier lecture. I drew on the board, in large letters, J.P. Sartre, 1905-1980. Classmates showed faces of confusion. From the front of the room, I stared at Claudia and offered a small grin. Excuse me, Miss Pirillo. What goes on in consciousness obviously doesn't matter to understanding. There is no method. Okay, we've got buffalo on grass, buffalo in dust, soldiers in dust, soldiers riding buffalo, soldiers in dust, soldiers with buffalo, and lastly we've got the picture of a half-soldier, half-buffalo, all different answers that illustrate the point. Please. I need those bonus points. I'm sorry. I walked back to his seat and fell in front of it. No reaction. I sat down safely. I see you've done your reading, Miss Barillo said. Possibly I may be able to work out your term average with some understanding. Classmates showed faces of awe. I smiled. I winked at Claudia. She showed a half grin, which turned into a warm smile. Miss Barillo asked the class, well then. Okay. Does everyone understand what Mr. Gust has demonstrated? Yes. Yeah. 
whatever. Sounds good to me. I drew a little buffalo dressed as Napoleon. Does that count? Claudia asked Miss Marillo. How do you draw a buffalo? I asked Claudia as I glanced at her absurd sketch. Some laughter. Miss Marillo smiled. Georgie, if you would like to make any further remarks, you're more than welcome to. That is if you don't take away my job. Miss Marillo smiled again and the class laughed a bit more. I stammered. AAAA everyone is hereby excused from this room and invited to chow down in the dining hall. Just save me some meatloaf. The class got ready to leave, but... All boys must, of course, take off their hats, as it's required in the student handbook on page 63, or 4. The class rushed out, cheering. I walked over to Miss Barillo. I was late again, Miss Barillo, I said. She told me, you've got a long road of opportunity ahead of you, Georgie Gust. Keep at it. Miss Barillo kissed me on the check and left the classroom. As I stepped out the door, I ran off. Claudia had been waiting for me, but I didn't notice her. She saw me running down the hallway. Georgie, Georgie. She called. A pause. What are you running for? I came to an abrupt halt, turned around, facing the undaunted Claudia at a far distance. I galloped with nonchalance to the far end of the hallway to Claudia. I was thinking about mayor, or governor. This city, we need a better school system. Claudia laughed. All I was thinking about was having lunch at the yard. Some inspiration. You really gave me a lift before, that was quite something. I didn't know you had so much energy inside that noodle of yours. So much, would you like to join me in the yard? I nodded my head positively. I waved at Claudia, like a prince to his princess, allowing her to lead the way out. Claudia and I had a private picnic on the grass in the graveyard. Eating for me was ritualistic. I took my sandwich and smelled it each time before biting into it, and then smelled it again and chewed with slatternly paste jumps and my elbows often lifted up near ears, the left, then the right elbow. I squinted and twitched my nose, but I was pretty comfortable behaving physically toeretic in front of Claudia. We had lunch together every day from that point on. But, my medication for the Tourette's had been discontinued for a week because things were going so well for me, out of the wild jungle one day, rejoining me in full costume, the horn-headed monkey returned to its residence in me. This time it was going to try and kill me, the son of a bitch. I couldn't rid the forbidden entities of my life. Major downfalls. I took a leap of bad faith, down, to that seemingly inescapable hellish wonderland. I was depressed. A deep, dark, morose, static, stoic state of depression. It was like God had given up with me. But why? It was like God was involved in some kind of angelic accident and was killed or something. My doctor on campus immediately hit me up with a heavy dosage of an antidepressant called Wellbutrin. It would take, if anything, time, to kick into my system. The infinite doc was my best friend sometimes, yet, other days my worst enemy. Claudia offered to help me out, but she must have thought I had already saved myself. 
and I had been telling her how I wanted to do charity work when school ended and how I wanted to help others in some way at some time in the future. Mr. Monkey and my depressed mind couldn't convince Claudia that I was back to square one as far as my health was concerned. Now Claudia wanted me to help save mankind in its entirety. Last day of school and she truly believed my noodle had this capacity to save, couldn't she see what was happening? But what should I do tomorrow? Rejected by Yale and Cornell, won't join the army. I want to save myself, but also help others. But I can't help others, I said. Why? Nobody thinks their upbringing is significant and relevant. Usually kids get screwed up. I'm doing my job and I'm not even a father. Parents should do better jobs. Parents name their own kids, right? Sure. Georgie Gust. I'm proud of my name and think it's relevant to who I am, I said. Do you know what my first name is? I'm not that screwed up, Claudia. Nope. Well, what is it? Guess. Oh, come on. Three guesses, Marigold, Amanda. The hell is this? Marjorie. Claudia's my middle name, she confessed. Are you kidding? Well, Marge, what should I do? And she told me, you see, you have this great capacity, the tolerance to serve, what's the word, manner, for the future, harmony. I see you as a real giver, the past is long gone, your father, you're rebelling against authority figures. Yeah, 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 I grudged. I understand completely, she said. Now people respect you. They don't care how you dress, look, but what you can see, say, hear and comprehend. So what should I do? I begged. You should attempt to try to keep your chin up. No more tears, no sweating, and no more hatred. You have the control. But I don't want my body, with all its sufferings and shortcomings, to serve just as a manner for future harmony, if that harmony is only a future one. I'm ready to serve mankind as well as my capacity lets me, probably ten times better than all the faculty here, all put together. I'm sure you can. They want, they need, your service and you can offer it. But I don't want to be demanded of service. I really just want to remain absolutely free altogether, even if I don't lift a finger. But, you've got to love these people around you. Who I won't ever see. Who know nothing about me, and in turn will sort of disappear without leaving any traces or memories. Time makes no difference to this. What would be the worst case scenario of this? When the Earth in its turn, changes to a block of ice and flies through space, without any atmosphere, along with an infinite number of other blocks, the same kind. The most ridiculous thing that could ever happen. It's like I've driven God out, in a horrible struggle. It was just he and I and now, it's just me. And now it's my last day. Like all at once. Forget mankind. I realize that I've been left completely out. And I think I'm full of goodness. So, won't all that great surplus of love inside you, all the thankfulness, you've tried to use for the beyond, won't you find your place on this earth? With who? No family. No friends. You have me. You must feel like an orphan. So what should I do?
I beg you, what would I do in your spot? Press close to your support and understand each one of us has only one another's support. Little kids would feel that everyone was apparent to them. Tomorrow will be your last day? Today, head up to the bluff with your eyes on the setting sun and you'd think, what does that matter? But I'm not going to be here long, at any rate. No, traces. Like that bum we met in town the time, telling us how he left his mark on the world by scratching his first name on a subway car in New York City. You will remain, and after you, your children, and that thought that they will remain, continuing to love one another would take the place of an idea of reunion beyond all this. Claudia pointed to all the gravestones around us. Oh, how could I hasten to love in order to stifle the great grief in my heart? I would be proud of you, but fearful of others. Fearful? Everyone else would tremble for the life and happiness of their supportive friends, family, people. Is that why you go out with me? I'm with you because, one day, and very soon, you'll look at these people around you with a profound gaze, full of understanding, and in their eyes, there would be love and grief. A long pause came between us. I took a look around the surrounding area as I thought to myself. Some parasites of a new species, microscopic beings, had made their appearance, taking up their boat in human bodies. But these animals must have been spirits endowed with understanding and will. The people that affected them instantly became raving insane. But never was I more convinced that they were in possession of the truth. Never had they a greater belief in the infallibility of their judgment about anything. Whole villages and towns and cities infected and lost their reason. They all lived in dread and nobody understood one another. Each thought that I alone possessed the truth that could discern good and evil. I read every day, people kill one another under the influence of senseless anger, tell me all your thoughts on God sometime, just like the song, you know? I asked. Georgie, lie back and close your eyes. I followed her instructions. Take a deep breath in, deep, deeper. You're breathing in life. Now, take it a little further in. Now let out. Let out all the tension. Release the tension. She blew out on my face and rubbed my temples. And let all that excess out, even further, meditate. She kissed my cheek. I didn't respond. I was completely relaxed. I dreamed of walking over to a picture of Christ on the Baltic Sea. I stared at it. I picked it up. I've never been able to do without you, I told it. You came to me, stretched out your arms, and said, how could you have forgotten me? I placed the picture away and lay down on the floor with my arms out and cried. A short while later, I was in the same position, with my arms stretched out on the grass. My eyes opened. On the whole, I'm sorry to have lost God. What do you mean? Claudia asked. Just, just daydreams, in our heads, or I should say in our brains, there are nerves, these nerves have fibers, and when these fibers begin to vibrate, you see, when I look at something, as soon as they vibrate, an image is formed. Not immediately, but after a second or so, an impulse is born, no. What am I talking about? Not an impulse, but an object or an action, 
That's how perception happens. Then comes thought. Right. From September, I said, Miss Barillo and I have fibers, and not because I have a soul, or was created in God's image. What nonsense. I don't know. You're only going through a transformation. I know, but anyway, that's something. What? That I reject God? A thousand apologies. You're a Catholic, but you don't love God either. You don't love Him. That's what you pull with us. You lie. Georgie. I'm sorry. I understand completely what you're going through. Far more than you need to come out of the depression and find happiness, you need to know and to believe that every minute, that somewhere else, there is a place for happiness for everyone. Where? I want to go. What am I missing out on? I pressed. The whole law of human existence consists in that you can, at all times, bow down to something infinitely great. And if human beings came to be deprived of this infinitely great something, they would no longer want to live and would die in despair. Why? The infinite world is as necessary to you and me and everyone. And my friends, your support system? Support system? I question. Your mother, me, the great thought. The eternal infinite thought. The whole of the human race, whoever he or she may be, feels a need to bow down before it. Even the stupidest person has this need. I wish I could see you understand this, Georgie. I really feel for you, and nobody knows. Does everyone have this thought? They can't do without it. You have to believe. You need to have the faith, the open-heartedness. If there were nothing infinite, we would not be king of the earth, of the universe. Only whom would we love? For whom would you've been going to chapel to sing hymns of gratitude? Life? And life will prevail over your system. And all the happiness you can't save will well up in us once more. I'll have to be off, Claudia. Thank you. I had a really nice time. I gathered my things. Just before you're condemned to walk down in the mines, if God is driven away from the earth, we will see him below the earth. If God is nothing, everything is permitted. It will be your task to find meaning in that. If God is nothing, everything is a matter of indifference. Temptation will vanish. I assure you, I walked away with my backpack, hopping away, like a bunny. I went to Christ Church and probably appeared to be uncomfortable sitting in a pew with my head down. I looked up at the stained glass Christ figure above the altar. I kneeled. Then all was silent. I heard a baby crying from the back of the church. I looked back and saw a poor woman holding an infant in her arms. I looked back at the Christ figure, and then walked back to the woman. I touched the baby and spoke to its mother. She was quite a young woman and the child would be about six weeks old. It was smiling at its mother for the first time in its life, she said. I saw her cross herself all of a sudden with the utmost piety. I asked her why, and she said to me, all the joy that a mother feels when she sees her child smiling for the first time, God feels every time he sees, from up there in heaven, a sinner praying to him from the bottom of his heart. Those are practically the words which that simple woman said to me. She expressed this deep, subtle, and purely religious thought. 
Those people who know all is well are happy. If they knew that they were happy, then they would be happy. That's the idea, the whole idea. Beyond that, there's nothing. That night, I took a shower and cleansed all the rawness inside me. I was dressed in a bathrobe. My hair was still wet. Taking the occasional nip from my silver Russian antique flask, I pulled out Miss Perillo's final examination from the top drawer of my tiny desk, sat down, and read the directions to myself. Create a logical essay on the premise that existence precedes essence. Furthermore, using your own words, define the concept of God. I began writing, tapping my big pen in between each word or so. I wasn't thinking. I had stolen that test from Poobah Marx. I was a crook. A robber. A fiend. A fiend. Through the fault of my own, I zoned out that night, and this live bamboo tree kept chasing me and telling me all kinds of weird shit, and I realized what I had done wrong. My whole life. Wrong. My father died because I had taken so much out of him, since I was a neurotic kid, that his continuous ulcers left him six whole feet under. It wasn't any illicit street drugs or phony white lines. I told half the school I was in rehab to cover up the Tourette's. It was me. I had to keep up my own scaffolding. I became so absorbed in my writing and drinking that I began to hallucinate. I saw Mr. Jean-Paul Sartre in my nicking room, smoking a pipe. He walked over to my desk as I shook and J.P. looked over the work I was doing. Sartre picked up the copy of the final exam. Jean-Paul. I pronounced. He answered me. He spoke, full of life. My hero. No. I am just an illusion, existence precedes essence. What does that mean? I told him what I had learned. It doesn't mean anything. Actually, essence precedes existence. What something is, its definition, its idea, nature, function, actions, they're all the essence of a thing. We used to have a cat, Phoebe, and this cat around the corner from us once came over and hammered it. I was like 12 years old. Disgusting. So? He remarked. I continued, my point is that I knew for sure that when her kitten was born, it would rip apart furniture, which it did after Phoebe died, bring back dead mice and rats and shit in the kitchen and meow like a mother when we'd have dinner. And I couldn't have been more right. If you're thinking about getting a cat for company, you can if you want, cause you can already predict its characteristics before the thing is even born. That about you? The ghost asked me. Me? Well, I messed up, but at least I know so. Get to Z point, will you? Sartre rushed me. I went on. It goes for everyone. Miss Marillo was saying there's like this big pre-existing platonic cookie cutter that stamps out individual people, like we all exist in God's eyes before we're invented. I was an atheist, Sartre said and vanished. I wrote and wrote, more and more. Note cards became my desk. The next day, after handing in my final in Miss Pirillo's mailbox, I took a cab to the city. I read, the whole way, a French translation Claudia did for me. Les Chussant fates, the game is over, the chips are down. And I thought I was just a dead man. Or, 
that everyone else was dead and in his or her own world, their own dimension of reality, or reality, plane, and that I'm invisible to them. Then I had a party at my place to celebrate my coming of age, a graduation party to others. I mingled around at the party. Some lame fruit loop spilled some major poo on my brothel stompers that night at my intense blowout. Claudia was so completely cute. Bagging ZS, sucking face to the max. Riding the porcelain Honda in between beers and shots. All was good. Claudia was speaking with Pooba Marks. They seemed to be hitting it off pretty well. I observed from a distance. Claudia was acting quite playful with Pooba. I grabbed another drink. Then I saw my girlfriend starting to turn on me. It was Pooba Marks. I confronted Claudia and it did not look so hot. I kicked everyone out before school authorities busted the place and I started writing Claudia a letter. It's some proof of my sincerity towards you that I write when I am prepared by drinking to speak truth. I'm living today and yesterday. I was in a complete fascination all day. I feel myself at your mercy. But I'm sorry, for I, at the party, I had a little to drink only. You ticked me off and I was rude to you and you went on provoking and I couldn't stop myself. You looked so beautiful. It made me glad to make you cry. Then I left you, had more drinks. I vowed I would never see you again, but I can't keep that vow. I was spinning. What was I doing? Please don't be angry with me. How could I help it? How can I? You cruel, cruel girl. Now that was just like you, to pour poop marks at the party. I can see you now, and hear you, for if you wanted to dance with me, Pooba, you wicked, witching, malicious, merciless, mischief-loving, torturing, martyrizing, unspeakable to be feared and gone, the nymph you are, when you knew he would give a year of his life to touch you, as me. What a world this is. What a sad world. I don't know what it doesn't deserve or what I can do. P.S. My mysterious girl, I forgot one little bit of this letter, but I can't forget it all. My heart is yours. My thoughts, myself, all but my memory. That's mine. Now it's cool, as you say, to give me all that pain and then tell me. Never mind, I won't do it again. How could you? I've enclosed a box filled with a hundred kisses. Tell me if they come safe or if any are lost in any way. Claudia cried reading my letter the next morning. She opened the box, which I put exactly 100 peaches in. She bit into one for breakfast. She took out some paper and wrote, I was miserable last night. The morning is always restoring. I was reading, being in nothingness until late Saturday night. The phone rang four times. Claudia said she'd explain everything that night at 11. It was past midnight and she hadn't called. Then I got the call I was waiting for. I knew things weren't going so hot for Claudia and me. I didn't answer the phone all day. The answering machine picked up. You've reached Georgie Gust and the broken-hearted Jubilee. Fitzy's new extension is 1013. If you're so inclined, leave a message for me. B-E-E-E-E-P. Hey Georgie, it's Claudia. It's Friday and it's around, um 5 o'clock or so, I think. I'm here. 
I'm going be here the next couple hours, so if you get back at the same time, give me a call. I'm sorry I didn't call last night. Um. But you can call me today. Talk to you later. Bye bye. Click. I was wearing a white tank top and a nicotine patch on my shoulder. My hair was wet and I had a towel around my neck. I picked up the portable phone and dialed. Claudia was eating soup. The phone rang once. She picked up. Hello. And I went off. Stream of consciousness. Hi. It's me, good. Collecting my thoughts, but I couldn't do so. You're at a loss for words. I'm at a loss for thoughts. Would you mind if you go first? But you have nothing to say? Okay. Well the truth is that obviously some things have been bothering you about me since the party that's been built up. This is my analysis. Don't take it for anything that it's not worth. But a few things have been building up in your huge capacity for emotions. And now it seems to be coming out that I'm trying to manipulate you to feel guilty when we had that whole communication that night when I said I wanted to get better, and things have been getting better since I'm on the new medication, and I think I scare you. Do I scare you? How can you say you don't know me? Well, I'm a complicated guy. This has happened to me all my life and I'm sick and tired of trying to explain myself. Alright? Since my childhood, I've learned to forget bad times. If you were to break up with me, I wouldn't freak out. I would miss it. Yeah, I have a certain amount of caring in my emotional vocabulary too. It's like, maybe there's that 99% of me that you know, but it's that 1% that really matters. Okay. 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 Later, and I hung up. Claudia became upset. She picked the phone back up and dialed me back, but I had already left the room. I went next door to see Sean Fitzy, that guy I didn't hang around with much anymore. He'd become a big beer drinker and drug user. The radio was on. Sean was drinking a beer and reading an old holler. He looked up at me. Hey, long time, no speako, I told him, broke up with Claudia. Have a beer, he offered. Sean opened his closet to pull out a Mikulab from his hidden cooler. Moderation. Moderation. Like Aristotle, I thought as I drank through the night and talked nothing but chicks and dogs. No help or advice. Sean Fitz was like a busboy at a truck stop diner. Never saw him again. Friends, I had a talk with Claudia and I think I cleared things up told her about my visit to the church and said how I think of security and reassurance, instead of opportunity, and that I must seem more afraid of life than death. I won her heart back. If she couldn't put up with me, so ridiculous, then, I thought, screw it I'm worthy of anything I damn want. I initiated myself into what I called the broken hearted jubilee. Thought I was the only member of this made up dub, but... Isn't everybody a member and isn't it not just, but a thought only I dreamt up? Isn't it real for almost all of our population? How many people do you know that are involved in a successful relationship? See what I mean? I gave my memoirs, at this point, to Claudia that very night. I wrote her a note telling her if she could understand just a bit to come over to the quad. 
Room number 214. I wanted to make love to her. She came over. I hadn't made love with anyone before. And we didn't that night. She was Catholic, so she said. But the thing was, I couldn't make love. I couldn't love. I couldn't be loved. A hug? Meant nothing to me. My mother showed her love to me with a wooden spoon, a shoe, or a belt. My dearest Georgie, what is it that makes you so anxious? Are we not living side by side as peacefully as is possible in this misery? What comes over you? You are at once both the quiet and the confusion of my heart. Imagine my heartbeat when you are in this state. I have read your long memoirs many times with burning cheeks in the hope that some kind of peace, some kind of gaiety, would somewhere show itself. It was surely only the mood of an unfortunate evening, and my agitated scrap from the chemistry stuff. I know that tomorrow will bring a confident email from my strong Georgie, who was overcome by exhaustion and terrible torment but for a single midnight hour. My futile striving for an impossibility, for the very moment, i.e., your presence must surely dismay not only me, dearest, but you as well, as each time I dream of the two of us meeting again. But you may be right after all. Once a day I should like to caress you, otherwise I would rather drop everything, otherwise I would not know what to do with myself. And it wouldn't bring you any nearer, but if only it would make you feel a shade calmer and more tranquil and more at ease with living in the philosophical world you live in, designed around a moral and physical set of strongly set and carefully thought out ideals and values. I would caress you twice again, in the powerful and supportive hope that your ideals would come to rescue from your unearthly dilemmas. It doesn't matter whether I am in the mood for only one kiss for you, that doesn't matter, what matters is whether by kissing or holding your hand, or walking through the yard twice a day, I could manage to summon, at least to some extent, the energy for everything else that is expected of me. Let me kiss you, dearest, pale tormented child. She who signs herself below brings to you, not only an object in your room but, as you would wish it, and forever. I was overwhelmed with, well, Malahoros in your memoirs Friday night. And I assume you appeared, rather sad to which, this sounds unkind, would have been rather a consolation. It was horrid leaving you my letter of response and leaving you that evening on the phone but was practically unavoidable, so there's nothing to regret em except what you said had to be done, and I think it was quite clever of me to put in your place, on your knees and my feet and that I flatter myself I have thoroughly done. Sunday was a little disappointing, because although my conscience wanted me to go to chapel, I should have had some fun in writing this letter or calling you instead, in the morning, when I had simply slept until the afternoon. Regarding your memoirs, it gave me, in actuality, more delight than anything in the world but yourself could do. Surely I am almost astonished that anyone so far away should have that luxurious power over my senses which I felt and still feel. Even when I am not thinking of you, I receive your influence and tender nature stealing upon me. All my thoughts, my unhappiest days and nights, I have found not at all cured me of my love of beauty, but made it so intense that I am miserable that you are not with me right now. Or at any time you are not with me, 
for that matter, or rather breathe in that dull sort of patience that cannot even be called life. I never knew before what such a love you have made me feel was. I did not believe in it. My fancy was, perhaps, afraid of it. It should just burn me up, for now. But if you will fully love me, though there may be some fire, it will not be more that we can bear when moisten and bed you with pleasures. I have so much of you in my heart that I must turn to become a sort of mentor, if you will, when I see a chance of harm befalling you. I would and will never see anything but pleasure in your eyes, love on your lips, and happiness in your steps. I would wish to see you among those amusing ideals in life, suitable to your inclinations instead of ideals, so that our loves might be a delight in the midst of pleasures agreeable enough, rather than a resource from vexations and cares. But, I do doubt much, in the case of the worst, whether I shall be a philosopher, a writer, enough to follow my own lessons. If I saw my resolution give you pain, I could not. Why may I not speak here of your beauty, since without that, I could never have loved you from the start. I cannot conceive any beginning of love as I have for you but beauty. There may be a sort of love, for which without the least sneer at it, I have the highest respect and can admire it in others, but it doesn't have the richness, the bloom, the full form, the enchantment of love after my own heart. So let me speak of your beauty, though to my own endangering, if you could be so cruel to me to try elsewhere its power. You say you are afraid I shall think you do not love me or I do not love you. In saying this you make me ache the more to be near you. I am at the diligent use of my facilities here, working on finals, studying, etc., and here I must reassure you that I love you more in that I believe you like me for my own sake, and for nothing else I should not be all the time longing for you. Well I was wrong. I need you all the time when I am vexed and uncertain and tired, but more than ever on a night like this when everything is so unearthly and lovely, and I don't at all regret the haphazard, unhappy, lonely life I've led up until now because I don't think that without it I could love you so much. Good night, my sweet angel. I love you more than I could find words to tell you. Your Claudia. The whole world, at least our world, is encompassed within the universe, this universe that we can only imagine as seemingly having no end, and going back in time to the beginning. You know you can trace the speed of light. It's an incredible phenomenon. Since the beginning of man, people have wondered how the darn thing was constructed and they went through stages where at first, all they saw were miniature worlds. Back in the year 1000, men never lived long enough or traveled far enough rarely beyond one town where they lived, so they could only imagine what existed beyond the hills. And it's ironic because the thing that existed right in front of them they knew extremely well. Every tree, every villa, every knoll of land. But they could only imagine what existed beyond that. And when you don't know, you fear, ultimately. And they had these concepts of like, beyond the hills or in that dense, primeval forest existed fairies, or sometimes demons that would rush out and destroy them or fierce, indescribable animals that would tear them apart if they wandered beyond their cloud fields. I mean this is a strange mentality. Yet, this is just a thought. Upset by my illness, 
consumed by my anger of having to make an idol of an ideal I detest. That is, my story in the form of poetic verse. I feel sick again. But I shall recover. I've burned all of my poems in the mad belief that I could refrain from writing things of that same depressing nature. So far, there is no evidence of the contrary. Dearest Claudia, it was good to get your excellent email. Dear Dolly, Cupcakes, Baby Cakes, Lollipop. Don't you think it would be a keen idea to keep all of my memoirs until the ripe age of 50, and then one fine day suddenly publish them all as the collected writings of Georgie Gust, and leave it at that, in a series of great men in our day. An artist who was truly an artist, a man with no preoccupations at all. That would be phenomenal. I would live a life with you of immeasurable delight and my love for you could well up in us for the best part of a long while. I'm forgetting about my health. Well my boils are going down quite a bit, my nuts and nape of the bowl inside my butt are looking better. Yet, with stimulants, my nerves are not quiet. As I promise to take care of the alcoholism, oral fixations, etc., soon it will be several months, in several months, since I blow Bloody Mary chunks, on a better note. I have told you my passion, my eyes have spoken it, my tongue pronounced it, and my pen declared it. Now my heart is full of you, my head raves of you, and here I write to you. For over one year now, I have seen only you, I have admired only you. I deserve only you. I will cover you with love the next time I see you, with caresses, with ecstasy. I want to gorge you with all the joys of the flesh, so that you faint and die. I want you to be amazed by me, and to confess to yourself that you have never even dreamed of such transports. When you are old, I want you to recall those few hours. I want your dry bones to quiver with joy when you think of them. Carry me off into the blue skies of tender loves, roll me in dark clouds, trample me with your thunderstorms, as will I, break me in your angry rages, as will I, but love me, my adored lover, my sweet sea. I'm altogether immersed in the happiness I derive from seeing you. Nothing else counts. I have you, little all-precious one, little beloved sea, as much today as the day before yesterday when I could see you, and I'll have you till the day I die. After that, nothing of all that may happen to me really has any importance. Not only am I not sad, I'm even deeply happy and secure. Even the most tender of memories of all your dear expressions, or your little arms cradling my pillow in the morning, aren't painful to me. I feel myself all enfolded and sustained by your love. You have absorbed me. I have a sensation at the present moment as though I was dissolving. Darling, my Claudia Louise Nesbitt, my Lolita, one line in haste to tell you that I love you more today than ever in my life before, that I never see beauty without thinking of you or scent happiness without thinking of you. You have fulfilled all my ambition, realized all my hopes, and made all my dreams come true. You have set a crown of roses on my raw youth and fortified me against the disaster of our days. Your courageous gaiety has inspired me with joy. Your tender faithfulness has been a rock of security and comfort I have felt for you, 
My sweet Claudia, all kinds of love at once. I have asked much of you and you have never foiled me. You have intensified all colors, tightened all beauty, deepened all delight. I love you more than life, my beauty, and my wonder, my sea. Now in the quiet of the evening and the warmth of our bed a drugged and dreamy feeling steals over me and I feel as if I was with you once more. Lying here, I love to think you near me, your arms encompassing me, my head buried in your shoulder, catching the rhythm of you breathing and living for a few exquisite moments as one being. I said I was dreaming, Claudia, but I am so delightfully drunk, relishing such heavenly moments with you that I wish it would go on forever, for two days, oh God. I have been asking myself every moment if such happiness is not a dream. It seems to me that what I feel is not of earth. I cannot yet comprehend this cloudless heaven. And now, love, you with the warm heart and loving eyes, whose picture I have just kissed last night, as every night, and whose lips I so often kissed in my dreams, whose love enriches me so bountifully with all pleasant memories of you in New York and sweet anticipations of being together forever, whose encircling arms shield me from so much evil and harm, whose caresses are so dear and so longed for awakening and sleeping, making my heart beat faster, ray skin tremble and my toeretic brain joyed with delight, whose feet I would like to kiss and whose knees I would long to embrace over and over again, as a devotee kisses those of his idol, my Claudia, whose home is in my warm arms, and whose resting place is on the upper center of my belly, who first came to them as a frightened bird but now loves to linger there till long after the dock turns to the next day, my life, with your generous womanly soul, my heart's keeper and my true lover, to you whom when my mind is not occupied with your senses, is dead and cold as the dark midnight river when the moon is down. I love you so, that really seems to be it. I've been reading Sartre and sometimes picking my nose in public, that's all. Off I go. I lit a cigarette, puffed once, and then withdrew it from my mouth at once. Ah! These cigarettes. They're awful and yet I can't give them up. I cough, get this tingling in my throat and have hard time breathing. You know, I'm a coward. I went to the dock, up on Main Street. Yeah? What did he say? Claudia asked, sitting on a stone. This doctor was a klutz. He only gives a half hour to each patient. He laughed at me yesterday. He's like, tobacco s bad for you. Your lungs are affected. But how do I give them up? What's to take their place? I don't drink anymore. That's what's bizarre. He 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 that I don't. Everything's relative. Everything's relative. I pointed out. Give me that cancer stick. Claudia demanded. I was struck. No. I'm not going to be held responsible for killing you. Last time we met, I was the suicidal case. I reminded her. Claudia gently fingered the cigarette from my mouth, held it for a minute, and then put it out on the graveyard soot. I continued with my thoughts. Nonetheless, I've come to speak with you. I decided openness is better between us. What should I say? Just come, I thought, even if I let one thing slip for a time, I'll get a hold of something else. I can't lose what I have. Claudia pointed at me, 
I was counting on your temperament, and your temperament above all things. I had great hopes for you. What are you driving at? What am I driving at? I've come to explain myself. I consider it my job, so to speak. I want to make it clear to you I'm not a monster. No, I never thought that, Claudia said. I wanted to tell you at first, that frankly and sincerely, I don't want to deceive you. When I first met you, I felt attracted to you. You might laugh. She didn't. I waited for her to at least grin. You have a right to. I mean I know you didn't like me from the start, I said. Then Claudia winced an overdue giggle. I didn't think that. I thought this young pseudo-intellectual, soon to blossom. I said to her, you may think what you'd like, but I hope to now do all I can to efface that impression and to show you that I'm a man of heart and sincerity. Claudia came across a bit uneasy. Why don't we take a walk, she suggested. I pulled her up and we walked slowly, together. It's scarcely necessary to go over everything in detail, I said. You know I've been a nutcase all my life. I'm willing to embarrass myself one more time. The final insult. I mean, I grew up as an outcast, basically lost my faith in everyone, had self-pity, like my incarnation was busted, a wrong incarnate. The faulty inborn who came here just to screw things up, till I met you, and, but I've grown up and down with this Tourette's disorder. But I find it not a disorder, but a sense of order. I reject time, people, myself, and have all these subtle physical symptoms that are beyond my control. But, I feel, I can only tell you what goes on, I grew upset, more and more, worse and worse as I explained myself. What goes on inside? What I'm, what I'm, I've been so frightened, so terribly, so terribly frightened of. Claudia sat me down on a bench, placing her hand on my lap and I cried cries that waxed and waned as it became darker and darker in the park, until the evening shadows of us two were, as traces, the only appearance left. I was crying as to my lost mother, expressing my most private, innermost thoughts. I felt so vulnerable at this time but as I told my story, through an elastic tone of speech, I knew, or felt that it all must come out, to Claudia. By letting the world know, I was beating the horn-headed monkey that took me over. Even if it was only two years at a time. Oh God, Claudia, oh my God. How did I do it? Claudia. Oh, Claudia caressed me. What is it, Georgie? It's alright. It's not alright. Just let it all out. Forget where we are. Here. Claudia reached in her purse and pulled out a bottle of water for me. I took it, quivering with shame, and started gulping it down. Slow. Slowly, Claudia hushed. A sip at a time. I coughed up some of the liquid and went on explaining, when I see people, I see people bleeding from the nose, flaming fire from their heads. Gulp. I see signs, billboards, reading, with flashing lights when there are none. My attention disappears. Then comes back. Then goes. It takes me ten minutes to read one page from my philosophy text. I have to read a sentence, then read it over and say it in my head until it sounds just right.
I hear a word that sounds interesting to me and it stays in my head sometimes for years. My body becomes numb. I feel all disoriented my feelings, my emotions, my body, brain, mind, and muscles. My inner muscles are in so much pain for all that I've held in. Then I release, privately, storm-tossed, and my heart is always pounding, even when I'm in a comfortable situation. Nobody ever knew. But I don't care. I love you. Claudia told me. I shouted back, but I do. She continued, I want to marry you one day and your Tourette's doesn't bother me. It doesn't. I told you that. I think you're cute when you... I hate it. Okay? I shouted. Georgie, I love you. Oh, Georgie. I love you so much, you're beating yourself up, and I want you to know that I see beyond, way beyond what you're talking about, you twitch. I don't care. I don't. You're one angel. You speak so beautifully. You're handsome. You're going to live on and hopefully with me, Claudia said. I cut her off. I have phobias of being around the very people I loved. Daydream delusions, panic attacks. No one ever knew. Feeling like I was going to die. I'd first not know what's going on, blame it on the room temperature or the food I ate or my medication. Nothing. TV shows made me cry. I'd be sensitive to love scenes. People die, my father. Oh, my god. I was becoming hysterical at this point. Claudia, I loved him so much, mom and dad tried to have me 8 years before I was born, and had trouble. My mother had trouble getting pregnant, and they wanted a son, and then dad dies, and old grade school friends now are dead too, or I found out are married, or have AIDS or HIV, abortions, or sold themselves too far. And all I'd was try. I'd throw up. I'd make myself throw up three times a day, just because I always felt nervous, not like an anorexic or bulimic, or whatever you call that. I thought it was the food I ate, or too much caffeine. That's why I'd miss class, drop a meeting, or run out sometimes. It wasn't you. Senseless anxiety in the form of perilous attacks. I've never been regulated. Caffeine for keeping up. PM pills, alcohol, to bring me down, self-medicating vitamins. There were never any drugs. There were never, never any drugs. Claudia, I thought I was going crazy. Gambling occasionally, all for happiness. That's why I'm always taking the taxi off campus. There's these guys in me. Oh Georgie. I continued, I always wanted to be a hotshot. I've never been content, hallucinations, no short-term memory, paying for psychic readings for reassurance, tripping out, freaking out. Nobody knows, and I'm not alone. One out of every 2,000 people has some form of it. Like almost 1% of the world, really. I lifted my head and saw a single teardrop running down Claudia's cheekbone. She held me stronger. I told her what I saw. And you look like, I can see this, but it's not real. It's just me. It's this imp. I have this little horn-headed monkey, like a devil, and I never told anyone this, he's the Tourette's. I paused. Hell, 
I don't know whether to laugh or cry right now, situations, events, circumstances, the weather, rain, sunshine. It all made me so, I spat and sucked in the next breath of cry, fucked up. I'm sorry, Claudia. Oh, I'm so sorry. The twitching, skipping, hopping, kicking, dancing, grimacing. My doctor? I don't even tell him this stuff. I think of suicide. Knowing I won't do it, but think, what if I just charge across the street and have some cabbie nail me in the face, so violent. And maybe, it's like I'm in this alternate reality that I'm stuck in, but both, everyone else is in mine and I can't separate them. There's never been any cocaine, no crystal methane. It was just an excuse, a poor attempted solution of why I feel so, I can't, I... Oh Georgie. You are so courageous. Claudia pouted. Never leave me. I will never leave you. I promise. And she cried. I promise you. The next day, Claudia and I walked around the graveyard. Claudia asked, when did you discover that you were happy? Last week, on Tuesday, no, Wednesday. It was Wednesday. In the night, after lights out. What happened? I don't remember. I was walking in my room. I was alone. I stopped my watch. It was 2.37. Was that a sign the time must stand still? It happens that for a few seconds, never more than five or six at a time, you suddenly feel, in an absolute way, the presence of eternal harmony. It's not anything earthly, and I'm not saying it's anything heavenly either, but I say that I couldn't in my earthly form endure it. I had to be transformed physically, or die. It was a clear and indisputable feeling. All at once, I seemed to feel nature in all its fullness and I thought, yes, that it's true. When God created the world, he said at the end of each day of his creation, yes, that's true. That's good. That it's not tenderheartedness, it's only joy. You don't forgive anything because there's nothing to forgive. Nor do you love. There's something better than love. The most terrible thing is that it's all so clear and you feel such immense joy, and if that goes on for more than five seconds, your soul can't stand it. It needs to disappear. Damocles was one of those Greek adventure heroes, like Ulysses, Hercules, and Oedipus, one of these heroes. And in one of his adventures, he comes across a king on a throne, and Damocles looks up at the king and says, what's the honor to sit on the throne? And the king looks down at Damocles and says, listen, kid, you want to sit up on the throne so bad? Well, here, you can sit on this one over here. But, you have to sit on it for one full day, 24 hours. And Damocles is like, no problem. And he's ordering drinks. He's ordering dancing girls. But then he looks up above him and there's this long silver sword hanging suspended over his head and the sword is hanging by a single thread of human hair. Now, the drinks don't taste as good, the dancing girls don't look so good. He can't leave for another 23 hours and 59 minutes. So he stays on the throne for the full day and the sword never falls on him. He enjoyed himself and he left. That was his potential. That was my potential. The moon. It's like waking up to yourself one day and realizing that you're totally lost, 
and trying to regain the simplicity and reality you once knew, and the daydreams, just momentary glimpses into my inside, what was really inside me. I thought I was alone, and thoughts that had once crossed my mind, sort of a reminder of my long-term memory, Claudia and I interconnected our dreams once. I was in hers, she in mine, the same dream. Pretty cool stuff. I volunteered my time at Beth Israel Hospital on Union Square in New York City to offer what I could for young kids who already had two strikes on their once-in-a-lifetime at bat for the pity I can see now. Geez. I suppose everyone's got some kind of misdemeanor that they're forced to live with. And my whole life? I don't think it's evolutionary, but instead circular in nature. And sometimes I just have to sit back and brood over the nature of things. I've been completely rehabilitated, even the cigarettes. Things could be better. But I guess there's a time for everything, even growing up if it's already too late. Postscript. The dream of a ridiculous man my Tourette's would diminish in about five years and Emily Jean Catherine Duval would have two kids with me. We named them Thatcher and Frederick, but we call Fred Drifty because he always has his head in my book stacks. That's part of my story, the part I told you, in the form of scattered thoughts. I'm going back to St. Michael's Academy to give a speech on their monthly school-wide seminar called Reflections. Perhaps I'll enlighten someone else who's stuck there in seclusion. But this year's class will all get out as I did and hopefully see a more delicately balanced lifestyle around themselves and the people around them. I'm offering a scholarship to the rowdiest incoming transfer student as well as a copy of my memoirs to the Reading Lounge at SMA. My mother went to AA and has been clean for over a year now. The letters I used to send frightened her. She told me that I always had a 10 grade system. There's that little percentage. Often that's perfect and the rest is just work. But this is great. This train is great. For the past three days, there has not been one ray of sunlight, but I'm okay. The sky is gray, flat, and still. The rain falls without a pause. An absolute silence. All I do is watch the clock and wail for tomorrow. I am now alone for a bit again, and I find it embarrassing to hold conversations in my head without anyone ever knowing anything about them or being able to answer me. Oh Claudia, I should like to erect a memorial to what has happened. What has already been experienced should regain in sentiment the place it lost in action. I told Claudia in a dream state, they must think I'm a madman now. That would be a distinct rise in my social position if it were not that they still regard me as absurd as ever. Very bright. Wealthy. Successful. On Prozac. Seeing a shrink typical American dream maker. Drifty is hopelessly alone, like his own goddamn father. My nephew is seven. He already knows about bra sizes. My first girlfriend, in high school, was a sea cop. I never liked coffee. But other people don't make me angry anymore. They are all kind to me now, even while they laugh at me, yes, even then they are for some reason especially kind to me. I shouldn't have minded laughing with them, not at myself, of course, but because I love them. If I hadn't felt so sad as I looked at them, 
I feel sad because they don't know the truth. I know the truth. It's hard to be the only man who knows the truth. But they won't understand. No, they wouldn't understand. And yet in the past I used to be terribly depressed at appearing to be so absurd. No, not appearing to be, but being. After I went to St. Michael's Academy, the more I learned, the more I became conscious of the fact that I was ridiculous. So that for me the years of hard work at Harvard seem in the end to have existed for the sole purpose of demonstrating and proving to me, the more deeply engrossed I became in my studies that I was an utterly absurd person. And as during my studies, so all my life, every year, the same consciousness that I was ridiculous in every way strengthened and intensified in my mind. They always laughed at me, but not one of them knew or suspected that if there were one man on earth who knew better than anyone else that he was ridiculous, that man would be me. And this, I mean the fact that they didn't know it, was the bitterest pill for me to swallow. But there I was myself at fault. I was always so proud that I never wanted to tell anyone. I wouldn't confess that for anything in the world. As Claudia was dying, I offered my last confession. As the years passed, this pride increased in me so that now if I were to confess it to anyone the same night, I would blow my brains out. Eighteen years old, I felt it made no difference whether the world existed or if nothing existed anywhere at all. Nothing existed in my whole lifetime. There was nothing in the past that existed, or in the future. That's why I stopped being angry with others. I'm never lost in a thought. I never have anything to think about and regardless, nothing even matters to me anyway. I have to go now, but, I'm thinking, right now, Claudia, you asked me what I'm thinking of. I'm still, just, dreaming of beautiful people. My mother and I were together in the park once, when her rage attacks got worse from the stress at work, the alcohol, I said later that if she didn't stop the violence with me, she would be locked up in an insane asylum, so beautiful. Her, there, first son died during childbirth. My parents didn't cry at the funeral. I know that. I know. Dreams come in strange forms. On the train, this morning, I dozed off. Everyone was happy and content. After my dream, I lost a knack for putting things into words, at least the most necessary and most important words. I longed for life. And what is life, but a dream too? In one day, in one hour, everything could be okay at once. The main thing is to love your neighbor. That's the main thing. Nothing else matters. Once you do that, you'll find out nothing else matters and everything can be okay. It's an old saying, a truth that's been told over and over again, but still finds no place among anyone these days. No one will ever get that. And she faded into blackness all my life. It all had to be renewed. The consciousness of life is higher than life, and the knowledge of happiness is higher than happiness. And that's what we have to fight against. And I'll continue, from now on to fight. If only we all wanted it, everything would be okay. All was good. I guess there's a time for everything. But I will go on, I will go on. The entire scene changes completely. The story continues. What about God? No end. 
You can also find Jonathan on Google+, Facebook, and Twitter, which is his preferred social media site. Author Jonathan Harnish has written a semi-fictional and semi-autobiographical best-selling novel, Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, which is available on Amazon and through most major booksellers. He is also a noted, and sometimes controversial, mental health advocate, a fine artist, blogger, podcast host, patent holder, hedge fund manager, musician, and film and TV writer and producer.